It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comments too. He'll tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a human man with an Emmy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right, buckled in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Yes, it's time right now for the David Feldman Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. So Twitter, right? Twitter, two jokes that are great. This is one joke that I put out on Twitter yesterday. To reduce my carbon footprint by half, to reduce my carbon footprint by half, this Christmas I will only be receiving gifts. That has 55 likes, nine retweets. Now that that's like a joke, right? But you know, uh, Bette Midler says uh, my pants are too tight and she gets like 40,000 retweets on my pants are too tight. I tweet out, oh, here, this was today. This is a perfect joke. This time of year, I always shoot nitrous oxide up my butt for shits and giggles, right? That's a great joke. Four retweets, 32 likes. How is that fair? How is that? But Steven Spielberg says, I have a toothache, 2 million retweets. There is no justice in the world. That's my message. Well, before we go any further, I want to talk about market capitalization today. I'm going to get to the show in a second. By the way, every book behind me that you see, I have read except one. Okay. I'm so sick of people putting books behind them that they haven't read. I have read every book behind me that you see on Zoom, except for one book, which I think is pretty good. Welcome to the mop up for October 16th, 2021. Jose Arroyo, author of Somewhere in L.A., joins us in an hour. You might want to come back then because... <laughs> You don't want to hear what I have to talk about. I'm going to I'm David Falpin coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 60 degrees and partly sunny. I'm going to talk about a couple of things. The most important thing I want you to learn before January 1st is what does market capitalization mean? I've been fixating on this term market capitalization. Now, the stock markets 
It's complicated, but it's really not. They try to make it complicated so they can steal money from you. This is how we can have a peaceful revolution in America. This is how we can take back our economy without killing people. This is how we can have a peaceful economic revolution in America. We learn what the richest 1% thinks it already knows. They don't know shit. Market capitalization. For example, and I'm going to be talking about this later, Southwest Airlines is a publicly traded company, which means you can buy stock in Southwest Airlines. If you wanted to purchase all the stocks that are out, it would cost $23 billion to buy all of Southwest Airlines, $23 billion. Now, if you bought all, if you started buying up all of Southwest Airlines, the the price of the stock would go up because of supply and demand. So it would end up costing you more than $23 billion. But if you were to secretly start buying up Southwest Airlines over the course of a year, it would cost you about $23 billion. Now, you don't need to own all of Southwest Airlines to control it. Mark Zuckerberg owns 51% of Facebook. He has voting shares. Rupert Murdoch owns 51% of what's left of News Corp. You don't need to own all of the market capitalization. You just need to own 51%. If, for example, you wanted to own Pfizer, if, say, the government wanted to take over Pfizer, nationalize Pfizer, which makes the COVID vaccines, right? It would cost $343 billion to own all of Pfizer. Now, if the government were to nationalize Pfizer, right, the market price would be $343 billion. That's the market capitalization. Learn that because our government could buy 51% of Pfizer. And when you have 51% of Pfizer, that would be, what, $170 billion? We could buy Pfizer for $170 billion. We would own 51% of it. That means we would control it. You get to vote by how much stock you own. Okay? This is important for, for Marxists, for leftists to learn. You have to learn the game that the other side is playing. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to nationalize these companies when they come to us for a bailout. See, it's a new, it's a new dawn. It's a new beginning. It's a new paradigm. I'm pushing for the nationalization of any corporation that fails and comes to the American government and says, we need a bailout. For example, we gave $50 billion to 10 airlines last year, right? We could have bought half of Southwest. We could have owned half of Southwest for 5 billion. See, but instead we give them money with no stock ownership. I'll be talking about this if we have time later on in the show. Please, for 2022, 
spend the year learning what a utility means, what it means to nationalize a, a corporation, and what market cap means. Market cap is what are all the stock shares out there in a corporation, how much would, how much would it cost to buy up all the stocks? Like Apple, I think you need a trillion dollars to buy Apple, all of Apple. Okay, yesterday, let me talk about other things, then we'll come back to this. Yesterday, there were 121,188 new cases of COVID. That's a 40% increase over two weeks ago. 1,302 Americans died from COVID yesterday. 1,302 Americans died from COVID yesterday. That's a 34% increase over two weeks ago. We reached two milestones this week. 50 million Americans have contracted COVID since we were first introduced to it back in February of 2020, 800,000 Americans have now died from COVID. Three quarters of those Americans are senior citizens. As we speak, 68,000 Americans are hospitalized for COVID. That is good news. That's a dramatic reduction from about a year ago, thanks to the vaccines. The vaccines work. Get your booster shots. Get your vaccines. 113 million Americans are double vaxxed using the Pfizer vaccine. 73, 73 million Americans are double vaxxed using Moderna, and only 16 million are vaccinated by Johnson & Johnson, which required a one shot. Remember, Johnson & Johnson was gonna be the great uh, savior for third world countries because it only required one shot. But Johnson & Johnson's one and done approach doesn't seem to be working as the CDC is recommending a booster shot. There's There are clotting issues with Johnson & Johnson. And if you have a Johnson & Johnson shot, the CDC is saying that you can mix and match your vaccines. You can get your booster with a Pfizer or Moderna if you got your Johnson & Johnson. Now, when COVID first reared its head back in about March of 2020, February of 2020, my friend Michael is a doctor. He told me this will be unlike anything we've ever seen before. And by the time this is over, things will never be the same because of COVID. I didn't believe him when he told me that because I've lived through plenty of watershed moments, supposed watershed moments where we've been told this is a big shift. Things are never going to be the same again. And they pretty much remain the same. Things before COVID, whatever trauma the nation went through, we were told it's this is things are different now. And things appeared, appeared to remain pretty much the thing, pretty much the same. However, underneath it, all things were changing slowly but dramatically, imperceptibly, things were changing. This is different. COVID is different. We can see the changes are dramatic and it's right in front of us. In the past, things changed due to trauma, uh, like 9-11, but we were the proverbial frogs in the boiling water who didn't realize something had changed until it, it changed and we just assumed this is the way things always were. But they weren't, they changed. Like after 9-11, at first we were told nothing would ever be the same again, but things appear to be exactly the same. Only 1% of Americans went off to fight these fake wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Fake wars because the Taliban and Saddam Hussein did not attack us on 
So only 1% were subjected to that lie. They went, they had to make that sacrifice, but we were told to shop. Literally, we were told to shop. And then they gave tax breaks to the middle class and the richest 1% while the government was fighting this war on terror. Never before in the history of mankind has a country fought a major war and paid for it by lowering taxes. Well, nothing changed on the surface, nothing changed. But 20 years later, after 9-11, we slowly evolved into a surveillance state where the Pentagon and the CIA fight secret wars with nobody's permission, and we torture, and we kill children using drones, and there are no consequences. Julian Assange is gonna be extradited to America for reporting about the 19 innocent civilians we killed in Iraq, but the, the, the Apache helicopter pilots who fired on these innocent civilians in Iraq, laughing, there are no consequences for them. Julian Assange is being brought here because he reported on American soldiers killing 19 innocent Iraqis. Uh, things happen very gradually and we always assume this is the way things have always been. We've always assumed that the financial sector, the banking sector, was something like 30% of our GDP. This is a new phenomenon. It happens slowly. The financialization of everything happened slowly over a 20 to 30 year period. It was imperceptible until we look around and see that every institution is compromised by the pursuit of mammon. It is now a given that your doctor, your lawyer, your teacher, even your religious leader is in it for the money. It is just assumed that everyone is trying to get one over on everybody else. We are all suspect of everybody else. Nobody can be trusted because of the financialization of our entire economy, but it didn't used to be this way. 25, 30 years ago, before Bill Clinton became president, it still wasn't, it wasn't this way. It changed, they changed it slowly. And now we trust nobody because everybody has been bought. And with that comes a sense of powerlessness. Nobody will help us. Nobody will help us. We look at Kamala and Joe Biden and, and Pelosi and Schumer, the Democrats look and we know in our hearts, they don't care if we live or die. We know that even the Democrats, and I would vote for Biden over Trump, but nobody cares about us. Nobody in Washington cares about us. Now, COVID is changing all this. Uh, we're on to the system, the poison. Uh, COVID is changing all of this because of its severity and its persistent it, persistence. It's not going away. Each new wave reminds us that life is never going back to the way it was. N everything changes, and now COVID is changing everything permanently. This is our World War II. This is our depression. This, finally, is the shared event that we will never forget. My parents had World War II. They had the Great Depression. This, we're going into this kicking and screaming, but COVID is the shared event that your grandparents or your parents had. This is the event we will never forget.
because everything that happened to baby boomers has been forgotten. The, the financial crisis of 2008, people forget Vietnam. We keep repeating the lessons of Vietnam. We're denying climate catastrophe. The weather is is just become a permanent part of our lives. We've, we've accepted that tornadoes now come around during the winter. Uh, we're not changing our behavior due to climate change because we're powerless and weather is bigger than us. Even though we're literally controlling the weather, weather is bigger than we are. The problem is we can't control the people who control the weather. We can't control Joe Manchin and ExxonMobil licking his asshole. So we're in denial about climate change. But COVID spares nobody. All of us have had to change. And even the people who refuse to change have been forced to change. COVID has truly changed everything. And we have to look at it, 800,000 dead Americans notwithstanding, we have to look at it as a gift. There's BC before COVID and there's after COVID, whatever that looks like. Now, I don't know when we're done with COVID. Some say it's gonna be like, if we're lucky, the cold, the common cold. It's the same kind of virus. Supposedly Pfizer has a brand new pill that you can take just as you've contracted COVID and it lessens the severity dramatically. It's kind of like Tamiflu. It's been approved and ready to be used. They're gonna start giving it out by the end of this year, in the next week. Maybe, just maybe this will turn COVID into something like a bad flu or a bad cold, but we thought the same thing about the vaccines. And while the vaccines have saved millions of lives, COVID is still with us. It's mutating and it's not going away in the foreseeable future. Things have changed. How you work, where you work has been permanently altered. All the CEOs who like offices so they can swing their dick in an office, Jamie Dimon, Apple, they're all reversing course and saying, ah, we got it wrong, you don't have to come to work. Work is changing permanently, permanently. We are never going back to the way things were because we never can go back to the way things were without COVID. Things were never gonna be the same. Things are now completely different. Work as we know it, gone. Going to an office, gone. Only the first responders, only people who really have to be in an office will be working around lots of people. But the great resignation isn't just a resignation from work. It's a turning away from this entire corrupt system. It's not a broken system. It works perfectly fine, just not for you and me. It is a corrupt system. The system is not broken. It is working perfectly fine for the handful of white men who control it. We are on to this system. That's the gift of COVID. That's why there is this great resignation. We are rejecting it. More and more Americans now realize that your self-worth is not dependent upon your job. That's insanity. And the gift of COVID is it will save the planet. It is forcing us to stop, to stop buying shit. If you want to save the planet, 
stop commuting to work and stop buying shit. Are you shopping on Amazon? Are you shopping on Amazon? According to a leading environmental group, Amazon is responsible for half a billion pounds of packaging waste in 2020. Plastic waste, half a billion pounds of plastic waste in 2020. You can only imagine how much plastic waste Amazon produced in 2021. It was up 30% in 2020. I bet it's up at least half now as more and more Americans shop through Amazon. All this while homunculus, human excrement, Jeff Bezos prides himself as the founder of Climate Pledge. This is an organization that encourages corporations to achieve net zero carbon emissions in 20 years. What's the rush? Why, why do you have to do it in 20 years? The planet has plenty of time. You don't have to worry about getting to net zero carbon emissions by 2042. In the past 25, in the past year, uh, 25 million pounds of Amazon packaging, plastics, ended up in our freshwater and fragile marine ecosystems. Bezos, I don't know if you know this about him, but he's a pathological liar and a sociopath. And he, he and Jay Carney, who used to be, uh, Jay Carney used to be Obama's press spokesman. He's now the uh, public head of public relations for Amazon. He claims, the liar, Jay Carney claim, and Bezos, claims that Amazon has created hundreds of recycling drop-off points in America where you can take your plastic from Amazon and they'll receive it and recycle it. And it's a lie. Oceana, this is a leading climate group. They did a study, 40% of Amazon's so-called recycling drop-off points are not aware that they accept plastic for recycling. But, you know, Bezos thinks if he just says we're recycling plastic, Americans are stupid enough to believe it, which we are. What does it matter? What does it matter for Jeff Bezos? There are no consequences because it's not like we have a Justice Department that puts the fear of God into corporate criminals, sociopaths who don't pay taxes like Jeff Bezos. As I said on last Tuesday's show, crime statistics are bullshit. Crime goes up. Crime goes down. Violent crime goes up. Violent crime goes down. It's bullshit because they're compiled. These statistics are compiled by people who are completely full of shit. Your local police department or the Justice Department or the FBI. What they consider violent crime is not violent crime. Somebody waving a screwdriver if he's black and homeless, that's a violent crime. But Jeff Bezos, not telling his workers they, get, uh, they can have phones uh, to check the weather service in Kentucky so they know to abandon the Amazon warehouse before the tornado comes and five of them die because of that, that's not considered a violent crime. A homeless guy made homeless by Jeff Bezos or Steve Mnuchin, a homeless guy waving 
a screwdriver, that's a violent crime. It's up. We need to be scared of him and his screwdriver. Crime goes up and down depending on the needs of the ruling class. Right now, they need crime to go up because they want us scared and they want to give a lot of money to the police so they can arrest us and we'll work in the prisons. That's the business model for fascism. A lot of prisoners working for corporations for free. So the great resignation is linked to crime statistics going up, not white collar crime, people of color crime. Uh, they want us scared. And so the newspapers and the nightly news broadcasts are littered with stories of home invasions or fashion models here in New York City getting thrown into oncoming subway cars. And that's because the police will always be looking for the people of color who rob someone at gunpoint. We need to arrest people of color and put them to work in our prisons. We need the American people scared so they will agree to spending more and more money on police officers they don't need, right? The Sackler family, Purdue, fam Purdue Pharma, Sackler family, they killed 100,000 Americans last year from opiate abuse last year. Opiate abuse killed 100,000 Americans last year. Not a single member of the Sackler family is behind bars because that's white collar crime. That's not a homeless, harmless, homeless person with a screwdriver waving it at uh, tourists. He, you gotta lock up, but the Sackler family can't lock them up. All they did was kill 100,000 Americans last year White collar crime is not considered violent crime. So if you're the Sacklers from Purdue Pharma, at worst, you pay a fine for killing 100,000 Americans last year. The Metropolitan Museum of Art just announced it was taking the Sackler name off some of its wings. Why the rush? Why is the Metropolitan Museum of Art uh, speed, speeding up on this? Uh, we've only known about the Sacklers being the El Chapo of the pharmaceutical industry for nearly five years. Why the rush? Why is the Metropolitan Museum of Art rushing into things by taking the Sackler name off their, their wings? Why? Museums, I'll talk about that later. Bullshit. Museums are bullshit. Money laundering operations. It's where you get the inside dope on the art world. You sit on the board of MoMA, the Muse Museum of Modern Art, to find out which artists are gonna be shown there so you can go buy their stuff before it's shown so you can make a killing. No prison sentence for anybody who is a, a Sackler, sits on the board of these museums, but if you're poor, if you're black, they cannot lock you up fast enough. For example, William Brown. Who cares about William Brown dead this week at the age of 55, dead in Rikers Island. That's here in New York City. That's the jail. That is an insane asylum. It's been described by the ACLU and public defenders as an insane asylum, meaning they are taking a, a, a New York City residents who need psychiatric help and just putting them in to a prison because we don't have money for social services, just money for cops. 
Uh, Willie Brown, William Brown, 55, died this week in Rikers Island. Who cares about Willie Brown? He was only the 16th inmate at Rikers Island to die in custody this year. But who cares about Willie Brown dead this week at the age of uh, 55? Folks, this is third world shit. This is something out of Papillon. This uh, 16 inmates in one city jail alone have died in 2021. That's the highest number of dead inmates at Rikers since 2013. Here's the thing. There were twice as many people behind bars in 2013. So in effect, 32 inmates died in Rikers this year. They're slowly emptying Rikers. We don't have the money to completely empty out Rikers. New York City, I mean, it's not like New York City has any rich people on Wall Street who might want to pay a little more in taxes to fix our criminal justice system. So they're slowly emptying Rikers. 16 inmates died uh, this year. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Because if you're behind bars in America, in, a, in America, you deserve whatever happens to you. It's punitive. Our, our, our prison system isn't about rehabilitation. It's about punishment. Brown, Willie Brown, 55, the 16th inmate to die at Rikers Island this year. He was found on the floor needing medical assistance, and it took Rikers 40 minutes to get a paramedic on the scene who then pronounced him dead. Rikers Island, a prison, couldn't get a, a paramedic to look at this guy for 40 minutes. No paramedics on site for a jail, especially Rikers. And why was Brown behind bars? He was a drug addict, not a dealer. He was an addict who, because he was an addict, committed a series of misdemeanors. He got caught shoplifting soap, shampoo, toothpaste from local stores. The only violence was he allegedly threatened a store employee with a screwdriver that he waved when he was caught shoplifting an air mattress that he needed because he was he needed an air mattress because he was homeless and and concrete is hard when you sleep on concrete on a sidewalk an air mattress helps he was a 55-year-old mentally disturbed crack addict living on the streets of New York. And because we don't have treatment on demand, all we have are cops. We don't have enough social workers, but we have cops and we have prisons. We don't have programs for the homeless drug addicts. We can't afford that. So we wait for people like Willie Brown to commit just enough misdemeanors to justify locking him up so he can go to Rikers Island because he's a drug addict. So you send your drug addicts to Rikers Island where they get their drugs from the prison guards. Brown was a crack addict who got sent to Rikers and appears to have died from a drug overdose. You, you, you arrest a crack addict, a drug addict, not for dealing. You arrest an addict, and instead of sending him for rehab, you send him to Rikers 
so he can get more drugs and overdose on it. This is third world. That's not third world world shit. This is just America. This is America. But the Sackler family, who who are responsible for a hundred thousand dead Americans, they're out. You know, their their punishment a fine here, and they can no longer have their name on a wing at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. That's the that's the efficiency of our system. The system works just fine. It's not broken. Lock up a mentally ill drug addict so he can overdose on drugs in the jail instead of on the streets. A 28-year-old man also died last week at Rikers, New York City, home of Wall Street. No money for, uh, for drug addicts in New York City. Malcolm Boatwright, a severely autistic man who has been described as having the mind of an 11-year-old, died from seizures at Rikers Island after he told his mother that the guards inside Rikers had bashed him over the head. Boatwright, again, the mind of an 11-year-old, autistic, he complained about being beaten constantly by inmates and guards at Rikers Island and, of course, having feces, hot shower water and urine thrown at him. Boatwright, dead from seizures after being clobbered over the head by a guard, allegedly. Boatwright had been charged with touching the genitals of a six-year-old boy, and he was being held on Rikers pending a psychiatric examination. So, uh, oh, he's a, he's a child molester, right? We, you know, and a child, a, a, a man with a, a, the mind of an 11 year old who's been accused of child molestation. You think he stands a chance on Rikers Island? Well, Rikers is reportedly short one third the staff required to keep it safe for inmates. Then again, maybe fewer prison guards means the inmates are probably safer, fewer, uh, fewer guards to sell them crack. Our city jails, especially here in New York City, are insane asylums in the classic Dickensian sense. But nobody cares because the only people who end up in our jails are poor people and mostly people of color. But when white people get locked up, uh, white people of some means, you know, middle class, upper middle class white people, when they get locked up, suddenly we are shocked, appalled by the conditions inside our jails. For example, we have all known that Washington, D.C.'s jail was a cesspool, is a cesspool for human rights violations the jail holds 1,500 inmates, some on local charges, but it's also the jail where our federal government, where marshals house people awaiting federal charges. And it is a notorious jail. It, it, it's notorious for subhuman Turkish prison style sanitary conditions, cockroaches, rats, the denial of food as a form of punishment. They deny food to the inmates in Washington, D.C.'s jail as a form of punishment, not to mention solitary, not, not solitary confinement, but something that resembles solitary confinement. 
But nobody cared about Washington, D.C.'s jails because it's heavily African-American, Washington, D.C., which means the jails primarily in D.C. are filled with African-Americans and poor people. So who cares? And then January 6th happens and suddenly four insurrectionists were held inside the D.C. jail for white insurrectionists who were at the very least, well, let's just say they may have been, they, they fancied themselves upper middle class. They thought, they identified with the upper middle class. They were probably broke, but they were white and they had a sense of entitlement. And uh, suddenly when we have 40 white people being locked up in the D.C. jail, they get visits from members of Congress like Matt Gates or Congresswoman uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who are shocked and appalled by the conditions that these, quote unquote, political prisoners were being kept in. See, they're insurrectionists. They're white. They're upper middle class. They're not black. They're political prisoners. And they were these the uh, Louis Gohmert. They were appalled by how these 40 white people were being held in a jail in Washington, D.C. They were being treated the same exact way Washington, D.C. treats all 1,500 inmates in that jail. Suddenly, there are hearings on Capitol Hill regarding the conditions of the D.C. jail because 40 white people are being held there. And the, the insane Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene went to visit the January 6th defendants repeatedly, and she said that the jail looked like a prisoner of war camp. Well, you know what? Uh, prisoner of war camps are monitored by the Red Cross. Uh, our prisons are not. I have a feeling it's a lot worse than a prisoner of war camp. And she vowed to introduce a bill advocating for prison reform because white people are getting locked up. And then suddenly the DC jail, we've all known about the subhuman conditions of the DC jail for decades, but suddenly, because 40 white insurrectionists are in there, surprise inspections of the DC jail by US marshals. And then a federal judge two months ago holds the jail and the people who run it in contempt of court for maltreatment of the prisoners. Suddenly, the prisoners have human rights because they're white. And the same judge, the same ju judge calls on the Justice Department to launch an investigation into conditions inside the DC jail. And he questioned the constitutionality of what is called extreme confinement. It's not quite solitary confinement, but when you have 1,500 inmates squeezed into the DC jail, they do something called extreme confinement, which is kind of like solitary confinement. And then suddenly the US Marshals, they announce that we've used the DC jail for decades and uh, we, we're no longer gonna use it. It's unlivable. And starting last month, they're emptying out the D.C. jail. Federal prisoners are being taken out of the D.C. jail and transferred to Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. The, 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 the Washington, D.C., the uh, insurrectionists, uh, they're staying in, in, in the jail. But uh, a lot of federal prisoners are being taken to Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. Like, that's any better. 
All it took was 40 white insurrectionists to show up to a Washington, D.C. jail, and all of a sudden, our federal government gets interested in the conditions of our prisons because we are shocked. We are shocked that white people are treated this way. Now, here's my proposal on all this. The ruling class will never address class issues. The ruling elite instead embraces diversity because that's a form of divide and conquer. And they can't wait to cherry pick a black person, a Mexican person, a woman, a member of the LGBTQ. And they cherry pick them and they come on into the ruling class and, and run our corporation and be a pig like we are. And then we can celebrate our, our diversity. And that's instead of focusing on class issues and bringing up the 99%, they focus on diversity and they can't wait to count the, the groups they have represented in their corporation. Ruling elite loves counting, like how many black people do we have here? How many gay people? And, you know, we've got to have diversity. But when it comes to our prisons, for some reason, the ruling elite is not interested in diversity. I am. I'm all for diversity when it comes to our prisons. Uh, and I'm for diversity in corporate America. I, I believe in diversity. I believe in class struggle and diversity. I believe in diversity in our prisons. Now, a lot of people think I'm just some, you know, some knee-jerk, a bleeding heart liberal. I'm not a bleeding heart liberal. I'm an Old Testament lefty. I believe in justice. And uh, I'm good with 2.5 million Americans behind bars. That makes sense to me. Seriously, there are bad people in this country, really bad, bad people. You're, you're listening to one. There are really bad, evil people. So out of 360 million Americans, 2.5 million Americans behind bars seems a little low, if you ask me, because I'm an Old Testament lefty. I want justice. I want retribution. I believe in locking people up because I'm an Old Testament, eye for an eye, lefty. There are bad people. Lock them up. The question isn't, uh, the question shouldn't be asked like, you know, why compared to the rest of the world uh, does America have so many prisoners? The question is, why does the rest of the world have so few? You need to start locking up your people. We need more people behind bars. And I mean that I'm just calling for diversity. I mean it. Lock them up. But diversity, we need to start treating Rikers Island and keep it the way it is. Don't fix it. Treat Rikers Island the same way you treat an elite private college. I just want diversity at Rikers Island. I want Rikers Island to reflect my America. That's all I'm asking for. Keep, keep the budget exactly where it is. They're short one third they're down one third of their prison guards. The hell with it. Uh, solitary confinement, rats, drugs. I just want diversity there. I want it to look like Harvard. I want prison 
especially Rikers Island, to be primarily white. And because there's a diversity problem at Rikers Island, like Harvard, I want some kind of affirmative action program for the very rich because Rikers, it's very hard for rich people to get into Rikers. And that's not fair. It's really hard for rich people, the children of rich people, to get into Rikers Island. They are underrepresented. Rich people, white, rich white people are underrepresented at Rikers Island. And we need recruiters. We need to find recruiters. And by that, I mean Justice Department officials scouring corporate suites looking to lock up as many rich people as we possibly can, preferably white men. Because when you're in prison, this is important for there to be diversity at Rikers because it affects future generations. Prison is where you make your connections. And that's where you meet the people you'll be doing business for the, with for the rest of the li your life when you get outside. Uh, right now, most of the connections being made in prison are, you know, MS-13, uh, the Aryan Circle, the Bloods, the Crips. That's it, that's an old it's an old boys club. We got to get rid of that uh, because once these men get out of prison, they just use their old school connections, and and it's hard to get into MS-13 if you weren't in prison, and it, it, it's very exclusionary. This is why we need diversity in our prisons, so Goldman Sachs can be represented, and, and, and uh, people from Humana uh, can be in there. Mix it up. That's what America's all about, diversity. It's, it's very unfortunate right now that uh, crime, people learn most of their crime skills in prison. It's a training ground, and because it's so exclusive and there's no diversity, crime is concentrated into the hands of the very few because it's natural for people to want to deal with people they know, right? The Simpsons is mostly Harvard writers, because it's who they know, who they where, where they learned their crime from. So mix it up, diversity, more accountants at, at Rikers, more lawyers from Harvard, stockbrokers, money managers, real estate moguls, real estate developers. It's just not fair to keep these criminals out of prison. So I'm all for quotas, kind of like Harvard. We should bend over backwards to make sure that there's diversity in our prisons. I want our prison population to look like Harvard, but with fewer legacy admissions. I'm against legacy admissions. I'm not keen on legacy admissions into prison. I think you need to earn your way into Harvard, and I think you should earn your way into a prison. Too many Americans uh, are behind bars right now. They're legacy admissions. They had parents who were in prison before them. So they, you know, it's easier for them to get into a prison. They just know they're, they just know the way in. So no legacy admissions. We should make an exception. If your parents were behind bars, you shouldn't be allowed in. In other words, if your parents got into a prison, a good prison like Rikers, it should be next to impossible for Rikers to accept you. We don't have diversity in Rikers Island.
we don't have diversity in Pelican Bay out on the West Coast. That's what I'm calling for. That's my criminal justice reform that I want. Diversity and more people behind bars. Diversity. For example, October 1st of this year in Huntington Beach, California, 25,000 gallons of crude oil dumped into the ocean. Hundreds, thousands of animals found dead. California Governor Gavin Newsom had to declare a state of emergency and businesses at Huntington Beach lost money because nobody could visit the beaches because they had to be closed. And we're talking about 25,000 gallons of crude oil that was undetected for half a day. So that got dumped, it dispersed. It's incalculable damage to ocean wildlife that will persist for decades. We're talking about crude oil. And three companies are responsible for the leak that took 12 hours to be detected because they didn't have the right machinery to detect a leak. And of course, the workers were overpaid and they were understaffed. So they destroyed the beach. And the Justice Department, thank God we have a Justice Department, they stepped in and they are going to prosecute Amplify Energy Corporation. They're responsible for this leak. They have two wholly owned subsidiaries, Beta and San Pedro Bay Pipeline. Well, anyway, Amplify and the two subsidiaries were indicted by the Justice Department this week. And Amplify is facing, this is the Justice Department, they they are angry. Merrick Garland, our Attorney General, is furious, furious. And the, the, this Amplify, which is responsible for 25,000 gallons of crude oil going into the Bay, they now face a misdemeanor count of negligent discharge of oil. Well, that's a, a pretty stern warning to oil industry executives. Clean up your act or you face a misdemeanor count of negligent discharge of oil. No prison. The maximum sentence is five years of probation. What, what does that mean? I'm not a lawyer. How does a corporation get put on probation? Corporations are people. So you, they, you, they're on probation. Uh, the people running the corporation are not. They don't arrest the corporation. They put a corporation on probation. I don't know what that means. And of course, the three companies, it's really just one, Amplify. Of course, the three companies now face fines that could be as high as several million dollars. But as we learned from the Exxon Valdez, that a $25 billion fine gets re reduced to half a billion after 20 years. They, they will, we know these fines will be challenged in appeals court and they will amount to nothing. And nobody, nobody from the oil company will end up going uh, to prison or going out of pocket. Nobody who runs this oil company is going to prison, like Exxon, nobody from Exxon went to prison. And even when they have to pay the fine, nobody is coughing up money. The shareholders are. Why do the shareholders allow this? Because they have no say. You think the shareholders, if they could vote, if they were if they were asked, don't you think they would want the fines being paid by the uh, the executives who are responsible 
for the spill. We have 2.5 million prisoners. Not enough. Not enough. And there's no room for the real violent criminals, the people who spill 25,000 gallons of crude oil and shut down business and kill thousands of marine life. You know, if this were South Korea, those oil executives would be facing decades in prison. And if it were Japan, those oil executives would have had the basic human decency to have committed suicide by now. If you're an oil executive or an oil executive's loved one who has thoughts of suicide, call this 800 number on the screen right now so we can show you how. No prison for oil executives who are killing the planet. But if you're a crack addict waving a screwdriver because you got caught shoplifting toothpaste, Rikers Island and certain death for you. Trust me on this. We do not need prison reform. We just need to change the complexion and the socioeconomic status of our prisoners. I want more people behind bars. I want less money spent on their food and their well-being. I want diversity. We need to change the complexion and the socioeconomic backgrounds of our prisoners. I'm fine with sadism behind bars because I'm an Old Testament lefty. You want the, uh, uh, the American prison system to no longer look like a scene for Midnight Express? Lock up the people who produced Midnight Express. Start locking up studio executives and suddenly prisons will take care of themselves. Suddenly there'll be enough food and medicine and the, no cockroaches or rats. Start locking up rich white people for the murders they kit. They, they commit. Corporations are people. I'm okay with that as long as they can be executed. If we can execute an inmate who strangled a child, why can't we execute the corporations that poison millions of American children? Why can't we execute Purdue Pharma? Or better yet, why can't we execute the entire Sackler family for killing 100,000 Americans last year with opiates? I can't think of a more perfect candidate for state-sanctioned lethal injection than every single member of the Sackler family that is responsible for 100,000 Americans dying last year from lethal injections of opiates. I get it. I understand that you think capital punishment is cruel. I get it. But let's not throw it away quite yet. Let's try it properly first. Let's try it properly first. Let's try state-sanctioned lethal injection of the Sackler family. I don't want to see them go to jail. I want lethal injection for the entire Sackler family. But they're not going to go to prison because they're doctors and we don't lock up doctors for murder, even though being a doctor is a license to commit murder. You know, we blame the insurance companies for all the medically uninsured in this country. We blame the insurance companies 
for people dying because they're not insured. Or we blame the pharmaceutical corporations for depriving parents of life-saving drugs for their children. And we often ask, I, of, I often ask, why do doctors allow themselves to get bullied by insurance and pharmaceutical companies? And the answer I've come to realize is because the insurance companies and the pharmaceutical companies are run by doctors. Pharmaceutical and health insurance companies are either run by a doctor or have a team of doctors working directly below their CEO. The head of Pfizer, Albert Berla, who's going to make something like $100 million this year, he is, he's a veterinarian. Same thing, probably better, better trained. And uh, working right underneath Albert Berla over at Pfizer is Dr. Doctor, real medical doctor, Scott Gottlieb, who was commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration under Donald Trump. Under Obama, the commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration was Dr. Robert Califf. And guess who's coming back? Dr. Robert Califf. The Biden administration has renominated Dr. Robert Califf to be the returning commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration. He did very well during his brief uh, time off. He was uh, Obama's uh, commissioner of the FDA, and then he left, and uh, I read his disclosures. $500,000 worth of stock in Amgen and uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb. These are pharmaceutical companies. Uh, $250,000 in Gilead Sciences, Inc., pharmaceutical biotech. One million in unvested stock options as a board director of Centessa Pharmaceuticals. $850,000 from stock options in Cytokinetics, Inc. That's a South San Francisco company that uh, developed some kind of therapy for muscles. $2.7 million in salary and $5 million in stock as the head of clinical policy and strategy of healthcare database management company, Verily. He did pretty well in the five years uh, off from the FDA, did pretty well. Now he's coming back to keep, to keep a laser-focused eye on the drug companies because what's in it for him, right? It's not like he's gonna cash out after the Biden administration and go back to work for any of these pharmaceutical companies. Senator Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders, has pointed out that nine of the last 10 commissioners of the Food and Drug Administration worked for the pharmaceutical industry before they became commissioner or left the Food and Drug Administration to go work for the pharmaceutical industry. Nine out of 10. All our drugs are approved by the drug industry because it's complicated. So we need doctors, we need people who understand the pharmaceutical industry to keep an eye on the pharmaceutical industry. And regular ordinary citizens like me can't be expected to understand how drugs work. And I say in a democracy, if you can't explain your drugs to a civilian, if you can't explain how safe it is to a civilian, if you can't explain the efficacy to a, an American civilian who's not a doctor or a member of the, uh, some pharmaceutical 
corporation, if you can't explain it, then you shouldn't be allowed to bring your drug to market. In order for us to survive this onslaught of financialization of basic human rights like healthcare and drugs, we need people who are American citizens who speak simply for us and for our government. That means no doctors, no lawyers. They don't speak simply on purpose. If you can't speak simply, you don't deserve to regulate. Accountants should not be making tax policy. You want simple laws, simple rules and regulations, then you have to forbid anybody who is an expert in the field that is being regulated, you have to forbid them from serving on the regulatory board or the commission or the committee that regulates them. The reason all lawyers suck, they're criminal, the reason all lawyers suck is because the Bar Association is run by lawyers. You cannot discipline lawyers if lawyers are doing the discipline. The reason having a medical degree is a license to commit murder is doctors are regulated by other doctors. This government needs to be run this country needs to be run by people who are essentially ordinary citizens. I would uh, prefer a stay-at-home dad or a stay-at-home mom to be chairman of the Federal Reserve. Now, I'm not saying the Federal Reserve should be run by an idiot. I hate idiots, which is why I think Jerome Powell should not be chairman of the Federal Reserve. He's an idiot and he's corrupt. He made like $5 million in trades in October of 2020 as chairman of the Federal Reserve. What is the chairman of the Federal Reserve doing? Trading stocks, $5 million worth of stocks before an election. If you can't explain to me how the Fed works, if you can't explain how the Fed works to someone who is just an ordinary American citizen, then it's time to get rid of the Fed. If you can't explain what the Fed is doing, then get rid of it. I don't want economists making economic policy because economists or tax lawyers or accountants, they all work for corporations and banks. So I don't want them dictating government policy when it comes to money because they all have the same grift going. They work in government briefly to do the bidding of their corporations and banks that they once worked for, and then they do their time in the government, and then they go back to work. They leave the government, they go back to work for the same banks and corporations they worked for previously. That's why you never hear about nationalizing corporations when they fail. And Going into 2022, the mission statement of this show is to get people talking about nationalizing corporations and utilities. Forget Marx, forget Adam Smith, forget Ricardo, forget changing our economic system. I'm talking about driving into the skid of capitalism.
and learning what market capitalization means. And that means when a, when a corporation needs a buy, buyout, a bailout, we buy it out. Learn what market capitalization is. We don't need violent revolution in the streets to change our economic system. We need the 99% to learn what market capitalization means. It means we could buy Pfizer for $350 billion, own it lock, stock and barrel. Or for $170 billion, we can own a majority share. So we dictate corporate policy to Pfizer. We don't need violent revolution in the streets. We just need the 99% to learn what market capitalization means. Because nobody, nobody in Washington is going to talk about utilities and nationalization. And that is the only thing we should be talking about in 2022. Even Trump talked about nationalization. It's the reason ordinary Americans have no say as to how the government responds when a corporation needs bailing out because nobody understands market capitalization. Someone who is just an American citizen, not an economist doing time in the government so he can double his salary when he returns to the private sector, someone who just cares about America would never have approved the bailouts of General Motors and Chrysler in 2009 or the banks in 2008. Ordinary Americans never would have approved of the toxic, toxic asset relief program, the close to $1 trillion that we pumped into the banks because we don't understand what market capitalization means. We gave a trillion dollars to five banks. The market capitalization of Bank of America today, I think it's something like $50 billion. We could buy Bank of America next time they fail and own it. The banks failed. America bailed them out. General Motors failed. America bailed it out. Chrysler, which I think was belonged to a private equity firm in France, we bailed it out. Our tax dollars saved these banksters. And for a moment, we owned a large part of the banks in 2009, but we weren't awarded voting stock. Obama didn't demand voting stock. So we just lent them close to a trillion dollars and they paid us back with some interest. We got all our money back from the toxic TARP, Toxic Asset Relief Program. We did, with interest. It's considered successful. But imagine if we had a president who said, no, you bankers crashed capitalism. You captured all the regulators. Uh, Hank Paulson was Secretary of the Treasury. He previously was from Goldman Sachs. Robert Rubin from Citigroup. Larry Summers from Harvard and the Bilderbergs. Uh, this time around, you want a trillion dollars? Uh, we're at the very least going to have 25% uh, of the bank. The American people are going to own 25% of voting shares in your bank. Not a, I, I'm even willing to accept uh, not a complete nationalization of a bank that goes under, but you want a bailout, we get 25%.
and, and we get to vote, the American government gets to vote on the decisions that this bank is going to make. 25%. That's not communism. That's uh, a, little, a little socialism. It seems fair. 25% of the major banks, when they go under, and they will, they're owned by the American government, which means we get to vote, we get dividends paid to us, we regulate the banks, and of course we get to vote on salaries for the CEOs, who are the only ones who really benefit, uh, the only people who benefit in corporate America are the CEOs. Again, not a complete nationalization of the banks, just enough to ensure that banks worry about what's good for us. We owned General Motors briefly, but then we returned ownership to General Motors. Why? We could buy General Motors right now for $56 billion. Right now, imagine what we could have gotten for General Motors 10 years ago when it was going bankrupt or 11 years ago. We could have owned General Motors. GM failed. And, and, and why did GM fail? Because of the financialization of every corner of our economy. Of our economy. GM failed because it became a bank. GM became a bank. It started lending out money. The same reason GE failed. It became a bank. They stopped making things. They just decided to lend out money. And that's why GM failed. And if you're too big to fail, then we should be your partner. But all the people making the decisions on the bailouts of these corporations are lawyers and MBAs. They're doing time in government looking for their next big payday for when they leave government. So they're not interested in what's good for America. They're interested in what's good for them. We gave Chrysler and GM $80 billion. We could have owned those corporations for $80 billion. That's not just a good investment for the American government. It's a good investment. And if people understood what a utility is like, or it's, it's a good investment for people looking for a safe investment. If, if, the, if the American government owned half of GM, wouldn't you buy stock in a company that is partly owned by the U.S. government? And yes, the government is going to show favoritism because it's good for America. They're going to have GM make the, the, uh, the trucks for the post office. Suck on it, Ford. Suck on it, Elon Musk and Tesla. We, ba we bailed out GM. And when we have to buy buses, we're going to have GM build them. A little ownership of a corporation is good for business. A little ownership is a safe investment. That's what a little nationalization would look like. It's good to have a few companies half owned by the government. It creates stability. It creates a baseline of security when it comes to jobs, investments, and safety. Last year, we bailed out the airlines. 10 major airlines got $50 billion in what were called grants. Now, had our government waited and just let the airlines tank, we could have purchased all 10 airlines at a, at, at a fire sale prices. For $50 billion, the government could have owned all 10 airlines. Now, that's not a good idea because we have 750,000 Americans working in the airline industry and we need to protect those jobs. And I believe in competition and I believe that corporations should compete with each other and should compete with government-owned businesses. 
So we should have nationalized some of the airlines. And what Trump did, and nobody talks about this, what Trump did is we bailed out the airlines and for the first time we got stock in the airlines that we we almost kept. It's very complicated. Uh, the, the the Trump administration said to the airlines, we're, we're, we're ish, we want warrants. We want like a stock option. And it's a start. The government uh, didn't hold on to the warrants until maturity. But we did. Our government temporarily had stock ownership in the airlines that we bailed out. But we we sold them off. And uh, but it's a beginning. It's a beginning. And we bailed out the airlines. They ended up firing 42,000 full-time employees, 14,000 part-time airline employees were fired, and airline travel after we bailed them out was turned into a nightmare with historically long delays. And of course, it costs us $1,000 for the right to ask for a pillow. Just to ask for a pillow, they charge you $1,000. That's how the banks thank us for the bailout. Imagine if instead of bailing them out, we had 25% of all the airlines, they'd be terrified of the passengers. So Trump was behind uh, a different type of bailout. And we need to learn about how to bail out airlines, auto companies, and banks, because that's going to be happening. There's another, this is a boom and bust economy. We, next time, we have to talk about owning stock in the corporations we bail out. That is how we change the economic system peacefully, by learning what market capitalization means and what it means to take a public good that's owned by a corporation and turn it into utility. Crisis is opportunity, and turning a corporation into a utility is good for everybody except the CEO. Nationalizing a corporation is good for everybody. The shareholders, the employees, America, the only person who suffers is the CEO. We're going to learn about utilities, nationalization, and market cap, and we're going to change our economic system peacefully without any bloodshed. It's going to be done peacefully. I don't know if Jose is here. I'm going to play our theme song, get some water, go put my fist through a wall. And when we come back, I hope we will be joined by my old friend, Jose Arroyo. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. And uh, my, my CPU is completely shot. So there's Jose. Let me play. Hi, Dave. Hi. Sorry to keep you waiting. Uh, not at all. Not at all. I was I'm mesmerized by by your stuff. You know so much, and and you're you're so passionate about it. I love it. Thank it, you. It's amazing what you can. You. It's amazing what you can do when you make shit up. We'll be right back. <laughs> you know, I was worried about like big pharma until I started taking relax at all, and uh, <laughs> I said, ask your doctor. Uh, no, it's. It's ridiculous. You know what I would like to nationalize is internet. Why don't we have 
do we have to go through Comcast or Spectrum? Would it be would it be a good idea to have a national internet? Am I out of line? Well, they they do. They a lot of municipalities have introduced free internet, and then yeah. they, and then AT and T and Google complain that they they can't compete. If the city, if the city, <laughs> if the city gives, right. well, gives maybe they could lower their prices. I don't know. Or yeah. have better service because internet better service serve. in America sucks. It does. We have the uh, yes, compared to yes. other countries have. Yes, yes. Korea, I said, if South Korea was very, very well connected, but it's a much smaller country as well. So, well, how are you otherwise, David? Let me inter let's sell some books because it's Christmas. Oh, please. Let's Christmas. sell some books here. Uh, somewhere in LA, this is an amazing book. A book you are very comfortable with plugs, and I appreciate that, David. Um, Stop talking about my hairline. <laughs> somewhere, somewhere in LA, a book of ours by Our. comedy writer Jose Arroyo, Emmy Award winning comedy writer, 25 years with Conan, and uh, <laughs> how many years? Not quite, but a good number. And it's um it's little scenes of things that are happening in Los Angeles one hour every day. So at five thirty-five AM, there's a picture of a father tossing a soccer ball onto his sleeping son's bed. And it says five thirty-five AM somewhere in LA, a soccer dad teaches his son how to hate soccer. <laughs> just, it's just true. It is true. It's is he into soccer? Your What's son that? is he. Your son is he. Is he into? Soccer? Oh yes, <laughs> uh, well, you know it's a rite of passage. I think I think out here I could be way off, but um, I grew up with little league baseball, and mm -hmm. um, and and my kids just grew up with soccer. It's a different a different thing. Yeah, but uh, I remember because I, I was when I was in little league. My parents are Spanish. They were immigrants. They had no idea what baseball was. And I asked for a fielder's glove. And my mother found a glove that literally was the size of my hand. So it was minuscule. It had no web and stuff. She basically got me like a leather gardening glove. And I was <laughs> humiliated. <laughs> and I was the kid with the tiny gloves. So. I had white figure skates. I played hockey with my friends and I had to That's wear great. my my sister's white figure skates and kids uh, can be very cruel. They, they can, <laughs> exactly, I, I exactly. Beaten up for playing hockey in white figure skates. So Until let's talk you about how those bullies up and twirl them around. Let, Sorry. Let's sell this book somewhere in LA. Here's oh, my, no. It, here's my promise. You buy this okay. book. How do people buy it? <laughs> Where do they go? Uh, unfortunately, the only the only place to go is to uh, make a pact with. Uh, the, the, I know you don't like this this man, uh, but uh, it's on Amazon. It's on Amazon. So how do you how do you get to Amazon? You you throw a goat head at a pentagram? Or, <laughs> oh no, you go on. <laughs> you hate him. I know. All right. Uh, special yeah, dispensation. It's on Amazon. It's under somewhere in L.A. Jose Arroyo. I'm making a special dispensation. You still get into Feldman heaven if you go to Amazon <laughs> and purchase somewhere in L.A. a book of hours by Jose Arroyo. And if this book does not bring a lighter step to your gate, I will pay you back. You can keep the book and I will refund the cost of the book 
if it doesn't make you happy. What is this? This is another panel. This is 9.13 p.m. It shows people behind a stage raising their hands while a man on stage is showboating. And it just says 9.13 p.m. Somewhere in L.A., an improv troupe decides that Justin has to go. <laughs> but show Justin. You got to show Justin. <laughs> show, showboating. And the funny thing is I drew him on purpose like entertaining the audience. The audience is entertained by Justin, but he's not being true to improv, man. That's a very, they take the improv very seriously here. And and you can't play it for laughs. It's uh, you've, got, you've got to play the game. You've got to play for, yes. You have to take it very How did you seriously. come up with the ideas? How did you, now I would think being a comedy writer for television, this is, this could be, but it wouldn't work as, say, a piece on a talk show. Oh, as a desk piece? As a desk piece, it, 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 because it's too beautiful. Oh, that's very sweet. I think, I think the, I mean, we just did some of the sort of funnier ones uh, for your show, but there are some more thoughtful ones or thought-provoking uh, panels. Right. And so for that reason, I don't think you want on a, on a talk show, you just want to get to the laugh as soon as possible. And this sort of unfolds a, a bit and, and wanders a little more, which is the luxury of self-publishing and creating something that you, that sort of appeals to you or is the way you want it. Now, working in committee, which you yes. are very good at, this you get to decide what stays and what goes. Yes, exactly, how exactly. And, but you, I did. How dependent are you on other people's ideas in determining whether or not something is funny? Like what? For what I'd be curious is: is there a, a cartoon in here that people advised you against, but you decided you're doing it anyway? No, but there used to be. There was a man who was holding up a mirror to his teeth, and it was like somewhere in L.A. A sound engineer gets his teeth capped or something. And I was trying to make an observation that even people behind the camera want to look camera ready. And a person said, that's kind of a, it's kind of just sits there. It's kind of um, a little straightforward. So, so I, I replaced that one with one where an editor is seething because the suggestion she made four hours ago, suddenly when the director says it, then it's then it's fair and she can make the, the editing change. But uh, the, I felt that was more. And I got feedback from actual editors saying that happens to me all the time. I suggest an edit in the editing room. And until the director comes up with it on their own, it's you know, I have to keep it up. So working yeah. with groups of people to determine what is funny. I'm not talking about your job. The idea that a group of 12 people sitting around a table. And I'm not talking about any jobs you had. The idea that, <laughs> that 12 people can vote on what is funny, that's impossible, right? And you and I worked on a show where, yes. where we voted. Do you remember that? Of don't course. Mention the show, would... Don't mention the show. But there was a, a, the, we had an absentee boss who just yes. said, let the writers vote. And the jokes got passed around and we all voted. Do you remember that? I do. And in fact, you would read them out loud. The mono jokes, you, it was, 
you had the radio voice. And so you got up front and you read all the jokes and, um, and one time you read a joke that was, that was not very funny. And, um, and, but you stumbled in the reading of it and people were joking, were laughing at your stumbling of the reading, but you said, I think I read that joke more times than the writer did. Or something like that. <laughs> I was cold, I was cold reading jokes. I, I had a cold read yes. jokes, and I and the joke, people got upset that I fumbled through, and I said, "Hey, look, I think I, I I've read that more times than the person who read it." But <laughs> who wrote, wrote it? it? Who wrote it? Um, yes, I yes, know. yes. Uh, what but did it's, you learn? What did you of learn? Of course, there's no. What did you learn going through five hundred monologue jokes? What did you learn? I learned something. Did you? I, I felt like um, the quality doesn't always look the same. Uh, it depends on what came before it, what comes after it. There are some stock cliche swings that we, we all do when we're trying to come up with uh, jokes. And I, after a while, if you're a seasoned comedy writer, you go dismiss that. I, that's too down the middle, too on the nose. So we would... I think one of the things that happened when we were working together was just for the room, we would try to be purposely outrageous just to get a rise out of uh, and shake the dust off us because listening to 500 jokes is tiring. It sounds like fun, but it's not, it's, it's and, 500 and you jokes. Need, and you're looking for 11. And you're looking for 11. Exactly. Exactly. 500. So what does that tell yes. you about, TV. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, it just feels like um, you have it's well, what would you say about it? Sorry. Well, I, I walked away from that experience thinking out of 500 jokes, I could if if I had to, I could find a hundred or 150 uh, that were either perfect or could be fixed. Or could be fixed. Yes, yes, yes. So you're saying that there's a lot of wastage in going through that many number of jokes. That, but it, well, yeah, it, I there, mean, it, there's almost a, a com nobody yeah. special is what what I realized. Right. That 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 there are some people who can, like you can get to a joke much quicker and it's very elegant. But if you're mass producing jokes. Uh, you can find, <laughs> find twelve good ones if you have enough you find enough monkey. Which is which is why I yeah. realized, oh my god, we need unions. This is just like oh. a, I walked away from that experience thinking I've I've always been grateful for unions. I never quite understood the Writers Guild. Now I see that pretty much anybody can do what I do. I need a union uh, to protect me. Uh, you, you, you're, you're being too modest. No, you're no, being that's too modest. The, I'm being serious. That was the great lesson. I, I know you are. I know you are, but I'm, I'm also serious in saying that I think you're underplaying uh, your years of experience in doing stand-up and coming up with a joke and so on. But in terms I, I, of Now, I do agree with you that it is a teachable skill. It's a craft. It's right. not, uh, you're not born. Some people are born funny or whatever, uh, you know, the class clown, but they don't tend to become comedy writers. I don't, I don't believe. Uh, Did you know you were going to be a comedy writer? 
I started wanting to be a doctor and then I failed out of um, the med, the pre-med program in undergrad. And uh, the university said, maybe you need to take a, like a one semester leave of absence to figure out what you want to do. And I remember saying, Oh, that's not necessary. And they said, no, you need to take a leave of absence to figure out what you want to do. I thought it was a choice. You would have been a great doctor. I don't know. I, there's, there's a a kind of a, a, a kind of a, a feeling that I want to get a rise or get a jolt like with, with humor and stuff. And not that I would be insensitive necessarily, but I would, I would miss that part of, of comedy writing of that instant response and so on. But uh, going back to being a doctor, okay. if you were, if you were a doctor now, you could not pass organic chemistry right now. Like you've been practicing medicine for 30 years or whatever. And, and if I said to you, okay, you, you got to go back to a class and teach organic chemistry, you would fail it because you, you're like an auto mechanic now. This is a, you can now fix an engine without yes. really understanding how big tech makes it work right all the component all the computer things in the back you can read a diagnostic monitor for your car right and and then the car the diagnostic monitor recommends the fix and so you're kind of the middleman right. i i think i'm playing doctors what, by the way by medical doing. school is it's teaching you how to fix the diagnostic monitor that comes when in fact all you really that's what organic chemistry is fixing the diagnostic monitor but you're never going to have to fix the diagnostic that somebody <laughs> from Honeywell comes in and fixes that you right. have to be able to read the number and this is what I said to the medical school just give me the medical degree I'd be, I'd be a great doctor I, I don't need to know I, I, I would be great to come into a room yeah. we lost him we lost him I did everything I could we lost him and I, I do the hugs. I'm so sorry. I, that I'd be that's, good at that. That's you know you're actually bring up. I have a you know last time I was here, you were asking me to show some New Yorker cartoon submissions that didn't go right. And you said something that just reminded me of one. And it's a doctor looking at a patient. Uh, the patient's on the exam table. He's in his underwear and a tank top. And the doctor's looking at his clipboard and he's saying. Nothing here tells me where your pants went. <laughs> like we we just can't find him. We don't know where your pants. Right. Are. Yeah. So they rejected that. <laughs> they did. They did. They. Yep. <laughs> would you like to see some more? I, I, they rejected. Nothing makes me happier than your rejection. After okay, your here's my here's my next rejection. My next rejection shows death at a. Uh, psychiatrist's couch and he's saying to the psychiatrist uh well it's the grim reaper lying the on grim the reaper and he's saying this won't be a full session for reasons that will become apparent <laughs> <laughs> that's he's going to kill the psychotherapist that's that's, that's the great, joke you should we have dr philip hershenfeld coming up at seven he's a freudian psychoanalyst oh we have to i love doctor that's so uh, funny here's that's so one funny. that i thought was going to go in it's a father and a son gazing up at the stars yes and the son the father is saying 
there's a lot out there that we still can't mansplain. <laughs> that's <laughs> amazing. That shot. That's amazing. Uh, this one, I think, is more a social commentary than a belly laugh, but it's just a guy approaching a woman who's clearly reading on a park bench, and he's coming up to her and saying, sorry to bother you, but I wanted to talk to you. Like, just the privilege of interrupting someone. Right. That was, uh, I, uh, on that, that's, uh, I, I mean, that I one, you, do, you side with the New Yorker on that one. I, I get it. I do what you um, do, but that, you know. That's here's a here's a devil at a cocktail party. Right. Satan is at a cocktail party. He's telling a guy, oh, I'm an influencer. <laughs> I'm an influencer. That's perfect. That is absolutely. I don't know. I should I, have, I maybe I should have watercolored the the goat legs red or brown or something, just something to pop it. But uh, surprised that that one didn't go. And then uh, I think that's. I think we. No, no. One more. These are like seen. we. I, the, I could sit here all day looking at this is your so, major recap. Okay, this is this appeals to everything because I'm jealous that you have this genius, but oh man, but but that there's failure involved. I find it's <laughs> it's, it's hitting all the buttons. Isn't it's it? on my buttons. So. Oh, but this is exactly what would happen to five hundred jokes boiled down to eleven. We threw gold away. Not saying I'm not comparing myself, but we threw adequate, perfectly suitable jokes to the wayside to find those magic eleven, uh, and and we did it all the time. So here's one. It's a it's a handsaw, like one of those carpenter handsaw. He's very bitter, and he's in front of a bartender. And he's just saying, I saw things I can't unsaw. <laughs> it's just uh, so punny. Maybe the pun aspect of it was, you know, I don't know. This, this, this makes me so happy because it's genius. I'm jealous. Thank you. And it's, I'm jealous. You're jealous? But I have I'm an air of superiority because it was rejected by the New Yorker. But then it reaffirms yes, exactly. everything I think about the New Yorker. I mean, like everything. It's just so, it's perfect. It's just, it, it's, it, this makes me so happy in every way. How many? <laughs> well, I'm also showing you the, the ones I thought were, fun, uh, you know, that's the cream of the crap, as they say. <laughs> the cream they're, of the crap. <laughs> there's worse ones that I'm not going to show. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, two thoughts I have. If you, I love the idea of you coming on and showing us the cartoons that didn't make it. I, that's one thing. I, and then my mind is, well, we could do our own New Yorker competition. There. Were, were you, Matt, Matt Diffie has published books called The Rejection Collection, and he casts a big net and he asks pro. New Yorker cartoonists for their most tasteless or their, the ones that they just were flat out rejected. And he puts them into a book. It's, it's a great book. So well, well, there's a plug for the, the New Yorker has a competition at the end where they just show the drawing and you have to catch. Oh yes. The caption contest. Yes. This is amazing. I have two, you know, two ideas. One is you draw the picture and then my chat room has to caption it. We do it. <laughs> and, uh, and then the other thing, I love it. the other thing I thought, if if there's a charity, this is very presumptuous on my part, but if there's a charity that you want to raise money for, I I would buy your cartoons, the re, the rejected. If you're willing to part 
with how hard is it for you to part with them? Oh, uh, it depends. For a charity, I would part with them. I bet. So, so no, no, no problem there. Why don't Why don't you come back next week? And if you have a a, a cartoon that you want to part with, uh, we could raise money for St. Jude's or, or some uh, an organization that uh, sounds sounds good to me. I, I would love to contribute in that way. Yeah. I, I'm I, I wrote a song for you. Can I, can I just, can I play my song? Yes. Or do you want to wait for next week? Let's do it next week. Is it time sensitive? No. Will you come back? It's not time week? sensitive at all. I'll, I'll come back. I'm not sure about next week because my daughter is coming into town and, uh, but soon I don't want to do a mislead anyone. Sell books. But, uh, sell books. Let's sell more books. So somewhere in LA, your, a book daughter, of your daughter is a baby. Yes, it was a baby when you, when I were working together, but, uh, what did but she go uh, I don't know do? what happened. What did she do? <laughs> Time caught up with it. Here's, uh, well, let's, let's do one more comic. This is 3.29 a.m. Somewhere in L.A., a waitress inches out of the bed of one of the stars of The Expendables. It's just... <laughs> Just creepy. She's got a toe out. Uh-huh. Don't know what star that is, but it's an older actor because that was what the Expendables was. And uh-huh. by the way, these cartoons, that was the only one that got sort of affected by um, the delay, the, the COVID delay and stuff. So, but thank you for letting me, uh, here's, here's for letting me cut up on, on your show, David. Thank you again. Here's the thing. We want Jose to come back. He doesn't want to do this show. He's a busy man. He's got better things to do than my show. I'm looking for work. Let's make it worth his while. I'll give you special dispensation at the Church of Feldman. Go to Amazon. Oh, I can't. Go to go to Amazon and buy somewhere in L.A. a book of hours by Jose Arroyo. I promise you, if this doesn't add a lighter step to your gate, I will reimburse you. There. Oh, that's very sweet of you. Okay. Thank you, Jose. Be well. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mute myself and just stick around and listen, if that's okay. Uh, sure. Let me turn your video off. Joining us is Professor Ben Burgess. He is the host of Give Them an Argument. A, I'm going to say a wildly popular podcast. You do, It's a very popular podcast. He is a columnist for Jacobin. He is author of Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, and he has a new book about Christopher Hitchens. What is the name of your new book? Uh, the new book is called Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. So last was it, well, last week you were afraid to show up. You chickened out. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. I, I actually, I was so afraid of it that I, I left the state uh, just so I'd have a paper trail showing that I was on a plane when the show was supposed to happen. Like I was, I was that concerned about it. I mean, how many brothers do you have that are all getting married in one year? I don't know, but you, you, you're running out of excuses. Uh, last yeah. time you were on the show, we were talking about, yeah. we were talking about George Orwell and mm-hmm how his politics changed after the the Spanish Revolution and that he mm-hmm. went from a 
what would you say, a, a socialist? Was he a full-blown Marxist? Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I would, I should say that I don't think that, you know, his experiences in Spain and the Civil War, I mean, I think they definitely influenced, you know, how he wrote about the, the Soviet Union. And I think that in the long run, um, you know, that changed him politically. Although, you know, he wrote this essay called Why I Write very shortly before he, he died, right, where he said uh, that everything he'd written since 1936, that'd be, you know, his time in Spain, uh, you know, was uh, written against totalitarianism and, in, you know, the service of democratic socialism, as I understand it. That's the quote. So so he was certainly still, you know, very much a socialist at the time he died. He was still a supporter of the labor government, you know, of Clement Attlee that was doing things like nationalizing the coal mines and creating the National Health Service. Um, you know, I do think it's fair to say that, you know, he had been a more radical socialist earlier, uh, you know, earlier in his life, certainly as a matter of degree. Like if you read his book, uh, Homage to Catalonia, which is uh, which is where he, he talks about his experiences in Spain, you know, that's like a f- pretty you know, fire breathingly, you know, radical, you know, kind of, kind of, kind of book. Uh, I, I think that, you know, I, I think that he definitely thought like, even, even apart from the, the Soviet issue, I mean, I think he definitely thought that like, it was really important that fascism be beaten in world war two, you know, and, and so he was willing to support the British government in that effort. And, and, you know, so probably you could even trace him, you know, being a little bit more moderate back to then. Right. So what I'd like to do in our limited time that we have, I want to talk about your latest piece in Jacobin entitled Hate Petty Bureaucracy, Become a Socialist. I love this Mm -hmm. piece because I don't even want to get into it quite yet, but it's great. But let's talk about Christopher Hitchens because you too, in your book, you talk about his transformation. He went Mm -hmm. from being what a a socialist to yeah yeah for sure so uh so i mean i think he would have described himself as being some kind of socialist for um you know the first 30 years of his like 40-year career uh like i'm you know there's a debate that he did in uh 1997 on the death penalty um actually going watching it on, on my YouTube channel tonight uh, where he and Jesse Jackson were arguing about the death penalty, you know, with a couple of conservatives from the national review and, uh, and in, in there, you know, like he, he says some very, you know, like he, he sort of casually mentions at the beginning, you know, the idea of the goal of his politics is being a classless society. He says that talking about the death penalty, he says that they, uh, you know, he, you know, those of us on this side, right, you know, question not only the, you know, this sort of system of human sacrifice, but a system that demands such sacrifices. Uh, so so he was definitely still calling himself a socialist uh, then. Uh, and, you know, but I, I think it's fair to say that even though he was still, you know, putting up a good front over, you know, over the course of the 90s and probably especially the late 90s, you know, he, he still, um, you know, I mean, he still had, you know, most of the political instincts that he'd always had. But I think it's fair to say that uh, that his his belief that some sort of socialist future was, you know, was possible was was wearing a lot thinner. 
right? You know, he, he actually uh, says in his his memoir, H-42, that, you know, there, there got to be a point where, um, you know, every time, you know, so every time he was on C-SPAN, you know, Brian Lamb would ask him if he was still a socialist. And he said, uh, you know, he says in his memoir that, like, you know, there got to be a point where he thinks in retrospect, you know, the only reason he can still kept saying yes is that he didn't want to give Lamb the satisfaction of, uh, of saying, you know, saying no, you okay, know, and, so and also, connection? So, also, also, he didn't want to call himself a liberal because he really disliked American liberals. What What is the connection between his conversion away from mm-hmm. socialism to his, let me say, race? Uh, Islamophobia? Is, would you say? That yeah, I mean, I, mean I, I think Islamophobia is probably fair. I think that, uh, you know, I, I think that the idea that Islamophobia was like the primary motivation for, you know, his terrible foreign policy positions that he took in the last 10 years of his life, uh, I, I don't quite buy for reasons we can get into in a second, but I, but I do think that Islamophobia was definitely in the mix in the sense that, uh, it's definitely true that after 9-11, you know, this is very far from unique to him. There's plenty of this to go around. But after 9-11, I think he wildly overestimated the realistic threat that Al-Qaeda-style terrorism could possibly put you to pose to, uh, you know, to Western societies. You know, right? Like the, I mean, this is the really absurd thing about the Bush years that, like, you know, like a handful of, of, uh, of zealots, you know, like, you know, hiding out in caves or, you know, or, or, you know, in uh, uh, what suspiciously looked like house arrest in Pakistan in some cases, like, you know, tried to bomb an air, you know, a, uh, an airplane or a nightclub once every six years, you know, was kind of elevated to this, this civilizational thing, like that was compared to the cold war and all this stuff. And it's all kind of ridiculous, but so I think that was part of it, but the reason I, I want to resist saying that it was the whole thing or it was the primary thing are, are basically two things. One, um, he had, I think, a really key part of that transition was the wars of the former Yugoslavia in the 90s, because I think that's really the first time you see him, like, warming to the idea that, like, American military power could be a force for good in the Milosevic world. Was, and, Milosevic was committing genocide against Muslims, it wasn't the other yeah thing. right exactly. I mean, this is a so, why would you know, he... so this is the first the first American intervention he supported. It's not an intervention where the U.S. is bombing Muslims. It's an intervention where the U.S. is intervening on behalf of Bosnia Muslims so against why Serbian the Christians. Islamophobia. What, what? This is. Let me ask you a so, question about so, this. Yeah, sure. So, uh, so I mean, I, I was just going to say right. Like, and then the other thing too is like with with his very worst position, right? Like, I you know, I guess. I think Afghanistan and Iraq are about equally bad, but I think like I think the excuses for Iraq were so much worse that you could call that the worst position. Uh, that his very worst position on Iraq uh, in the uh, 2000s, a lot of that came from having spent time in the 90s with Iraqi Kurds. You know, he'd, he'd opposed the first Gulf War. There's, there's a wonderful clip you can still find on YouTube. We played on TMBS once of, of him like shredding Charlton Heston, you know, on uh, – you know, in a C-SPAN thing on the first Gulf War. Uh, but, 
you know, he, he challenges Heston to tell him what the countries near Iraq are, you know, the, and, and there's like, oh, you want to bomb it? You don't even know where it is, you know. Uh, but in uh, but after that, right, after the first Gulf War, he spent some time in that Kurdish enclave in northern Iraq. And, uh, and you know, a lot of those Iraqi Kurdish leaders, you know, of course, wanted U.S. intervention, you know, because they thought they would, they would benefit from it. And some of those people were, you know, 60s radicals like he was who could speak his language. Uh, and, and could be very convincing. And like, even in like the later years, and again, this is why I don't want to exaggerate the Islamophobia. Uh, you see him, you know, like you see him wearing this little flag pen. That's not, it's not stars and stripes. It's not even the union Jack. It's uh, it's the flag of Kurdistan, which of course is a predominantly Muslim, you know, nation. Uh, so, so again, I, I do think that he had an ex- like an exaggerated kind of hysterical view of the dangers posed by, you know, Al-Qaeda style terrorism, you know, so to that extent, I'm comfortable saying, yeah, there's Islamophobia going on there. But I don't think that was the primary thing. I think the primary thing ties into what you asked about a minute ago, which is the sort of decline of his belief in socialism. Because, I mean, my, like, you know, three or four sentence take on on the what happened question would be that presumably as a young socialist, he started out, you know, he became more moderate as the decades went by. But I mean, he started out as a very radical socialist. The first book with his name on the cover is a collection of essays by Marx and Engels on the Paris Commune that was published on the 100 year anniversary in 1971. He wrote the introduction. And and I think there was still, you know, I think there was still quite a bit of that in his political bloodstream, you know, later. Uh, and I think that, you know, when he spent so much of his time as a journalist over those decades visiting countries like Iraq and meeting distance there and, you know, kind of seeing what conditions were like, I think he, on some level, held out hope that, you know, at some point in the future, these regimes you know, that were so oppressive would be swept away by, you know, future socialist revolutions. Uh, and I think as the as the plausibility of that started to feel thinner and thinner and thinner in the 90s, I think you know, he thought, okay, well, if, if socialism, as he ultimately concluded, is really off the table, right? It's, it's you know, this, this, these big conflicts about, you know, how to organize systems that define the 20th century, you know, Nixon and Khrushchev around the kitchen table or whatever, that, that's done. And, you know, capital, you know, like this kind of liberal capitalism one, like, you know, the end of history thing uh, in the 90s. So given that, well, he at least held out hope for some kind of democratic revolution to sweep away those regimes. And fair enough. So far I can sympathize with this whole like chain of reasoning, but I think where it goes really badly off the rails is that lacking any other convincing sort of source of democratic change, he managed to convince himself that, you know, the United States, like the, you know, 82nd airborne could, you know, spread democratic revolution to these countries. And I think, I think that, we've just decisively seen is just at best a tragic mistake. I mean, like the United States spent 20 years uh, in Afghanistan, um, you know, try, you know, like pouring money into, you know, in, into a client government and, you know, and, and doing house to house raids and, you know, and, and, you know, droning, you know, wedding parties, you know, and, and all of that stuff. And the effect of that after 20 years was, was a government that literally couldn't last a day, without U.S. support, which I think really shows that. I mean, it's obviously, you know, the Taliban is, is awful and disgusting, but I think that I think that real lasting change in the right direction of a society like that has to come from inside or it's just not going to stick. Okay, so that my audience who isn't that familiar with Christopher Hitchens hmm. and they should buy 
Christopher Hitchens, what he got right, how he went wrong, and why he still matters. What year did he die? Uh, he died in 2011, so uh, 10 years ago from Tuesday was the 10-year anniversary. Okay. When you look at a conversion, what kind of conversion did he have in terms of his beliefs? What did he believe when I met him in the 90s? And then by the time mm -hmm. he died, what what changed? For example, yeah. did, he I mean, vote, did he vote for Bush in 2004? Well, he, was uh, he an American yeah, citizen? Yeah, I, I think... So, so 2004, I think he did. I think in 2000, he voted for your friend Ralph Nader. Right. Um, in fact, I, in fact, he definitely did. He wrote about it extensively in uh, in the Nation, uh, and you know, in like, you know, and he was very like militantly, you know, opposed to you know, you know, like the lesser evil stuff, which makes sense because he had spent like the last several years you know, lambasting the many evils of the Clinton administration, you know, his book, no one left to lie to was full right. of like really good sort of well-written kind of savagely left-wing critiques of the Clinton administration for over things like welfare reform and the sort of, um, you know, farce of like the healthcare yeah, so stuff. By and the, the time, uh, by 2006. Yeah, yeah by 2006, you... things had changed very much. And I think the reason why, uh, you know, 2004, that changed very much, right? I think the I think the reason why is what we've been, been talking about, right? I mean, this, this sort of view, you know, I, th I think he'd always been somebody as good as he is on stuff like healthcare and welfare reform when he talks about them, right, in the 90s. Um, I think his main focus had always been on foreign policy, which, you know, which in you know, in the eighties, you know, certainly was all good stuff. Uh, you know, you could, you could see, you know, that like when the Reagan administration was back in, you know, death squads in Central America and, um, you know, and, and, you know, selling arms, you know, to the Mullahs in Iran, you know, to fund the Contras and, uh, and all of that. Right. You know, he, he was, that's, that's the kind of thing he was, he was focused on. Uh, but I think that that meant that when he, you know, when he did start to see, right, like I think that over that when the 90s with the Bosnia case, you know, like he, he started to his view of American military power had already started to shift. I think I think that whole decade, you know, when you met him, I think is kind of a, a transitional period in his politics. Um, and I'm not surprised by what you told me, you know, two weeks ago yeah, no, about, uh, of, you know, that. The, the sort of, of like hyper hyperbolic, you know, anti-religious comment he made to you in the green room, you know, that right. that's that that was already there. And I think that would come out a lot more in the uh, in the 2000s, you know. But I mean, I think he also did have this, you know, reaction to 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 September 11th, you know, where, where he said he felt like it was a conflict between everything he loved and everything he hated. That You know, he felt that the United States wasn't being attacked for the many bad things about the United States, which he could list off who's been attacked for the good things, the secularism, you know, quality for women and, you know, and all that stuff, which, you know, there's some truth to, but also like, you know, I remember arguing with people about this all the time in my early twenties, right after that, like also, you know, come on, like there is a reason why, you know, Al Qaeda attacks, you know, uh, the United States and not like the Netherlands, you know, which has all those things to, you know, probably an even greater extent than we do. So, are you saying he was Islamophobic? 
again, I think that you can, uh, I, I think that there was Islamophobia in the mix. I think that that's, I think that, you know, in the sense that I, that I mentioned earlier, right. I think you could definitely call that Islam, Islamophobic that like, that there's a sort of, you know, that there's a so sort of exaggerated, exaggerated fear of the risk of Islamic terrorism. I do not think that's the main thing that explains his transition, given that it started with Bosnia, given that his very worst foreign policy positions so were motivated you by you know his travels in Kurdistan. Are you guilty of forgiving him for being Islamophobic? Um, I don't know why. I'm, I mean, I'm I'm not a um, you know I'm not a priest. I'm, I'm not really in the business in of forgiving words, people or not forgiving them. I, I, I don't I don't really give a shit about like the quality of his soul. Uh, in terms of you know, when I, you I, look I, at a person, yeah. there are a couple of things, a couple of facets that are undeniable and unforgivable. Yeah. So, if he supported the war in Iraq, based on yeah. the idea what that we needed heads on sticks, he knew. Saddam Hussein. Well, no, that, that certainly that certainly wasn't his idea. I mean, that's that's what that's what like Michael Lind, right? You know, who by the way seems to have transformed himself into a resistance limb. But I think he's the guy who said the who said the heads on sticks thing. But uh, but no, I mean, I think that certainly wasn't Hitchens' motivation. I think well, what, I think how did his he motivation. Justify Iraq. He knew there were no weapons of mass destruction. He knew that by uh, Cheney and Bush lied. Mm. So how did he just how did he justify this? Well, I think he probably did convince himself that there were because it's you know what he needed to convince himself of to uh, to justify it. But I think that the but I I think his motivation you know wasn't really about that. I think his uh, I think his motivation was about this belief that the United States you know could could spread democratic revolution into these dictatorial you know regimes that he didn't see any ho- any other hope of. Uh, you know, for, so he's as uh, bad for, as Colin Powell. You've been on, you, were, you came on this. Well, show. I think I think his I think his motives are as bad as Col- I think his motives are very different from Colin Powell's. I mean, I think of course they all did. They all ended up at the same horrible place, you know. So again, if you're primarily interested in the sort of you know is he going to heaven or is he going to hell question, then sure, you know, I guess you could say it's just as bad. I think he's more interesting than Colin Powell to read about and write about and think about because I think I think somebody like Colin Powell it's very easy to understand what happened there you know Colin Powell spent his entire life as a creature of the the US military establishment that he was you know that that he was all for you know that he was an enthusiastic participant to the war in Vietnam you know which somebody like you know young Christopher Hitchens you know, was very passionately opposed to, you know, he, he never, as he was rising through the ranks, of the military, you know, he clearly had no problem with all the Reagan stuff in Central America in the eighties, you know, he oversaw the first Gulf war, you know, which is what said Hitchens was opposed to. And so if anything, um, you know, Colin Powell, you know, spent his life, you know, as, as a loyal servant of the American military machine. And if anything, when it came to Iraq, uh, Colin Powell was slightly hesitant, not for any sort of good humanitarian reason, you know, or or good anti-imperialist reason, of course, but just because he thought that it was like a, you know, it was like a foolish gamble, you know, like 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 he didn't want the empire to overextend itself, you know. Whereas I think I think in some ways, like temperamentally, I mean, Hitchens is the opposite of that in terms, of, in certainly in terms of his background, right. he's the opposite of that, you know. So I, so I think I think what makes him more interesting to me is. And again, it's not a moral judgment, you know, one way or the other. I'm actually not tremendously interested in whether somebody who's been dead for 10 years 
you know, is, is, you know, forgivable or not, whatever that means. But I think that what makes it interesting to me is that he's somebody who started off sharing a lot of the, the, you know, the premises that you or I do. Uh, And, and I think that as you kind of look at the way he evolved in those last years, he didn't do the typical apostate thing. Oh no, I was wrong about everything. You know, I see the light now. If anything, it was the opposite. You know, he was trying to find ways to emphasize the continuity between what he'd always thought and, and what he thought now. And, you know, and I think that given that, you know, far from, you know, cozying up to, to the Bush era right wing, you know, he was like severely antagonizing the Bush era right wing with all the anti-religious stuff, uh, you know, at, at a time when the GOP is just thoroughly identified with evangelicals. So, uh, so I think he was, uh, you know, I, I think that he was sincere. I think he was horrendously misguided. And I think it's an interesting question how somebody who was as smart as him, how somebody who had written as, as many, um, you know, like, like as many worthwhile things that, that he had ended up talking himself into this like God awful position. And it, you know, if you think like, Oh, well, you know, it's impossible that, you know, like the thing that a lot of people who like me identify with the anti-war socialist left think, which is basically that we just taken as an article of faith that nobody could possibly sincerely disagree with us. You know, everybody, uh, everybody's on the take or, you know, or, or, or everybody's just pretending, you know, for money that they disagree with us or whatever. Uh, then it's a very easy question. And, and, you know, and it's, and of course that's a very, you know, that's a very flattering, you know, thing for us to believe. I think it's a much more interesting question. If you, if you grant the possibility of, of people, in a very sincere way, going badly off the rails and trying to ask, well, how did that happen? Which is what I tried to do in some of the book. Great. We have to wrap it up to be continued. The book doesn't come out until January. Yeah. So the book is officially out of New Year's. Uh, if you, and if you I'll, I'll order, for pre-order, I'll you know, if you pre-order it from like Amazon or Barnes and Noble or anything like that, you might not get it until then. I do know that if you go to the place that I try to push people to the extent that I can, which is Red Emma's, redemmas.com. It's a uh, worker-owned bookstore in Baltimore uh, that they actually just posted today that they, they've already started shipping out you know, the pre-orders. I guess they got them early. So if you if you want it now, order it from Red Emma's. But yeah, it officially comes out in a couple of weeks. Thank you so much. But to be continued. Right, thanks, David. Thank you, Professor. All right. Uh, I got let's... something to say. Oh, you have something? Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, yes. Oh. I like to butt in to Professor Ben Burgess's ideas. Islamophobia means fear of Islam. Mm. I would say that much, much, not all, but much of the hatred of the other comes from fear of the other. I know very little about Hitchens, Mm. but I would surmise that for some reason, he got terrified of these people and therefore decided to hate them. Yeah. I mean, again, I I think there's some truth to that. I will also say that I think that Islamophobia, you know, I mean, yes, the, you know, the technical meaning of, of, of the word is fear of, but like the same way we use homophobia to describe, you know, being anti-gay, you're being prejudiced against gay people, whether or not, you know, it's, it's a fear that from, you are gay. It's a fear that you which are. all comes from fear. Sure. But yeah, I mean, make for, you gay. 
Sure, sure, sure. Fair enough. But, uh, you know, may or may not come from there. But the one group that really should be feared, uh, us Jews, doesn't have the phobia in the name. Yeah, no, that's yeah. Which which I always always found interesting. It should be Jew phobia. I mean, we're 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 scary. Let's admit it. But that's not what they call it. Yeah. Yeah, Actually, there is a there is a technical word for fear of the Jews. It's called heebie-jeebies. Look it up. Hang on, I'm seeing stars. The he I got the heebie-jeebies. Yeah. Was was Christopher Hitchens uh, falling down drunk? Um, I mean, he certainly uh, he certainly drank a lot. Uh, I I think that this is another one of those things that people who who want to uh, not think very hard about how this could have happened will really latch on to which is kind of funny to me because that, as far as I could tell, I mean, he probably drank even more, you know, in earlier decades, you know, when, when he, you know, had more stamina and, uh, and he had good politics, you know, and, uh, and, and I think that, you know, it's always kind of funny, like, uh, you know, that, you know, I'll hear people say this, right. It's like, Oh, you know, it's just that the, all the scotch ate, ate his brain or something like that. You know, when, I'm pretty sure that at least half of the people who stormed the Winter Palace and the October Revolution liked vodka at least as much as Christopher Hitchens but liked whiskey. You know, I, I don't think if you're if you suffer from racism or Islamophobia, it belies yeah. a mental illness, as does alcoholism. I'm just wondering. Yeah, how I, I, think, I think you're stretching. I think that they. I mean, I, I think that. And this is and this is maybe a reason why I would I would I would resist a little bit, you know, uh, Dr. Hirschenfeld's uh, claim that, you know, that that all, you know, anti-Muslim prejudice comes out of fear. I mean, I'm sure it often does. Right. Or 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 even like, you know, we're all anti-gay prejudice or whatever. I mean, I'm sure that is a common motivation. But like, clearly you have or, you know, the heebie-jeebies. Uh, but clearly these are things that uh, are incredibly popular you know prejudices that oftentimes are just like soaking cultures that that have them and so i i I think trying to make it too much about individual mental illness i think often kind of misses the point david yes he contradicted me would you please cut him off well obviously it was his toilet training I think he's afraid of you. That's yeah. why he's acting like that. Are you a knockdown, drag out alcoholic, Professor Ben Burgess? That's that. That's the question. Uh, uh, I don't know. Next time I'm in New York, we'll we'll, we'll go hit a bar. Well, you can find out. <laughs> I was supposed to meet Professor Harvey J.K. yesterday, and uh, he canceled at the last minute. He got a better better offer. Christopher Hitchens, mm. what he got right how he went wrong, why he still matters, published by Zero Books. Go to redemmas.org. The Feldman Guarantee. Buy the book. If it doesn't make you happy, I will reimburse you. This gets the Feldman Guarantee. Redemmas.org. And right now, go to Zero Books or redemmas.org and buy Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, a critique of the contemporary left featuring a blurb from uh, me. It's a great book. I blurbed it. Uh, Give them an argument, logic for the left and myth and mayhem. 
a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson by this man's books. And again, the Feldman guarantee, if you do not walk away from his books enlightened and ready to punch somebody, I will reimburse you. And then uh, All right. listen to give them an argument. Thank you. Will I see you next week or is there another wedding? <laughs> next week should be good. Professor, uh, by the way, in, when, when they make the movie, I want to play you, okay? Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you. All right. All right. But give the gift of books. This is very important. The holiday is upon us, and the best gift you can give to anybody is a book. The second best gift is to buy 10 copies of a book and give it to a library. Give books oh, wow. to donate to a library. And well, get that's a interesting. Wow. Get a library wow. card. Yeah. That, it, it's good. Libraries are good for authors. Joining us is Dr. Philip Hershenfeld. He's a Freudian psychoanalyst. And Ethan Hershenfeld is the star of Thug Thug Jew, which is on YouTube. Great stand up special. And one of the stars of Red Notice. And we okay. lost Jose. Jose had a cartoon uh, that I wanted. I to saw it. That was Wasn't brilliant. That, great? that was a great segment. Holy mackerel! It was great. Yes, yeah. it was amazing. But he disappeared. Yeah, he had a. He showed Dad. He showed some rejected New Yorker cartoons. He's had some in there, but he showed some of the really funny reject. Yeah. And one of them was the Grim Reaper on the couch of a psychoanalyst, and the Grim Reaper is saying to the psychoanalyst. Uh, this will not be a full-length session today for reasons that will become apparent. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh -huh. So good. Jose is the best. Jose is a great yeah. comic. There are two comedy writers. Just they, they both hit me at the right time uh, who taught me how to think differently. One is Chris Kelly just taught me how to think differently, just reading his stuff, and Jose. Jose taught me uh, that puns are not a bad thing, and that if you dig down deep enough, all jokes are basically puns, that, play, that a joke is a play on words. And we've talked about entomology here. Entomology or etymology? Uh, etymology. Yeah. Etymology, what do you prefer? Etymology is insects. Right. What do you prefer, Ethan? Entomology or etymology? I actually prefer the etymology of insect names. That's etymology. <laughs> entomology etymology. It's a, it's a very small field. It's a niche. I tried to create my own major and, and do that in college, and they, they rejected it. If, so, you, but, if you had to choose between studying insects or word origins. What, what you know what I studied in high school? We had a study hall every day. And in the back of the library, and this was my outstanding educational experience in all of high school. They had every New Yorker that had ever been published bound. And I would go over the cartoons to the beginning, to the end, and then I would start again. What's interesting, in Texas, they have every edition of the New Yorker bound and gagged. <laughs> Maybe nothing. Okay. 
it's in the neighborhood. Of, <laughs> no, I liked it. I, I, um, I think I would have gone for the words. That would have been my major. If I had to choose between bugs and words, I would have gone for words. But bugs are, bugs are pretty, uh, bugs are amazing. Being bilingual, Jose is bilingual. He grew up, his father is Spanish-speaking professor. And actually, his father in, uh, translated B.B. Netanyahu's father's, one of his- History big, of the Inquisition, that thing? I think so, yeah. 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 Having yeah. two separate languages going on in your head, being able to think- in, a, in another language. Most Americans don't have to do it. They don't. That's why we're so stupid. Right? Well, you, you, have, you have the advantage of that. You have a voice in your head saying, schmuck. That's another language. <laughs> what is the advantage, Dr. Hershey? Do you need another Trump story? Yes. Along these lines, yes. I, I was talking to somebody today who was in those circles and Trump was introduced to somebody and he was told this guy speaks three languages and Trump said, what a waste. <laughs> True story. Right. right. Thinking, <laughs> what is the, how many languages do you speak, Ethan? Well, um, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm working on Vul Vulcan from <laughs> from Star Trek. So if you but let's not include Vulcan because okay. it's still very basic. Also, yeah, I speak th three, only three languages holding up the Vulcan. No, um, you know what? I I really only speak, let's say, three or four. Well, pretty well. And then I have uh, another three maybe that I speak to some degree speak? of something. What do you but, speak? What's that? What do you speak? Well, uh, my English is pretty good. My Italian is good. And my, my German is eh. My Spanish is okay. My French, meh. Um, Could you some think basic Russian. Can, can you, Russian. Can you think basic, in Italian? I can. In fact, I do. When I'm walking on the beach and picking up plastic garbage, which is my meditative daily uh, uh, bleeding heart activity, I'm often speaking to myself in Italian, like out loud, just nonsense. And I thought today, this is pretty much, this really, to anyone observing what's happening right here, this looks like an insane person. Like I'm picking up little scraps of plastic and other inorganic detritus on the beach and shuffling along, talking to myself in Italian. There's Dr. Hershenfeld. Yes. Thinking in another language, does yeah. that force somebody to think differently? What is the I don't. I don't think it forces, but it expands your capacities and your abilities to come with, with new associations and uh, new ways of looking at things. And I think it's invaluable. To have yeah, I can feel that. I can feel it working, kind of smushing the gray matter around in, a, in a, what feels like a healthy way. And yeah. Whereas well, scrolling through the New York Times and reading the bad news, I can feel that that's an unhealthy thing for my brain. Right. Completely. Although I, I, it's hard to resist. But. Yeah. Growing up, uh, I was not allowed to use any Yiddishisms 
I remember yeah. I used the Yiddishism in front of my dad's boss. And my father said to me, why would you do that? Why would you do, why would you use, you know he hates being Jewish. You, you, did, you, you said that because you wanted to punish me. And I said, probably. I mean, the idea what was the, do you remember what you said? I, uh, it, I, it's, it's too personal, but I did, I was about like 19 and I yeah. was probably being passive aggressive towards my father and knew, right. knew his boss. No, no, it was aggressive aggressive. <laughs> it was in a crowded elevator and I knew this guy hated being Jewish. He had reinvented himself. And, and you asked him, does he identify as a schmuck or a putz? <laughs> and, and I was told he was a self-hating Jew. And I just got into an elevator with him. And it was crowded. I just wanted everybody to know he was Jewish. The A lot is lost. Like my parents grew up with Yiddish-speaking parents. And they were... Yeah ashamed of that there there's shame associated with yiddish is that correct well in that in that generation those those people who needed to assimilate and felt like they were you know uh hicks from the sticks or worse from overseas they had to you know get as white and as waspy as as possible yeah, so, but, but there's but, something dr hershenfeld what there's something, I mean, that is settled law that most American Jews came here and were ashamed of the of Yiddish. Is that correct? Is that? Um, that's overstating it, I think. You know, Man. one guy who was very, very ashamed, you know, Santa Claus was Jewish. He, the whole thing is a put on. He was actually, yeah. He's the yeah. only one. You think, you think a Gentile would work on Christmas? No, exactly. He's got the beard. He's got a team of workers he exploits up in his factory. And he short. He has them all do all the hard work. He, he takes all the credit. Yeah, he's got. Yeah. Um, and uh, think of six other funny things. I can't think of Pole. He's a pole. North Pole. Polish. Yes. Polish. Pole. Exactly. He's from the pole of settlement. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Yiddish has the best curses in the world. Well, again, listen, I feel like, if I may. You may not. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> All right, so I won't. <laughs> if you may not. Yiddish. I've already, I've already gotten raked over the coals by Professor Ben Berg. Just yep. So now this guy has to do it too. I know. Come on. No, I was simply going to say that you don't know any. I mean, there's there's thousands of languages in the world. So to say that the one one of the three that you're familiar with, I know it's the best insult. Come on, let's let's not be. It's like again, it's like calling the World Series. It's just twelve teams in the North America. It's not the World Series. They. So I'm going to side similar. with the doctor because they're not okay. just dirty words. There are curses. Like I, it's a curse on you. Like I, right? Is that what you're talking about, Doctor Hershenfeld? Well, uh, I went one. Now I do not speak Yiddish, just dribs and drabs of it, because my parents wanted me to be a real American. Right Wait. there, dribs and drabs. That dribs and drabs. That's Yiddish. So you do speak Yiddish. 
But, um, you know, which I think was a huge mistake. I wish I agree. they had allowed my grandparents to. Just for, would you forgive them already? Come on. No. For, okay. <laughs> if he forgave. For your them. own sake. For your own sake. Here's you know, one his, from his my inability uncle. to forgive his parents is what paid for your education. There you go. Right. Um, my uncle Benny had. He just knew 10 million Yiddish curses. So one of them that I just happened to remember is a forts in gorgle, a fart in your throat. <laughs> I think, that's by great. the way, that's great. I think you remembered that probably because like an 11 or 12 year old would have found that just incredible. But there I learned some for some audition a few years ago. A friend of yours, in fact, I think helped me with some translations. There's a really good one, with, which is Du sollst wachsen wie Zwiebel mit der Kopf in Dreher, which means may you grow like an onion with your head in the ground. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because we started talking about entomology. Is it etymology? What, what's the words? E Etta or? It's with the T. The, the one with the N is the insects. So it's etymology. Did you have an Aunt Etta? I had an Aunt Etta who was insect like, which is interesting. Yeah. I'm named after an Aunt Etta. That's where the Ethan comes from. There's the Etta. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So the, the, the origin of the word curse. We, we, we think like the F word and the C word is yeah. a curse word, but a genuine curse is yeah. like my mother saying to me, I should only hope you have kids that love you right. as much as you love me. You know, that kind of, yeah. Yeah, that's a curse, right? There's a great Irish one I heard also, which is why I objected to the good doctor saying that Yiddish has the best, because there's an Irish one, apparently, that goes like this. May all the teeth in your head fall out except for one, and may that one have an ache. <laughs> That's great. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Uh, so I would assume that when my grandparents spoke Yiddish around my parents, it was exclusionary. They were hoping that the kids wouldn't understand. Yeah, probably. Uh, and but at least they were speaking. I'm sorry? At least they were speaking. At least they were speaking. And they were thinking differently when they spoke Yiddish. That if they had, if they had a convert, it's kind of like in The Godfather, when uh Michael, yeah, let's talk italian we'll talk in sicilian and yeah. sterling hayden is left out of the conversation it's a, it's a different way of thinking yeah yeah right right yeah. the language does model your thinking to some degree right. we got to get noam chomsky on here to weigh in i don't know anything about this subject well let's okay. talk about uh mental health issues being the number one cause of U.S. unemployment. This is a, a new study out, a new survey of the United States shows that 30% of the unemployed in this country uh, cite uh, mental health issues as the reason for being unemployed. That's a lot of math there. The point being, we're blaming mental health issues for unemployment so is that 
what you bring to the work or does work create the mental health issue? Which comes first, the, 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 the mental health issue or the work? Can work create mental illness? Could we define our terms first? Paranoia. Could, okay, paranoia, that's a true mental health issue. However, a true paranoid will very rarely say, I am paranoid. Because in his mind, he's not paranoid at all. Everybody is against him. I don't know if that's true because I'm not paranoid. Ethan, okay. uh, the way you're looking at you, me suggests no. you do know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want to say that also the, those statistics, are, are we talking about people who are fired for those reasons or who won't go to work for those reasons? Well, or maybe it includes both. It's The math is a little fuzzy here. But the, 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 yeah. the reason I ask that question is what... <clears throat> What if you're hey, I, Let me say this. Let Go me ahead. say this. I believe that if you have a propensity or a proclivity or a predilection towards mental instability or illness. What about a preponderance? I wouldn't go that far. But if you have any of those leanings... If you have any, any leanings towards mental instability, the one place that's definitely going to bring it out, work. That is a good place. If you want any of your Michigas to really rise to the top, that's where it happens. Because you got the pressure, you got to fill a role, you got suddenly the time constraints, you got to show up, you got to dress a certain way, talk a certain way. There's suddenly all these power dynamics. Who wouldn't go crazy in a place like that? That's why I have never had a job. <laughs> It's just it's 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 it could drive, could drive you crazy. I go in, I do my my little freelance things a day or two. If it goes past three days, my head's about to explode. So thank God I haven't booked that that recurring role. I'm perfect as a guest star. That's that's perfect because right when all those interpersonal dynamics start getting to you, you, they say let's have a hand for this guy. He's leaving, and then you're back, you're out of there. As opposed, like, could you imagine being on Cheers for like? 12 years and the yeah. same norm <laughs> yeah but if you were to take a well-adjusted gentile from indiana who just grew up in the proverbial loving family with no screaming and in the middle of nowhere and just happy you know loving parents they didn't fight at the table, like unconditional love wasn't even like what's not to love. We're in Indiana. We're all. David, this is your fantasy. But let him. We all we see that. But let him. Let's hear. Let's hear him out. Let's hear him out. Okay. Okay. You, you take this person, this detestable, disgusting Republican, this anti-Semitic <laughs> racist. <laughs> no, you take this. You take this corn-fed innocent and you yeah. bring him to New York. Could he then develop paranoia? Rage? I, I don't, I'm not buying into this thesis at all that that New York is more no, crazy I'm making. I'm talking about a corporate working in a corporation, L.A. or, or take you know take yeah. bring him to Indianapolis. Or put him just in the in an Amazon warehouse in Bloomington. It's it, you know it's he's yeah it'll drive you crazy. 
I think isn't work crazy? It's antithetical to to aren't all people crazy? Well, that's what I'm saying is that everyone has tendencies to be crazy, but that's a great place to. Although, you know what? I'm wrong because some people it's being unemployed that drives them crazy. For some people, you need the structure. Yeah. Yeah. I once worked with a guy very early in my career who got out of high school and got a job in a Sears warehouse. He started when he was like 20. The original Amazon Sears. He rose through the ranks till he was head of the Sears warehouses in half of the country. He loved his work. He was absolutely, he was very obsessive. And it worked for his job. He reached 65, they gave him a gold watch, they shook his hand, he went home. The next morning, he took a shower. He got out of the shower and then he thought, ooh, I think my shoulder touched the shower curtain. I better shower again. Goes in, takes another shower. Then he goes out again. Then he thinks, oh, my ankle touched the side of the tub. I better take another. Three hours later, most of the skin was off his hands and he still couldn't get out of the shower. So the work really helped this very obsessional guy to put the obsessional tendencies to good use. So did you, was that it? You treated him and one day you said, go back to work. <laughs> or, get, or just only take baths. Yeah. <laughs> take a bath. So I'm just agreeing right. with you. It depends for who. Some people yeah. work makes them crazy. Some people work, make yeah. them, holds them together. Yeah. Ethan, no. baths or showers? Yeah. I think I've you know, asked you this in the past. I, I, I got a bathtub uh, about 25 years ago when I, when I, for the first time I was able to renovate my, it's the same apartment I have still, but I got a bathtub that was big enough for me. Cause when you're over six feet tall, you can't really, these things don't fit. The shower head's too low. The bathtub's too small. So I got it made to size. So for a couple of years there, I was using that bathtub, but now it's just, it's all showers. It's, I, I like to shower. What do you think yeah. is cleaner? A shower? I think the, I think the really clean thing is the shower followed by the bath. Like they would do, I guess in Japan. The shower? No, no, a bath followed by a shower. No, no. I think you shower, you shower and get all the dirt off you first. Then you can soak in the bath and really. But either way, I think you're right. that would work also. What you're describing, I think the net effect would be the same. Yeah. Um. Interesting. Oh, by the way, after my swim in the bay today, my my chilly swim, a woman came up to me, start, said something about Wim Hof, the, you know, this ice guy, which everyone's always talking about. And then very quickly went like this. She said, how, how are you feeling about the pandemic? I said, it's a nightmare. She said, yeah, it really is a nightmare. There's so, this vaccine. And she made air quotes. It was the first time I met one of these people up here in, you know, in this, what she called the bubble of Massachusetts. But she's, I mean, she was full on talking about the 100 million people who were very angry about the pandemic and all that. I met one of these people. I just said, well, okay, well, you know, I wish you health and good luck. And, but that was pretty amazing. I said earlier on the show, and then we, we need to wrap it up, uh, that 
in the past, we've been promised our parents' depression in World War II. In other words, our, our, the greatest generation had World War II, they had the depression, and it defined them and we never quite had that that we i was promised 911 would be would be an imprint on it, it never materialized is covid going to end up being our I, I like the way you i like where you're going i haven't heard that idea before but yeah. it sounds like i feel like i'm yeah yeah you're right I feel like I am, I'm older than the, you know, maybe it will be for these people in their 20s who are going through this now. This feels... The problem, not 9-11 didn't pan out because our president said you should all go shopping. Right. He could have said this is a threat to Western civilization and I'm going to put a dollar a gallon a gas tax so that we become truly energy efficient and independent whole country would have done what you're suggesting well yeah that would have been the the jimmy carter wear a sweater don't turn up the heat thing it would have been the end of him but i i agree completely right i'd rather turn up the heat than wear a sweater i don't look good what i've been loving this winter so far or late fall is multiple sweaters it's an amazing thing. You can create these. Like right now, I have on two wool sweaters and this other wool thing. And when you take it off, you can take it off all as one. Then you have, you have like these groups of sweaters that can live together. Like one of them is four sweaters. I recommend it. Do you, before we go, I have two questions. How, how tall are you? Well, I, I used to say 6'4", but now I say 6'3", depending on, man, on what role I'm auditioning for. But yeah. Can a man be too tall? There are men who are don't feel they're tall enough, overcompensate. Do, do we have men who compensate for being too tall? Does, is, is, well, some men, like, uh, um, I believe it was... Um, it was Manute Bol who, who, if you remember him, Manute Bol, he actually wanted to be an astronaut. So he was way too tall. He was a foot and a half above the, the maximum height for an astronaut. So you can be too tall. Well, he was already in space. What did he need a rocket ship for? Good the point. Second, Good point. The second question is, and this is for Dr. Hershenfeld, men who wear scarves. I have a theory about men wearing <laughs> scarves. Your son is wearing a scarf. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to hear this theory. It is an act of aggression. It, it, it is saying, I dare you to throw a punch at me. That I hear saying, I'm a feat. I'm pretentious. That a man who wears a scarf. <laughs> you're taunting. You're asking to be punched, aren't you? Right here, right here. David, you have a lot of cockamamie theories. That's all I can say. Men who wear scarves are, are it's, yeah. you're taught, you're saying, you want a piece of me? Let's go. 
What what is what 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 temperature is your neck all winter? Are you just walking around with a cold neck, or you just have a preternaturally toasty neck? What is, or you have a, like a larynx on fire? What is going on with you? People who wear turtlenecks, people who wear scar, men who wear turtlenecks and scarves, people who are protecting their necks. What about senior citizens who wear that collar, that foam collar after an injury? Do you object to that also? <laughs> You know why they're wearing that foam collar? Because they're wearing a scarf and somebody punched them. That's fine. Uh, Thank you. I hope to see you next week. It's Christmas Eve Eve. Thank you. God bless. God bless. Go download right now. Go to YouTube and watch Thug Thug Jew. Make everybody happy, including yourself. Go watch Thug Thug Jew and Bert. uh, bull, right? When does Bull come on? Bull, Bull. My episode I found out is uh, it's episode six eleven, so it'll be mid January. I'll let you know. Six eleven. We'll never forget the events of six eleven. Yeah, never forget. Bye, bye. Thank you very much. You are listening to the David Feldman Show. DavidFeldmanShow.com. This is a great one. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, Emil Guillermo joins us. Uh, and he is a columnist for ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. And we do office hours every Friday night. Big one tomorrow night. It's going to be huge. We'll be right back with Emil Guillermo. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comments too. To tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right, buckled in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Yes, it's time right now for the David Feldman Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. Meet better people like this guy. Emil Guillermo is the host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. He's also a columnist for ALDEF, Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. And he's wearing a scarf around his neck. What is that called? I forget. You have to unmute yourself. 
Unmute yourself. Yes, I'm sorry. You know, the scarf sometimes has that muting effect. <laughs> <laughs> you you cued me. So I had to find one. I had to race out, and I, I'm not quite color-coordinated. But, see, I have a scarf on, and uh, your your viewers here would know that I have my my dimpled gong is also garlanded and scarfed yes. as well. So we're dangerous, isn't it? Yes. You are a world-class vegan, which means you ruin it for everybody. <laughs> ruin macadamia nuts. I have – these are either Brazilian Damn. nuts – or macadamia nuts ruin these nuts for me am i wrong for eating these nuts you need the right nuts i think you i think you got the wrong nuts pistachios pistachios are better than macadamia nuts i think so i'm not allowed I, wait you're I'm not allowed what about cashews i have a hand i have a handful of nuts i'm holding a handful of nuts here <laughs> yeah and our cashews, cashews are good Cashews are good. You can make you can make sauces out of cashews. My wife makes sauces. You know, and here's the, here's the big thing though. You can make milk from nuts, as you know. And we 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 milk our own nuts. In the I'll be right over. Does your wife? We're selective. No, we we do. We milk our own nuts. We got it. We got a. Uh, they, there's a product out there that you can get. You can get one. and can do it the old fashioned way, sort of like when you churn butter. You know, make butter from a churn. That, that's called using a nut sack. I mean, yeah. The, I, there's I a nuts. I hear you. Know, but but we don't use we don't use a nut sack. We 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 went modern. We went the the modern machinery and nut milk and it's great and you no waste there's no you get your milk you know uh and it's all good you, you can make it and it gives the residue that you get the residue and you can make little crackers out of the residue so there's no waste at all no waste unlike uh you know cow pus which you know people call milk yeah. which is you know, if you're lactose intolerant. All right, let's go yeah. over because you ruined veganism for me. But I'm going. Oh, come on. Way. No, you know what? I'm cutting down on my olive oil. I, I am. I'm trying. See, I'm trying. You're, you're, you're good to do that. What I about mean, balsamic it, it, vinegar? Balsamic vinegar is good. Okay. Actually, it's, just okay. skip the uh, skip the olive oil. Just use more balsamic vinegar. Is That's there good. any oil I can eat? Uh, well, you can, you know, the nuts that you eat will give you all the oil and fat that you need. But what, what if oh, I, look, want, I, I, but, but yeah. I want, I like olive oil. I know you like olive oil, but it's, it's bad for the endothelial linings in your heart and, you know, the, the, your, your, your blood vessels, uh, you know, around the heart. And it ultimately will uh, be worse for your health. By, by you know e eating eating the uh, the oils so you know you should just skip them you don't need them you don't need them you don't need them. you get all the the, the fats you, you need from from nuts you uh, what do you what do you need the olive oil for you, I'm the taste you like you you actually like the taste of olive oil what kind of degree do you have like a black belt in veganism what, what didn't you study? yeah I, 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 you I went to uh, Colin Campbell's uh, you know his uh, his institute 
and and just studied veganism and whole food plant-based eating and uh, you know it's it's just something that i think i when you knew me i wasn't a vegetarian i mean when we met in uh, san francisco and it wasn't until uh 80 89 really that i became a vegetarian and then ultimately more vegan um and really my my health is great no statins people my age should be on statins they you know i should be 30 pounds heavier um and and i don't it, it hasn't been as much of a struggle because i'm a vegan but i'll tell you here's a good reason to go vegan you know, inflation, people are arguing about inflation, you know, 7% inflation, it's, it's, it's bad, and um, wholesale prices uh, up 10%. I mean, it's really the highest in, in 10 years, and people are freaking out. But, you know, here's the, here's the thing about inflation. Uh, the Fed is, you know, they're going to stop the, the whole stimulus thing and they're going to start raising interest rates. Um, and the Times did a story saying that based on your uh, how much college you have or how rich you are, you know, you're either, you know, freaking out about inflation or you're you know, really upset, like if you're in the south or the Midwest. But I was just looking at the consumer price index, you know, what people are freaking out about. If you got rid of pork, which is up 16.8%, and steak, which is up 24.6%, and eggs, which is up 8%, and if you don't eat out, which is up 6%, you're good. You know, if you're vegan and don't eat any of that stuff, you know, they're very modest gains. Like, for example, well, tools and hardware. Got, aren't soybeans up? So I don't know if soybe, soybeans aren't on my, uh, my list here. They but, feed uh, soybeans. Steak, 24.6%. Pork, 16.8%. Eggs, 8%. Look, tools and hardware, up 6.9%. But, you know, I deal with that. I just watch more TV. Don't do any work in the house. Right. Um, you know, men and boys apparel, up 7.8%. But like you, I wear girls' clothes, so we don't have to worry about right. that. Uh, but really, uh, it, it's if you were vegan... You just wouldn't have to worry about this. Now, I, that's my theory. That's my theory. But then I went to a place uh, for dinner. I went, I went to a fast food place. I went to the Del Taco. You know the Del Taco? Del Taco. My sister dated a guy named Del. Del Taco. Del, Del Taco. I think he had a hit song, Runaway. Yes. I think that was his song. Del Taco. <laughs> I used to eat a Del right. Taco years ago. Del Taco. Del Taco. Right, so I went to Del Taco, and I went to Del Taco because they had a vegan burrito, and I said, "Okay, we're going to get a vegan vegan burrito, and then we might as well get the vegan tacos because it's the Beyond Beef thing." So we want to make them know at at corporate Del Taco headquarters. They have a. I bet you they they have a corporate Del Taco headquarters. I bet you it's in the shape of a crispy taco, mm-hmm. a big one. So we went in, or we didn't go in, we drive through. We order enough for my wife and for me. You know, we're modestly sized. You asked uh, Ethan, how tall is too tall? You know, I say big enough for a Zoom box. That's, mm-hmm. that's all you have to be. So I go in and uh, or we order the bill for two or f- four burritos and four tacos. At Del 48. Taco. 
at Del Taco, $48, which I, you know, I, I don't think I've ever paid that much for Mexican food. I mean, unless I, unless you threw in some margaritas and something like, I, I just, I was astonished, but that is inflation in action, you know, cause people don't care about what the fed does. They don't care about, you know, oh, interest rates will go up, uh, you know, in the next quarter, they just care about what they're paying now. And that, that, because I don't, re- I rarely go out of my closet, but there I was at Del Taco paying $48 for some vegan burritos and tacos. And I'm thinking, God, you know, this has never happened to me before. Never, never. So anyway, so I know it's a real thing. And my heart goes out to people who well, the price are struggling. Well, the Beyond Burger and Impossible Burger is down 40%. I have noticed that I can yeah. get a package of Beyond Burger or Impossible Burger for about $6 in New York City. So I can only imagine what it's like on planet Earth. It must be $5 for <laughs> I I don't know. I I don't eat as much of the fake meats as as I used to. When they first came out I did, but I'm just back to eating, you know, radishes and blueberries and I eat uh I eat uh, Ezekiel bread. You know, do you know about Ezekiel bread? It's money it's, from what? It, go ahead. I was well, going to make it's, a joke. You know, it's from, well, it's for, well, you're, you're on the right track. They take their name from the biblical ber- verse. Apparently, uh, the Bible says, do not eat wonder bread. Eat this, eat this, you know, because it's from seeds and plants. and Right. And so that's what I, that's what I eat. And, um, and so it's it's helped me. I stay vegan, and the, my my downfall. I know you have a downfall. Your downfall. You told me once was uh, bread pudding. Uh, right. Yes. yes. Is it still your downfall? Bread pudding. I haven't had bread pudding. You know, it, it it's at a buffet. Yeah. Where buffet it's bread where, pudding? You're, you're that's yes. <laughs> David at Golden Corral <laughs> or a We're, Chinese buffet. <laughs> bread pudding on a, you know, a tr- underneath Sterno, an aluminum tray, uh, and it's unlimited. Uh, and it's not good. Oh, boy. It's, it's like you have to eat a lot of it to feel satisfied because it's just yeah. light and airy with a little ice cream on top of it. That's it for you. Huh? That's your, that's your kryptonite. Yeah. Hey, do you never do that that recipe I gave you on vegan bread pudding? Well, I don't have. An I oven. sent it to you. I don't have an oven. Oh, okay. I know. All right. All right. All right. Oh, look, look. Uh, so, anyway, be a vegan. You can beat inflation. I and avoid the the tacos at uh, Del Taco. All right. But you know, I, the topic I want to get to today. I wrote a column. I write for a. a, a a place called Diverse Issues in Higher Education. I know this is our favorite topic we like to talk about, uh, dumping on Harvard. And I, I Harvard- forget, did, la- did you, I forget, did you go to Harvard? <laughs> no, I didn't. I did. I, I I just passed through. I, I was a pass through. I forget, did you go to Harvard? 
No, I didn't. No, if I went to Harvard, I would have mentioned it within the first minute of our meeting. You went to Harvard. But no, I'm you waiting went. until at least 15 minutes Were into you on my, the Harvard my segment. I, I always forget. No, always no, forget. that wasn't, that was, that was a brown imposter. Okay. That, that was, so I wrote, I wrote, I wrote this column um, for diverse issues in higher education because Harvard is going through the same process that all higher ed is going through they've got to rename their buildings because they're named for real bastards right like uc berkeley president uh, david prescott who's what is uc a bad guy david prescott barrows he was a bad guy he he brought colonialism or he was a superintendent of uh education what about i thought berkeley was named after busby berkeley the guy who gave us Oh, the guy, yeah, the, the 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 high angle, yeah, and I think he was all right. They like his movies there at uh, okay. the film, all right, so Harvard, film all right, Harvard. So re- Harvard, they've got Harvard. to rename some buildings. But so I came up with this plan. I get, and and I I talk about these guys who actually are my classmates, Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer. They gave Gates gave fifteen million and Ballmer gave ten million. Drop to Harvard to build their dropouts. Yeah, well, no, Gates is Bomber isn't. Bomber actually, Bomber dropped out of the corporate world to own a sports team that still can't win. But uh, they named the, they're naming the science building or they named the science building after their mothers, Mary Maxwell Gates and Beatrice Dworkin Bomber, and it really is a way to kind of like circumvent, you know, a connection to Gates and Bomber. Right. Because they say, oh, you, you know, what did my mom do? But you can't you can't unname the building because my and I named it after my mom. But in most places, it's all a vanity thing. And people want to name a building. If, they, if you give 10 million dollars to a school. You want your name on it. Right. So Harvard is going through this this, uh, you know, this you know they're they're looking deep inside to how they rename you their building. Soul searching, but there's no there's no place to there's search. No, well, you know what they're finding out is that like the guy who they named Lowell House for, well, he was an anti-Semite, and he was uh, also um, he was a racist. They found out some Harvard presidents owned slaves, and so uh, I came up with this idea that the way they should do it is they should get, dump the vanity. If they want the money, just accept anonymous donations. That way they're, you know, forget transparency. It's anonymous, right? Because this is the way that the really bad uh, rich people, this is how they launder their money. They launder their money by giving to colleges and then they get their name. The, the Sacklers, right? The opioid kings, right? They give their names to the museums and, you know, they get everyone hooked on opioids and, oh, they're the Sacklers, right? This is the same. All throughout uh, higher ed, this is the, the way money is laundered in America. And so uh, at UC Berkeley, right, this guy Barrows, you know, they, you know, he was the, the superintendent of colonialism in, in the Philippines. And so Harvard's come up with well, how do you get Berkeley? How do you get Barrows? How do you get Berkeley from Barrows? No, no, Berkeley. I don't know about Berkeley, who Berkeley's a school. You see Berkeley because it's in the town, Berkeley. Barrows is uh, 
he was the he was one of the first presidents in the 19 early 1900s but he he participated in the colonial government of the of, of the United States and the Philippines so here's the standard for uh for for removing people's names from the school because they say that you really need humility because what was good in one era may not be good in this era and so how are we going to get around this? So they say the case for removing an individual's name will be strongest when the behaviors now seen as morally repugnant are a significant component of that individual's legacy when viewed in full context of the namesake's life. Meaning the guy's a bastard. He'll always be a bastard. Let's take his name off. That's the strongest. But then you know, what if the namesake's beliefs, which we now regard as abhorrent, you know, weren't so objectionable in the namesake's own time? So, you know, this is why they've got to come up with a plan. Like, who are the bastards that we're going to dename? And who are the bastards that we're going to just say, hey, we got their money and, you know, they're okay. So my solution to all this is dump vanity, get money anonymously. That way, you give five million dollars. Then how would Jared and, you know, get it? How would Jared Kushner get into Harvard if his father couldn't build a? If library? father gave two million dollars, father gave, and father who went to NYU gave Harvard two million dollars. Jared Kushner gets into Harvard. So and then so the question comes up though: How do you name the buildings? And I think he got to name them after colors, right? So the art building is named the Amaretto Building. You know, the English building is ebony. Chemistry building is chartreuse. The, phys the physics building, the puce building, right? You just name them colors, right? Mm -hmm. And and that that is the easy, that, that, this is just my practical solution, David. All of higher ed should be listening to your show because this is... A, and you got a lot of professors, right? What if uh, Professor Marianne, she's in the physics, right? But if she said, I'm Professor Marianne and my office hours are in the Pews building. I mean, I think she could love it. Do you know what Pews is? Pews? It comes out of yeah. uh, cows and we drink it as milk. No, no, no. Do you know the color Pews? Do you know what color Pews is? It was my nickname in high school. <laughs> I could have guessed that. I could have guessed. I would well, call you know, pusillanimous. A, I would think, yeah, is, 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 is it related people, to pusillanimous? No, it's not related to pusillanimous, but it's one of those colors that people think they know because they've heard it talked Pews. about ca cavalierly by comedians and by people trying to make fun. But puce is kind of like a pinkish, reddish brown, which isn't ugly. Pinkish, but, reddish brown. Pinkish pinkish reddish, yeah so it's reddish. a light red reddish so a little more red and almost red and then a little dark so it's kind of brown a puce all right how about chartreuse i do we one of our we'll listeners named chartreuse who we have a listener named chartreuse oh well she's a great drink what color or, is she's chartreuse? named after what color is chartreuse Chartreuse, if I'm not mistaken, is a kind of a green. So isn't that better right? to call it kind of a green so you know what you're <laughs> talking about? 
So well, instead of chartreuse, no, and wouldn't Dave, it be nicer to name yeah. your kid kind of a green? I think that has a nicer <laughs> ring to it than chartreuse. You know, my daughter, kind of a green. I like that better. <laughs> Pinkish reddish well, brown sounds nicer than puce. It's I like kind the specificity. Pinkish brown, huh? No, puce is poetic. Puce is poetic. Come on. Puce. So anyway, but this is, puce. seriously, this is how they launder, the rich launder money. They give money to their, their alma mater. I gave like in the low three figures to Harvard. The low. Bar barely broke the three-figure mark. So, you know. I think there should be no building funds for any institution. You build a church, you build a temple, that's no. it. No building fund. You don't no, need, no. you do not need a building fund. So, well, how do they build their buildings? They, you, they you get, get it one from... building and you make the best of it. Oh, it's like the little red schoolhouse kind of thing. I think, only... I think anytime they start building, yeah. the institution goes, goes to shit. Watch out. Then they, then they become like not they don't become educators. They become hoteliers. Exactly. Right. Right. That's what it, you know. And that struck me when you live in a dorm and, uh, you know, for a year and you say and then like this, this happened when I was, uh, you know, back there in school. They hired an, a, a big vice president. They got him from Sheraton mm -hmm. because. They were running a hotel and they were they were like one of the few people honest enough to say, yeah, uh, we don't need an educator. We'll just get someone from Cornell's Hotel Restaurant Management PhD program or something. I, 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 but he was I from Sheridan. To, both my kids were bar mitzvahed at a temple in Los Angeles. Beautiful temple. And yeah. just as I'm ready to check out because the kids have been bar mitzvahed. I start hearing about the building fund and they have to build uh, and and we need to bring in Eli Broad, the real estate developer, because uh, he's building. To, what, what are you building? Nobody's showing up. Nobody's showing up because we don't have a nice building. And I said, maybe if you said something that's worthwhile in this building. David, no, 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 that's not the way it works here in capitalism. Here, the way it works is, and Sears did it this week. Sears can't sell their shitty merchandise, but they have a lot of real estate. Yes. Their buildings are worth more than the crap that they sell because in the stores. they're run by private equity. Sears yeah. is a perfectly fine chain. It was destroyed by private equity. Well, yeah, I, I just, uh, it's sad. I mean, Sears, we in San Francisco, we're, when, we're, when we first met, trying to get you emotional. Did you ever go by the Sears mm -hmm. up there on, uh, on, on Masonic or the Sears Beautiful out building. there in the Mission? Yeah, I mean, you know, the Sears was a, they, they were classic stores. How's it pronounced? Hey, Campanile? Uh, How do you, is it, they had like, every Sears had a, a Campanile tower, right? Campanile. A Campan. That's how, Camp I, you know, I, I think. I don't pronounce. That's not my thing. I'm trying. <laughs> I don't I'm trying do to pronunciation. <laughs> well, but you say Guillermo so well. You say, you say Guillermo not like the colonizer you say it as the filipinos and i i honor you for that hey but, but before i know we we have some limited time but two things michelle kwan asian americans Ambassador. are honoring michelle kwan Ambassador. our new 
ambassador to Belize. Can you Belize it? So, you got to Belize. I can't, I can't Belize it. I bet you, I bet you we don't, I bet she becomes ambassador. I bet you we don't go to war with Belize anytime I, soon. I Belize, you're right. And how about Caroline Kennedy? I, Caroline, you She's know, once you get on that gravy train, that ambassador gravy train, you just want to find the next, show me the next party, right? She was in Japan. And where's she? And then she was, head? she's going to Australia because she's down under. Right. Hey, you know, a, fr- a friend of mine from high school on the debate team in high school, Lowell High School, San Francisco, was ambassador to Japan, I think after her, t- 2009. So I don't know. Wasn't if I, Mondale the ambassador to Japan at one time? I, you know, I don't know. That's the great uh, thing. You just make up ambassadors. Nobody, nobody checks. No can, one cares. I, but you I know can what? Name every ambassador. Is, nobody checks. That is that is such a cushy political job. If you know, and what did Michelle Kwan do? Uh, she well, she's a you know an I ice skater. But yeah. you know, for Asian Americans, Asian Americans are wondering: Should Biden have chosen Christy Yamaguchi instead? That's right. the question. You know, Christy Yamaguchi, Michelle Kwan. I was always a Michelle Kwan fan, but she worked for Clinton. She worked for Biden. This is her. This is her uh, her reward. You know that right? I was supposed to marry Caroline Kennedy. You were supposed to marry her. God, that's what happened. I, she, she went with another Jew, but I always when I was very protective of Caroline Kennedy because of you know what God. she grew up with. And I always figured I was going to make it big, meet Caroline Kennedy. And, uh, yeah. 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 I did meet, I mean, I sort of met her. I, I was in a class with her once. I sat down next to her, her and I was going to say, <laughs> huh? I was going to say, <laughs> neither one of us were in her class. Go we ahead. weren't in her class, but I was next to her. And I turned to her briefly and she was chewing one of those, you know, those, they're not lifesavers. They're like reeds, cinnamon candy, hard candies. And they come in all different flavors. She had cinnamon that day. And it was like, there I am sitting next to Caroline Kennedy. Pretend she's my garland gong. I turned to her and she opens her mouth and there was this blast of cinnamon coming. It just, it was just, so she's, She's uh, to me. She's always the cinnamon girl. She's Caroline. I bet Caroline Kennedy never once yelled at anybody. I bet she's just his. She's so, just so nice and diplomatic. That's why she's an ambassador. She was an ambassador in life as well, David. Yeah. An ambassador in life. I used to hey, think David, this I- about uh, Obama's daughters. I, I when I, I was obsessed with them when. You were? Well, I thought they were like Princess Margaret and yeah. uh, Elizabeth. I thought th- this was going to be absolute royalty. American, the daughters were absolute royalty. And then uh, then I saw what the Obamas were really about. And, you know, but. <laughs> well, hey, hey we David. Have to wrap it up. We have the, this the Reverend is, is here. Wait, is this really show 1300? This is, no, no, this is uh, season 12. Mm. And it's our 100th episode for 2021. This is 
the 100th it's, episode. It's a milestone show. You know, like this week, Stephen Curry hit 2974. You know, but did you see that game earlier? I mean, it's a big deal. He's three three point guy. Uh, the yeah. thing about him, he shot 35% that day, which means he missed in that game, the game that he broke the record, he missed 65% of the time. In my book, where I went to school, that's a D. Yeah, I think where you went to school, that's an A. That hard. No. <laughs> he mixed. He missed sixty-five percent of that. I'm just saying think, that. I think at Harvard. Thirty-five. I think at Harvard, nobody gets a bad grade. I think it's. I think once you get in, you don't have to crack a book. No, I cracked at least no. ten. I cracked. Hey, one, one last thing, David, and and I do mean that. I milestone. think if you grad, I think I think at Harvard, I don't think Zuckerberg, Gates, bon, I don't think they read a single book. They were so well, socializing. It just depends on what you're going for, you know. I there is, there was a thing called the gentleman's C which I think has become inflated to the gentleman's A, right? But you know, uh, but look, we're talking about milestones. Um, yeah, we hit the 800,000 on the death, the deaths, uh, you know, from COVID. And, uh, oh, that's a I, bad thing. I'm sorry. That's a, I'm sorry. Oh. I, thought was, I thought that was a good thing. You're right. That's bad. That's bad. Wait, I just saw something. I just saw, I, I read uh, Olivia Knox's column and he talked about how we have a thousand or 1300 people dying every day. And the way he put it just sort of like floored me. He said, that's equal to three 757s crashing every day. And, you know, we were in local news. He had three 757s crashing every day. That's like, you know, we would be all alarmed. We'd be covering it. We wouldn't be ignoring it. We would know the significance of that. And yet, sometimes it feels like we just don't care enough about the 1300. 1,300 die every day. That's 700 head-on collisions every day. Car seven, yeah. Se so you keep, you, keep, you keep putting it in, a, in, a, in a, a new frame, and it just hits you. I mean, when I read his column, and he talked about three 757s crashing every day, you know, it's just sobering, you know. That would be... So, uh, 400 single family homes set on fire every day to put that into uh in, in one neighborhood in one neighborhood in one yeah that would in be, one neighborhood that would be something would that would be 1300 yeah yeah that see would, you, you just have to have that perspective that that perspective to understand or to make it make it real that would be hey, so, an invasion of Belize. That would the be, invasion of Belize. Be the yeah. Number of. We have to wrap it up. You're keeping the reverend waiting. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, the, Michelle Kwan. I I wonder if she knows there are probably very few ice skating rinks in Belize. Do you think she knows that? Where is Belize? It's like down there by Mexico. It's some somewhere. You know, right? Uh, the the Reverend Barry has a church there. I bet. 
<laughs> where you? was I'm sure I do. Where was Guyana? The, the, the uh, Jonestown, the country it was in the country. Guyana. 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 Where's Guyana. Guyana in relationship to Belize, Reverend? Uh, it's very close. Guyana is to the east. Belize is to. Well, I thought it was closer to Mexico. Am I geography? Clearly, I did not take geography. <laughs> we have to not even at Harvard. Um, I knew where Harvard Square was, though. I was just there about two months ago to Harvard Square for the first time in years. Yeah. Well, I yeah, didn't go were, to Harvard, though, because they wouldn't let me in. But every time, no, every time that I would go there to give a speech, I would say, hey, thank you very much for inviting me to participate. Too bad you didn't invite me to come as a student. I always got a chuckle, you know. I also saw Randy Newman play uh -huh. there at uh, that little theater off of Harvard Square. And uh, he played one song. He looked up at everybody and it's it you don't look that smart <laughs> they're not you, you saw the so. new article uh, uh, professor hussein brought it up on monday something like 40 percent of the people who go to harvard are idiots like knock down drag out morons well ted ted kaczynski went there would you call Seriously, him an idiot that that, that harvard is the people, 40% of the people who get into Harvard are either lacrosse players who are idiots, like the Winklevoss twins, right. or legacy admissions who are, and if you're a legacy admission, you're a moron. Well, this is the, uh, the, the dirty secret of admissions, right? The affirmative action for the, uh, for the legacies. Although, and now this is true. I, I thought, all right, I got in. That makes me a, a, leg, a legacy of sort, or uh, that makes me able to give a legacy. But my legacy did not get in. I had three legacies and they didn't get in. Huh. So, Emil Guerrero is the host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And read them over at ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Also, Emil Amuck. Watch him on, I watch you on Twitter. You live stream. Thank, thank you for doing that. Thank you. Thank you. It's live. It's live. Uh, at Emil Amuck on Twitter and also on, on YouTube. I want to thank the, the legion of David Feldman listeners who followed me on YouTube. When I put out, you said, yeah, I had to be like hard nose and say, damn it, you're going to like, like it and subscribe, right? Yes. I, I tried that and a couple people said, okay. <laughs> Thank you, Emil. Just a couple though. Will we see you a, a week from today? All our Christmas. Yeah. Shopping. I hope. Everybody Why not? Why? Not? I, I've, I've got, uh, I bought some rapid tests. So if I, if I test negative, I'll be here. Good. Thank you, Emil. Because I, I test even for even for Zooms. I test to do Zooms. That's how how much I believe in public health, David. Thank you. We'll see you next week. See ya. Emil Guillermo. Let us go to Washington, DC, unless he's planning to waste time with his grandchildren again in Massachusetts. Uh, uh, Are you uh, the Reverend Barry W. Yes, I know him. 
Go ahead. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn has dedicated his life to separation of church and state. He ran Americans United for separation of church and state. And besides being a member of the Supreme Court bar, besides being an attorney, he's also an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Nice to be back. Where you are hear you? me are you all right. Are you, in you... are you in Massachusetts? No, I'm in Washington. I'm in Washington right now. I'll be up there next week. And will we have you the night before Christmas? Yeah. yeah. It's not the night before Christmas. No, no, Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve would be Friday. Friday. But we doing this Thursday. Right. Well, we're so doing way, office. Yeah, I didn't go. Remember, we've established that I didn't get into Harvard. So I'm just trying to be mathematically pure here. Yes, you will have me next Thursday from Massachusetts. Yeah. And yeah. without going into details, your youngest grandchild is how old? One year old. So Christmas. What? What? what what should we teach children starting at the age of one about Christmas? But but I would assume, in all seriousness, yeah, I I, I, well, I think if, I think you know. Well, your wife knows right from wrong. <laughs> yeah, I do. I think I, I think you're in the no. ballpark. Of knowing <laughs> right from no. wrong. I mean, you do yeah, my show, so that's wrong. Yeah, I'm but, close. What, I'm what, close. No, I think I think what uh, there's a big I do not believe, you know, my friend Tom Flynn, who was one of the great uh, free thinkers, died a few weeks ago. Big surprise. And he was really on a campaign to never teach anything about Christmas, period. Not only nothing religious, but nothing about Christmas. He was a he was a real uh, a well-established Grinch. But. I think you teach, this is what I think my my daughter and her husband are doing as well as what we are doing, which is you teach this is a happy time. This is a good time to do good for other people. And when you're, you know, five years and under, it's a big deal to get gifts and to give gifts and to make it clear that it works both ways. Unlike your own posting earlier this week that said you were not uh, going to uh, give any gifts, but you would be taking them. For, and for, I did suggest for, for I suggested to cut my carbon what? footprint by half. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that was your excuse. I don't believe that for a minute. But I wondered if you were going to re-get, if you get something, are you then going to give it to someone else? Because then you don't affect your carbon footprint at all unless you drive them, you know, drive it to somebody else's house. But you don't even have a car. You don't even own a car, do no, you? I don't own a car. No. And I have well. pretty much uh, don't know anybody anymore. So... Uh, mm. Yeah. I was yeah. going to see Professor Harvey J.K. yesterday. He's in New York, and he traded up at the last minute. He canceled on me. Really? Yeah. You want to mention where he went? I don't know, but he had to cancel at the last minute. So I officially have no friends. Wow. Official. But I'm your friend. 
I'm not going to give you any gifts, but I mean, I'm your friend. The dollar sign. Dean Martin said to Jerry Lewis, Pally, you're just a dollar sign to me. Isn't that great? (laughs) So what do you... It's a good... You know, I... I've mentioned him on this show before, and some of the uh, some of the viewers and listeners do know him. Uh, Utah Phillips, Bruce Utah Phillips, who is where the first place I learned labor history was from going to his concerts. He'd tell these great labor stories. He was a socialist. He uh, ran for the Senate in Utah, but uh, I, I had him on my the radio show I used to do, and. Um, it was right before Thanksgiving. And I said, Bruce, you know, I, I'll bet this is not your favorite holiday, thinking of the whole indigenous people, the bad treatment. And he said, no, he said, it's, I love this holiday because it's one where you feel where people come together and feel good about being with other people. He didn't know you because you've established that you don't have any friends. But I mean, it was um, so. I mean, I think if you if you take from these holidays the best of them, and you can strip away the religious significance if you want, but you can just to be with family and to take seriously that you're going to be in a good mood and you're going to do good things and you expect other people to do it as well. And I think that's, that's what kids need to learn. Right. Not that they can't get a gift or they can't ask Santa Claus for something, but just that they're going to be decent people. May I, may I starting at Christmas? May I challenge sure. you with all, of, of course, with yeah. all due respect, with all due respect, which means, <laughs> There's none coming. None. Yeah. Uh, by the way, as a, as from now on, instead of saying uh, "stay out of trouble," yeah, I want to end every appearance with Reverend. You're nothing more than a dollar sign to me. Uh, yeah, I have a theory about family. Okay. Family is a choice, and. Who you consider family is your decision. And the idea that you have to spend family with blood relatives borders on eugenics. It borders on something the Aryan circle would come up with, that you have some special affinity towards people because they share your bloodline. Given what family really is, and, and as we're maturing into real, the realization that the nuclear family is a social construct that never actually existed, I, the idea to me of family is I decide who, who's my family. That's my... Yeah. I, do you expect me to disagree with that? No, I mean... Of course it is. It, it, a lot of families are totally dysfunctional. And so this this uh, kind of holiday spirit that's built around the idea that only family matters and that all families are good. And they were back in the Ozzy and Harriet days. Um, yeah, that's that's a bad idea. Yes. But you can choose to actually like your family. I mean, I like my family. And. I had never thought of the eugenics connection, uh, probably because it's really not there. 
But the idea that you have a special affinity towards somebody because you share similar DNA, I, I think that's dangerous. And I think people need to stop. What is it, 21 and me? What's the 23 and me? What is the 23 and me? That whole thing. Yeah, that, I, I never, I, I, I never been interested in that. Who cares? Who cares? I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. And, and I think it, it I breeds, don't care. I think it breeds racism. The idea that you like knowing who you were related, having pride because yeah. your great great grandfather came to Oregon on a Conestoga wagon. I mean, who cares? What is that? That says nothing about you. Zero. Right? Yeah. Well, it's, that's absolutely right. That's why I don't care about it. That's why I don't do it. I've never been inclined. If somebody gave me a 23 and me, I probably would re-gift it. But now I know I'm not re-gifting it to you. And this is what I used to say to my kids this time of year when they were, you know, under the age of seven. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What did you tell them? Do you know, do you know, there's a huge Santa Claus shortage this year. You understand that. Really? So in the event, yes, it's very big all over the country. And um, I think they're, they're lowering their standards. There's one week till Christmas. If you wanted to go out to Macy's or something and try to become Santa Claus, even for a day and then film it or have triumph come and, and ask mm -hmm. for dog toys, It'd be perfect. Well, let me ask He'd you. He'd be a perfect Santa Claus. Isn't isn't a a, a store Santa Claus kind of like wanting to be president? If you want to be president, there's something wrong with you, right? If somebody wants, you should yeah. you should be drafted to be a a store Santa. Anybody who wants to be a store Santa, there's something wrong. You, this should be something you do again you know, against your better judgment. Having kids sitting on your lap and promising them candy, nothing good ever comes from that. <laughs> Most children do not ask for candy. Most children ask for a car, an airplane, an entire military, a set of military figures. They do not ask for can't. That's what they got at Halloween. Right. They're over that already. Now they got to get something bigger and better. Do you remember uh, Johnny Carson used to read letters to Santa? Do you remember? This? I do remember that. And I, I'm I do getting remember the chills that. thinking about it because he would. It, I'm, I'm just they were letters that the post office found and I'm getting a lump in my throat. It, 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 they were letters that, and Carson couldn't get through the letters because they were always, he, he read the letters of the kids asking for somebody else. And mm -hmm. it was, breath, you know. Uh, sure. And some Christmases he couldn't do it. So we, do you remember Frank Conniff used to do the show? We did a segment yeah. on the show. <laughs> Where we would read these fake letters to <laughs> letters, and they were exactly like Carson's letters. And Frank and I would make fun of the kids. What an idiot! He's not asking for anything. What do you think? For, for himself. 
heart-wrenching <laughs> stories about how beautiful the kids were. And Frank and I go, I don't think this kid understands Christmas. <laughs> it was so much. It was so much fun oh. to do, just to make fun of kids. And <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a tough time of year for uh, people, isn't it? Family yeah, memories. Very much is. Yeah, very much. It's uh, it's a time when you uh, and and you know COVID, which is now making its sad return, uh, makes it much more difficult. I mean, we did not go to. Uh, to see our grandchildren last year, not for Thanksgiving, not for Christmas. Right. And uh, so what we did was we put a bunch of stuffed animals around a table and then ate and then put the kids on FaceTime and said, hey, look, there's a vulture over here. He's eating soup. Mm. You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's <laughs> nice. Why is the but day it, after Christmas so horrible? Like I always thought, like oh, the day after Christmas, I go, "What happened?" In, in, in tw like eight hours ago, it was so nice here, and now it's just yeah. it's worse than it was before Christmas. Why is that? Uh, I just I think people get deflated from the fact that whatever good came on Christmas, if anything did, it's not coming the next day. It's not something that's it's here forever it makes people sad the but, week leading but of course up to in, christmas in, the week leading up to a, christmas is so much better than christmas day and the week between christmas and new year's that should be canceled <laughs> yeah, we should just go directly to new year's <laughs> that week after yeah. the week between christmas and we, new year's is this, let's just erase everything you felt in the week. It, it's horrible. Yeah. Well, what, what if you thought this is the time I was really going to make my New Year's resolutions? I was going to work hard on it for six days. Hmm. Then, then you'd have something to do. And then you, because then you could develop all kinds, you could write them down and, and then you could ignore them on January 2nd like everybody else does. Don't right. some, don't some people like? How long does Christmas? Don't people aren't there twelve days of Christmas? Yeah, there. Yeah, we we used to do that occasionally, in, to de-emphasize the fact that there were gifts. We would spread them out and give small little things to our kids. We used to do that twelve days of Christmas, well, and but what what you. In Britain, for example, there is something after. Christmas is called Boxing Day, and it's a major day for shopping. So some cultures do have an understanding that the day after Christmas is very special because you can buy more crap. Why don't we, like, say it's 12 days of Christmas starting on the 25th? Is it 20, the 25th? That's the way we did it. Yeah. Are there countries where they just stay in the Christmas spirit for 12 straight days? Yeah, plus there's Orthodox Christmas, which is a a week, I think two weeks, actually. There's Russian Orthodox Christmas, there's Greek Orthodox Christmas, and they're later. Jewish Orthodox so, Christmas, um, where you receive your gifts through a white hole, with a hole in a white sheet, I believe. <laughs> 
<laughs> what are you going to do for Christmas? I uh, poison wells. Uh, yeah, good. Poison some wells. And I like Christmas. I love it. I, I, a quiet day. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. I love Christmas. Then again, I also like Yom Kippur. So I like any I like well, any day anything. where people just shut the hell up. <laughs> Anytime it's quiet in New York City, yes. you know, uh, you know, I like nine eleven because people are because quiet. On they're quiet. Just anything <laughs> that. Uh, did I mention to you last week, or perhaps it was someone else? I used to do a radio show with Pat Buchanan. We did it for about. Uh, almost every day for a year and a half. And then he ran for president. I was only late for the show once and it was around December and I came in and I was slightly out of breath and I sat down and Pat goes, Barry, uh, why are you late? Have you been out kicking over nativity scenes? (laughs) And I said, I thought about it. See, I don't. There's another thing. These nativity scenes. We used to live in a neighborhood when we didn't live in Washington itself. And one of our neighbors had a nativity scene up every year. And they were very conservative and they were kind of unpleasant people. But over the manger, not only did they have shepherds and the wise men, but Santa Claus santa claus over the manger now if that's not a corruption of everything i mean that's that's a corruption santa, of santa claus and christianity i don't think santa claus is in the new testament i think it's an old he's an old testament prophet he looks like it yeah. he looks he, he looks like it no but it, you know um what's the greatest gift I spent, what is materialistically speaking What's the best gift you ever got on Christmas? And you just said, I wanted this and I got it. A chemistry set, a Gilbert chemistry set when I was probably eight or nine years old because it had all these chemicals. It had books about it and it had certain elements that you could use mixed with some other elements that weren't in there to build explosives right yeah and and do yeah. they still sell chemistry sets or is the patriot act outlawed them i'm serious <laughs> i really don't know i don't know the answer to that do they sell it i don't know i i don't go to toy stores anymore. You know, I, my i grew up my i wanted a chemistry set my parents couldn't afford it so they did the next best thing they went and got all the thermometers in the house and broke them open. And they said, play with this. We'll be in the other room. This mercury, you'll have so much fun playing with this. And uh, they, yep. yeah. I think I had a chemistry set yeah. growing up. What's your favorite element? <laughs> mercury. I love mercury. My father used to have a box where he had all kinds of things, including a vial of mercury that you could just move around and watch mm-hmm. it move and grow and uh, uh, petrified wood he had there. I was very close to my dad. Very close. Very, very close. I had petrified wood the night I lost my virginity. <laughs> My wood was petrified. I, I really, it was 
kind of hoping you wouldn't go there, but I expected that you I would. No, <laughs> but, I have no pride. I, I'm a desperate man. <laughs> well, what's going on now that we've covered uh, Christmas? Yeah, it's pretty much everything. Yeah. Um, what's going on? Well, I was, uh, you know, Paul Krugman, you know, we love him much of the time, but not all the time. But he had a very interesting column and he wrote it in light of all of the aid that's going to Kentucky for the tornadoes. And of course, everybody in the congressional delegation, including Senators Rand Paul and Mitch McConnell, begged Biden to give more money for that relief, which, of course, he did. And it's actually it's a good thing. I mean, I think we ought to be in the position of trying to help people who oh, are in I'm a crisis. You said begging money for but, relief. And I was thinking about how I lost my virginity. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyhow, so um, but the idea that Rand Paul, who, of course, not just opposed funding when Hurricane Sandy hit New York and New Jersey, but ridiculed people for even asking for it, suggesting that if they had planned better in advance, this wouldn't have happened. So it's it's really disgusting that these terrible United States senators would have the nerve to ask Biden so publicly for extra relief. It did give me an idea, though. I don't think anybody's taken me up on this. Why not put into the Build Back Better plan, which is clearly never probably never going to become law, right. certainly not in the year 2021, um, put in some special treats just for Kentucky and Tennessee and let Rand Paul and Mitch McConnell vote against extra funding for their own states. And West Virginia. And West Virginia. Now, I don't think West Virginia was hit very hard. What with the, saying, uh, why not? Well, they tried because he tried that. He, he gave Manchin's wife this cushy job and it didn't make any difference. Manchin is no more friendly toward doing the right thing. Child tax credits will by tomorrow be disappearing, which will take an enormous hundreds of thousands of kids and plunge them right back into poverty. Yeah. And, uh, you know, here is Joe Manchin. Of course, he, he has a Maserati. He, he lives on a, a, a party boat right here in Washington when he's in Washington. And uh, an enormous percentage of people in West Virginia have very serious tooth problems, dental problems, hearing loss. He won't get along with putting any kind of financial support for hearing aids or for dentistry into the Build Back Better plan. West, how far are you? How far are you from West Virginia? Mm, uh, we can get there in about an hour and a half. And how many People voted for Biden in West Virginia. It really went for Trump, right? Big time. Oh, very much, very much. How do you explain yeah, that? Well, be, well, I think it's, um, I wish I could explain it. I mean, pe people don't recognize their own best interests, and everybody knows that. Thomas Frank wrote a couple of books about it. But it's, um, you know, you enlightened self-interest is a pretty good way to start 
your moral decision making. You look at something and you say, wait a minute. Now, if this happened to me, I would want help or I can't believe that other people have this and I don't have it. I mean, just being self-aware and then you can say, and wait a minute, my neighbor, she needs help too. And gradually you can build on that or you can do what, you know, most billionaires do, which is say, Hey, where's my money? Where's more money? And, uh, by the way, uh, I could care less about my neighbor's literally figuratively or otherwise but it is it's it's really hard for me to understand because we do go to west virginia a couple times every summer to look at the at the places people are forced to live i mean they're hovels they're really impoverished areas and to think that their senator cares so little about them that he won't support a bill and then argue as mcconnell did yet again a few hours ago that this spending is inflationary all in i think tonight he said a hundred percent of the inflation is due to government spending now that's just not true right but he says it and a lot of people in kentucky and a lot of people in west virginia go well sounds good to me we don't want inflation my god we'll have nothing and uh, so that's a big problem and i yeah. don't get it i and I, that kristen cinema is out today explaining why she doesn't want uh to end the filibuster and uh, because if you change the filibuster rules if there's no filibuster then policies could change all the time that was what her spokesperson said policies could change all the time well i mean that's always true I mean, all you have to do is look at the regulations, for example, that Trump put in about the environment and see that many of them have been repealed by the Biden administration and statutes can be repealed. But and what's Simmons wrong with about, that? It's, she's all about stability. She's emotionally stable, intellectually stable. She's the same person she's always been. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, the, the, she thought the Green Party was a party for money. They right. thought the Green was dollar bills. Right. Yeah, she, thousand dollar bills. Um, okay, I saw West Side Story. We saw that. We were a little, you know. We we do occasionally go to the movies with other with other people. I think that's a movie that didn't need to be remade. Now I'm curious. Have you seen I, it? No, I. There are two movies. There's a movie that Adam McKay just came out with with Meryl Streep and right. Leonardo DiCaprio. That's supposed to be a masterpiece. It's up there with Doctor Strangelove. And I told my friend about the movie. I said, "Oh no, it's getting bad reviews." I said, "Not, not the movie. Not according to the critic that I read at the Intercept." And then mm-hmm. I read that. Steven Spielberg's West Side Story is his masterpiece. This is his greatest film ever. So people see two different movies, and you're saying it's not that great. No, I mean, I I don't think it really needed to be remade. Um, And it's very unlike, 
If you watch a movie, for example, from the 50s, a film noir on Criterion or one of those things, which my wife and I do a lot now that we've hooked up to Criterion, you can watch it and say for a period piece, it, it's spot on. So you see something like Niagara with Joseph Cotton and Marilyn Monroe, one of the few film noirs that's actually in color. And you go, it's doesn't feel like it's happening today because it didn't it was happening in 1953 but there's a certain intensity to it when you see west side story which is very i mean the story is very much the same as as the original and as i I didn't see the broadway show but but there's something missing in it and joanne and i both felt the same i mean i looked at her at the end of the movie and she said this is this didn't really spark much interest. The choreography is magnificent. Is same, but the idea the that you're going to... What was that? Is it the same exact music? Yeah, I mean, yeah, most of the... All of the songs are in. But the choreography is certainly better than it was when it was first made as a film. But the other thing I didn't like about... I hate... I don't want to do spoilers, but the ending of the thing really left me cold. I do not like films that come up with a quick, easy solution to wrap things up at the end. I don't like the white savior idea. I hated movies like The Blind Side, where this is football player, African-American football player is kind of adopted oh, by uh, Sandra Bullock. What a horrible by movie. Sandra Bullock. Is hard. And, then, and then, of course, so afterwards, we learned that that the, the guy who was portrayed, of course, saw the film and didn't like it either and didn't like his own portrayal in it. But this has a, a, a somewhat similar ending where things just get wrapped up too neatly and where white gang members, Puerto Rican gang members all have a kind of kumbaya moment. It's just, I just found that repulse. And is that how the it's just not ends? that simple? Is that how the original ended? But, is that how the original West Side Story ended? I do not remember how the original one ends. I don't remember what the last scene is, but then I don't want to describe it anymore. But it's um, yeah. I, and this is remember a season where most people saw in the Heights, too. And uh, there are lots of legitimately controversial decisions about casting in that movie but the it's a much easier to grasp film and it doesn't have you believe that gangs are people who rarely had guns who fought mainly with their fists or baseball bats that's not how gangs function anymore and i think that's why younger people find this to be impossible to to watch i mean i don't think there i think Joanne and I may have been the youngest people in the audience on Sunday night when we saw it. I mean, there were a lot of people, not too many people, or we wouldn't have gone in. But we, um, it's just not, the music is good, but the music, the music was pop music at the time. I mean, America and all of those kind of classic tunes from it that Stephen Sondheim wrote. They were pop songs also. And, but now it's just, I, I, it just left me completely flat. Flat. Okay. By the way, not like tick, tick. Yes. Go go ahead. ahead. Not like what? Uh, 
not like Tick, Tick, Boom, which is streaming on Netflix and which has uh, Andrew Garfield as Jonathan Larson, the author of the play Rent. And that is a spectacular musical. And I'm not a huge fan of musicals, but that was it's in the environment of the AIDS, the starting of the AIDS epidemic. And, and it's, it's, it's stunning and I, it's still around and it's even showing in movie theaters as is the movie you were describing uh, about Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence. They play astronomers who realize that there's a comet about to hit the earth and their goal is to go on, talk shows and television and radio and convince people this could wipe out all life on earth. And it, it does have mixed reviews. Did you, did you see but, it? Uh, I have not seen it. So what would you recommend? Cause you are a lover of movies. What, what do you recommend on Netflix? What do you recommend? On the other well, well, tick, 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 boom. And also, I, I've never been a, f- a fan of Jane Campion's films, but she has a new one called The Power of the Dog, which is stunning. It's really, you have to really pay attention to what's going on in it. But it's it's streaming, and uh, I enjoyed that a lot. And frankly, Will Smith, who's bored the hell out of me for the last many movies um his movie about the father of venus and serena williams is really good it's i mean it's a little schmaltzy but not over the top and it doesn't feature his own son playing a character in a science fiction movie which was possibly the nadir of the will smith legacy right. came out a few years ago but the, uh, those three i mean i think seeing King Richard, it's called Tick Tick Boom, Power oh, of the Dog. Those are three great films. You've seen King Richard. Yeah, that's the one about the father of Serena. Oh, and I'm Venus thinking Williams. Richard. The th- Apple TV is advertising. I thought they were advertising Richard the Third. Succession. Haven't seen it. Have not seen it. You know, I it, it's very hard to get me. Not that this is a good trait. It's bad. I'm ashamed of this. It's hard to get me hooked on a show because I give my heart to just a couple of shows, and when I give my heart to a show, I watch it over and over and over again. Like Mad Men, I just I lose myself in Mad Men. I lose myself in The Sopranos. I'm embarrassed to say I you know lose myself in the West Wing to this day. It's still I'm sorry. There are just a handful of shows and The Crown, which I can just watch over and over again. Succession. I have found a show that I can lose myself in. The acting really? and the writing. Yeah. I and I can see myself rewatching it over and over again. It's it's great. Yeah, it just, it just grabs me. Some shows just don't grab me. I, I wish they did, but it, most mm. shows just feel like a waste waste my time. My new thing is watching the first twenty minutes of a movie. That's how really. I, yep. No, I could never do that. That's if how I, I get got through my in- queue. I just watch the first twenty minutes, and I go, <laughs> no. I don't need to see the rest of this. I 
I don't now, know. I either know how not it's going to end or. No, you got to watch the whole thing. What if something extremely important happens 50 minutes into the film? Then you're not going to see it. You're not going to know. know sometimes that. movies, sometimes movies redeem themselves the longer that you watch them. But I guess it, from what you said, you probably didn't. Uh, you haven't been hooked on elves, the Danish Christmas horror movie. It's no, six episodes long. Elves? It's, yeah, it's about, it, it's kind of like Joe Dante's um, Gremlins in that there are cute little elves and then there are really ugly, mean-spirited killer elves, too. You it like all takes place. You love horror films. I love horror Do films. Do I pronounce that properly? Horror, right? Horror. Oh, I've got it. Not horror. Yeah, no. Not- horror horror no they the horror movies about prostitutes no okay that's not yeah i know where you're going and you get scared by them or are you amused by them the only film as an adult that i ever was scared about actually was also a christmas themed movie called the lodge the lodge and it's on some streaming service now and that it was such a creepy premise, so well acted. I was almost shaking watching the thing. And there were so few people in the movie that, that I mean, I, there was nobody to go warm me up. You know, there's nobody. Right. I was just by myself. But that was creepy. The Lodge. Right. I'd suggest you see it as it long as like you can deal with. Is it like The Shining? No, I mean, it, you're supposed to kind of remember The Shining when you're watching The Lodge, but it's very, very different. Very different. Scary? But that's scary. The other th- yeah, it's, well, it's creepy and it's scary. But aside from that, I, you know, I don't get scared watching horror movies. Has Turner Classic Movies gone downhill or have I just seen everything? I think you've seen everything. No, but if you don't have, you know, the Criterion Collection, you can get it. You can get it month by month, right? And you can just watch everything for a month for ten bucks or something. But those we really do find very interesting. I subscribe to the Criterion Channel. I spent all my time working my queue. And never watching any of the movies. I would spend okay. two hours a night. Well, hell, you've only watched twenty minutes of each one, so no, you can you can get through the whole thing. I got excited about the Criterion Channel as an app, and I started yeah. collecting. I, I spent more time curating. I'm serious. I would spend two hours a night curating my cues, like they were baseball cards. And I never watched any of the movies. I really I, do. I really want to see oh. Diabolique again. Yeah. Yeah. My well, yeah. So um, Nightmare Alley opens tonight, uh, Thursday night. And uh, we watched the old version of that. I think it was from 1947, maybe. Nightmare Alley is a, a, a thriller. Uh, that takes place in large part in a carnival. In a carnival. I think that's and it was one of my TCM. Turner Classic Movies plays that all the time. Do they? Did you ever see it? No. Maybe but it's probably. good. It's a, what? Pro- I probably saw it. I have Turner Classic Movies going on in the background. Yeah. It's just ambient noise. Huh. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a clever story. I hope they don't screw up the remake, but um, it opens. It'll be available all the way through Christmas, only in theaters, I believe. Well, before you so, go, build back better. Not going to happen. No, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Um, I don't think it's ever going to happen. I don't know what else you can trade away. I mean, if Mansion Mansion no longer is even willing to talk about um, ch- child credits, and I don't think he wants to talk about preschool. He, he, these are core things, and I think you know Bernie said i mentioned this a couple of weeks ago he said he wouldn't vote for a bill that didn't have coverage for glasses dental work and hearing aids in it and i don't know whether he, that's what he's in fact going to do but uh it's a it's just an outrage that we sit around in this incredibly wealthy country that can spend gazillions of dollars on the defense budget and not consider that inflationary, not consider that overspending. You know, I was on a a zoom call with uh, Elizabeth Warren and uh, uh, Raphael Warnock last night. And, you know, I mean, I love them most of the time, but they don't have a message. It's, it's just, it's like, if you can't say we really want to make sure that the next generation is healthier and smarter and feels better about what the country is doing for them. If you can't convince people with that argument, then you have to come up with something new and you have to come up with a new bumper sticker. You have to come up with something that the democratic party is simply incapable of of messaging. I mean, we've talked about it before, but I don't, and and part of it is what you and, and Henry uh, talked about months ago. You have to be there first. I, every time I get an email or a text message now from somebody who's running against Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert, and I, I write them back and I go, I'd like to see what are your polling numbers? Not that they mean much. But they do mean something. And why suck out of the political system vast amounts of money if you aren't if you can't even demonstrate that you are going to win the Democratic primary? I never get an answer. I I got one answer from the Pennsylvania for John Fetterman, who I like in Pennsylvania. But the the poll was that he was two points ahead of Dr. Oz. Who the Philadelphia Inquirer, of course, refers refuses to refer to as Doctor Oz is Mamet Oz, and uh, he's all upset about that. He's on Fox every other night talking about it. But I do think um, I think we're going to have a very rough time getting genuinely progressive Democrats elected in the next election cycle, and uh, I. Uh, Harvey K, I, I, I'd love him, but I mean, I'm sorry he dissed you the other night. But the truth is, you know, there there needs to be there need to be people who have a sense of history and a good sense of what is practical, and they need to sit down with people in the Democratic Party and say, this is what you need to say. This is how you need to explain what healthcare development needs to be. This is what needs to be done with child care uh 
it's just it just people just bumble around and don't really have an answer and i don't know i don't know what it is but i'm i'm very nervous and i'm ner- uh, mitch mcconnell also said that in the event that there that he does become the majority leader again he's not committing to working through any supreme court nomination that comes his way from joe biden that's the beginning in other words he's saying another two years before the presidential election i still won't commit to bringing someone up for a vote who's just because he's been nominated which means mr Breyer, who's a fine fellow but uh hardly irreplaceable and still going to be there so that he can vote the right way on the gun bill and the two abortion cases and the church state cases. But by the time that's over in June or July of next year, um, those cases will be resolved. And then there's, you know, then there's a problem. How do you keep people in town to hold hearings on a Supreme Court nomination if it doesn't open up until July or August? So as a as a religious leader, as you are, why are you surprised by the hypocrisy of true believers? Earlier, you mentioned that Rand Paul, who you know didn't want hurricane relief for victims of Sandy or Harvey. But when it hits his state, he's the first one to ask for hurricane relief. Uh, McConnell says you can't replace Scalia in 2016. It's an election year. And uh, then uh, when in 2020, Amy Coney Barrett, he entered, it's an election year, but we replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Why would that surprise anybody? Republicans are true believers you get what you want by any means necessary, which says, as you pointed out earlier, there are no true believers on the other side of the aisle. The Democrats are not true believers. They're not willing to look like hypocrites for the right reasons. They're not willing to do what McConnell does. If you're a true believer, you get things done by any means necessary. The problem is, in order to be a true believer, you have to believe in something. And the Democrats, the, the, except for Bernie and AOC, they don't believe in anything. They don't believe in anything. Yeah, I, I want... I might put a few more people into that category, but you know, uh, Congresswoman Omar a couple of months ago had said, why don't you, why doesn't the Senate just fire the parliamentarian who refuses to allow immigration materials to be placed into these spending bills? Why don't you just get rid of her and do what you want? And you actually, you can, but, but it takes a 51 vote majority you can fire the parliamentarian but then you have to go to something called the parliamentarian office these are people who come to washington and study often for years and years all the arcane rules of the senate and 
you have to go there. That's the pool of people you have to draw from. Um, and the, the, the current parliamentarian, a woman named McDonough, has been in there for 10 years and uh, she's diagnosed with breast cancer a couple of months ago. And I think everybody's very reticent to, you know, to kind of even suggest that they might get rid of her. But I think if he did get rid of her, he would send a signal that says, um, thanks for what you do. We're not always going to take you seriously. And what Congresswoman Omar wanted them to do was simply put it in a bill, pass the bill, and then see what happens. And that, I think, is one of the it's not a terribly complex thing to do, but it would show that there are Democrats that the Democratic Party has a spine, that they're willing to do things that are not particularly, they're not way off base. This is not the June 6th, you know, excuse machine. These are people who have the ability to say, we, we believe in this, we, we think immigration is broken, and we're going to put it into a bill, and then we're going to vote on it. And whatever, the, the House, of course, would vote for anything that the Senate voted for that way. And let's see where the chips fall then. But this, it's, it's just inexcusable that the Democratic Party has is filled with the cowards that are there now. I, as I said, I would give it more people. I think you can find people like Ed Markey and others who are kind of doing the right thing. But then you got a lot of other dead weight moderate so-called moderate democrats um who you have to look out for in the next issue or the next one right. so I, I think we're going to have a big challenge next year and it's going to be a challenge that some people believe if roe versus wade is severely cut back if guns are back on the streets of new york with virtually no regulations possible that that will wake up the democratic base and I'd say that uh, police whistle might do that, but I wouldn't hold my breath for it. Next week, we have a question from one of our listeners. His name is Bartholomew Cubans or Cubbins. That's not his real name, but that's how he wants to be identified. Okay. He says, have you and the Reverend talked about this? We'll talk about this next week. In 2018, the researcher Frederick Clarkson exposed the existence of a Christian supremacist initiative called Project Blitz. Yes. That aimed to flood state legislatures with bills undermining the separation of church and state. We'll talk about that next week, Reverend. If that's that would be a good thing to do. I'd like to do that. All right. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn has dedicated his life to separation of church and state. For nearly a quarter of a century, he ran... Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Besides being a lawyer and a member of the Supreme Court Bar, he's also an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. And I have a new closing here. Okay. Reverend, you're nothing but a dollar sign to me. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's okay. better than saying you're nothing but a wooden nickel to me. Okay. Thank you. Stay out of trouble. Thank you. Better. Thank Only you good much. trouble. Bye-bye. See you next week. See you next week. Time now for the professors and Marianne. We do this every week and everybody's here. I just want to remind you all that Friday is office hours. 
we're doing a reading of the soup Nazi. I haven't told everybody this. We're going to do a, a live reading of Jerry Seinfeld's soup Nazi at office hours. And we're going to be doing live readings of It's a Wonderful Life. And we're going to cast various people in it. The soup Nazi, the casting for the soup Nazi, Professor Jonathan Bick will be playing Jerry. Did you know about this? I really, I heard it, but I uh, wasn't really. We're going to send you, uh, it's going to be a cold reading. Of the oh, soup. okay. And uh, Saul is going to be Newman <laughs> because of his politics. Andy Brown is going to be um, Kramer. Sarah Bush is going to be Elaine. I forgot who George is, but get ready for this. Guess who plays the soup Nazi? Rodrigo. Rodrigo will play the soup Nazi. How great is that? I, I like it. Stunt casting. Well, I'm going to start off with Professor Adnan Hussein because he looks bothered. You have a look on your face like, what, what, so what, let's start with you. You you look like you're. Well, I'm sorry I, that I, uh, that my um, stress, anxiety and being harried and hassled um, uh, communicated itself well, why don't we on do the, the why oasis don't we, that is this show. Why, why don't you do um, like your part and then I'll let you go because I have a feeling you're busy. I, you look like somebody who is uh, very busy this time of year. Well, today ever... my university uh, announced um, that it was shutting down campus. All final exams were moving to remote exams, even though they had been intended to be in person. Uh, we're closing down the office um, and they announced that in January and February, the first six weeks of the next semester will be remote instead of in person. And we just learned that today. So as a department head, it definitely and as an instructor next term, I mean, I was planning on teaching my Jewish and Islamic thought class um, that I'm co-teaching with a colleague in Jewish studies in person. We're going to enjoy a lot of great discussion and dialogue, and we'll try and do the same, you know, via Zoom. And we know that we can obviously have a lot of interaction on Zoom. This show shows it, um, you know, multiple times uh, during the week, but it isn't really quite the same. And it involves a lot of changes and adjustments. And so anyway, today was um, one of those crazy days where you have lots of meetings with your deans and you have colleagues who are panicking and students who are already writing about what's going to happen for next term. And so anyway, it's kind of interesting. And it's all because Kingston, Ontario, which has been blissfully and sort of merciful, you know, mercifully spared for so much of the pandemic with low case counts and um, by and large has uh, managed to weather the situation quite well, has now become the epicenter of COVID in Canada, really? has the highest current rate per 100,000, and in fact actually has set the record and has the highest rate since the pandemic 
in Canada. So the highest rates, I mean, right now it's more than double the rates of transmission than anywhere else in Canada. And it is um, significantly higher than um, any sort of municipality or public health unit has had in terms of surge of cases. So the rate of increase is now beyond any that we've seen elsewhere in Canada. And this is a small kind of, you know, small city, 100, 120,000, um, you know, located in eastern Ontario. It's not surrounded by any other large metropolitan areas, um, but it is you know, on the path between Montreal and Toronto and Ottawa. And it seems that the rugby team here held a was host to the um, kind of championships. Uh, you know, the uh, Queens rugby team ended up winning, but they host and, and are the champions, which is wonderful for them. But they brought in teams from all over um, BC, uh, British, so British Columbia, Atlantic Canada, as well as Ontario and Quebec teams, they came at the end of November. And I, you know, I think that may have contributed to both uh, spreading locally, but also now outbreaks um, that are happening that include, um, I think, Omicron cases. Um, at other college towns and universities are popping up now two weeks or so later. And uh, we already had a surge of Delta cases, but now it appears that we are sort of the epicenter of Omicron transmission and it's 70 times, it seems, you know, more transmissible. So that's definitely on my mind is, what is the how are we gonna weather this? What's the vaccination rate of people under the age of 22 in Canada. What, what do you suspect we're looking at right now? Well, what we did see, I mean, what's really fueled the search has been the 18 to 30, whatever uh, age category. So it is young people, uh, students. And interestingly, you know, we've had in-person classes and we've, uh, we haven't had distancing, but everybody had to be double vaccinated in order to participate. You know, there was a kind of vaccine mandate by the university that if you were going to be on campus and participate in the um, on in-person courses, uh, you had to be double vaccinated. And so that process happened over the course of the early fall of ensuring that and people registering that they had received their vaccinations. And um, in class, you nonetheless still had to wear masks unless you were the lecturer and you could have distance, uh, you know, more than six feet distance from any of the students. You could, as a lecturer, not choose not to wear a mask. But by and large, everyone was masked. And according to the contact tracing up until this latest big surge, uh, now they're overwhelmed and so they can't even do all the contact tracing. They're backlogged and uh, testing is backlogged. Everything is backlogged. But up until that time, there had not been a single case that they could verify was transmitted in the classroom. You know, they'd improved the ventilation, everybody's masked, and that seemed to end up being safe enough with everybody being double vaccinated. But it was all of the ancillary kinds of um, extracurriculars, the athletics, the um, gym, okay? People, they kept, they ended up keeping the gym open, and so people are not masked in the gym. And 
there have been a lot of socializing and parties and celebrations and especially this time of year um, after final exams when somebody's finished their final exams they you know want to celebrate and that has created massive um, increase in that age category even though probably I would say 90 to 95 percent of the student body in the vicinity of campus is double vaccinated um, right. so and break, also so 12 to 18 is vaccinated these are breakthroughs mostly. sorry these are mostly breakthroughs is what you're saying yeah definitely and I think with Omicron we're seeing that there's a lot of vaccine escape it may be mild um, in the sense that it's not as severe. We're not sure about that. There's some data, obviously, from South Africa that suggests that, of course, their population is younger, you know, and most of, more of that population has a natural immunity as opposed to vaccine immunity. Only 24 percent of the population was vaccinated. So really, that's not a necessarily the best uh, set of data to decide whether that's going to be similar to what we see in places like Europe and North America, where there's been huge uptake of uh, the vaccination. So we have vaccine related immunity, mostly for the spike protein. You know, if you've had these mRNA ones, and I think we're seeing in Europe that there's an awful lot of breakthrough with Omicron because there is vaccine escape. And with older populations, um, you know, skewed a little bit higher to, uh, you know, the aged um, in North America, in Europe, uh, you know, we'll see if hospitalizations and so on are high as a result of, of you know, Omicron um, and, the, and the vaccine escape. So we're at the epicenter, it seems, here in Kingston for what we'll see, you know, maybe in a couple of weeks in Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal and other places. Uh, but we somehow um, had Omicron, had a Delta surge already and then Omicron transmitting very rapidly uh, now. There were like 400 cases just like two days ago in a not a huge city. So that's the situation here. Let me go around and get responses from <clears throat> Professor Ann Lee and Professor Marianne and Professor John to all this. What is your... Well, we're in the season as well. And because I live in a smaller New England state, uh, actually our proportion of deaths per thousand, if you look at it from a proportional point of view, is actually very high. We're in the top 10 in U.S. states, even though... The total is not very large. The relative proportion is still high. Um, and people in my state are not paying attention very well, but I, I hardly ever go out anyway relative to the cold weather. But, uh, you know, it, it's getting very cold here, so I, I, we'll, we'll just see. Right. And it's spreading fastest in New York and New Jersey. Yeah, that's. Uh, uh, but they have higher vaccine, you know, they have high vaccination rates. So I think that's still a, right. you know, a good thing. Yeah. Uh, anybody? Although only 15 percent have boost that the I think the aggregate data is 15 percent are boosted uh, of the total population. I think that that's that's also true. This, right. The, 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 they just haven't caught up yet. 
Professor Bick, Professor Marianne, what, one of the things I said at the top of the show, and I think we talked about it with uh, Dr. Hershenfeld, the, the sheer persistence of this, is this our World War II? Is this the thing where nothing is the same Truly, nothing will be the same after. Is this it in our lifetime? I do. I, I do think that uh, our lives are not going to go back to what they were prior to COVID, unless we find some remarkable cure, uh, you know, that can wipe it out, um, or a vaccine that's you know nearly a hundred percent effective it does seem we are going down the road of having to deal with this on an ongoing basis. And the fact that the world and particularly the wealthy countries of the world have made, um, you know, not a very strong effort at trying to vaccinate the entire planet. Uh, we're going to continue to see variants, uh, you know, some that are uh, spread uh, more and more quickly, some that may be more or less deadly. Uh, they'll have different variations, but they will continue to occur. And, um, I, you know, it's very sad <laughs> to, to see this. And, and we can't get beyond, it seems, uh, you know, thinking only about our nation. You know, it, it's dividing the world up into these uh, arbitrary uh borders and and acting as if this is something that's going to respect those borders it's not it doesn't and just like global warming we have to act just gonna... as a species right Please. not as americans or russians or chinese we have to act together for the benefit of everyone and i know we don't have much practice in this but this is what we have to do to survive is covid this is an outrageous question. We've tried it through Henry and Irritable. We've, not we, they have tried to teach uh, our immune system. Is it possible that COVID is a, an immuno response to climate change? That if COVID persists, it shuts down the economy to the point where uh, we stop producing greenhouse gases. I mean, is this, is it conceivable? Because our body is a, a miracle. A lot of inexplicable reactions to disease. Professor Marianne, you're shaking your head as, the, as though this is crazy talk. But in the large scale, could COVID be an immuno response to climate change? Our bodies are saying we have to shut down human activity Otherwise, we're going to kill kill ourselves. Well, um, I would say the other way around is that COVID was the direct result of like habitat destruction 
Right. Uh, Osterholm wrote about this years ago and, and talked about seeing the first wet market. And you have all this wildlife and all this domestic fowl crammed together in very unsanitary, disease prone conditions. And you just have one big tea tree dish for disease transmission. What's it called? Zoonotic leaps? Is that what it's called? And, and as Henry had said, it, you know, in one of the COVID town halls, almost most of our major viruses like polio have come from an animal origin, HIV, for instance. Uh, right. The kind of technology we have now didn't exist even in 2003 in terms of being able to quickly, quickly sequence and having these big uh, genetic libraries built up. So that's why they were able to sequence the COVID, the SARS-2 so quickly and they had a vaccine for it very quickly because there's a lot of work done with mares and proceeding but um i i i think that what what i'm thinking about when i hear all this is that the execs at the executives at Far- pfizer have gotten their way it's become endemic they're going to endemic. be making sales for as far as the eye can see they did not want to wipe this out this was a this was a deliberate uh, uh, plan on the part of major pharmaceuticals, this COVAX, this, this consortium that Bill Gates brought together, that basically you know, were going to like enrich all of, the, uh, all of the pharmaceutical companies. And, you know, the lies that were being spread at the time. I went back and started in, today and read through some of Lee Fong's at The Intercept, some of his old reporting. Beginning of this year, there were major uh, vaccine factories all over the planet ready to, like, gear up their factories to start mass producing this vaccine. And all it really would have taken uh, an incoming it could have been Trump, but he wasn't going to do it and could have been Biden. All it would have taken was to evoke the Bay Dole uh, law and said, hey, you know, you develop this technology with federal funding. You know, this is we've got a national emergency. We got an international emergency going on. So there was very little, there was very little to no uh, impetus on the part of the Western leaders and not just Biden, but I mean, the European leaders or anybody to, to do this. And so now, you know, these kind of things don't always go as planned because, you know, my hope in the real optimistic scenario is that the Omicron, even though is much, much more virulent, much more contagious, it is much milder and it goes the route of a lot of flus. You know, flus just mutate into some much milder version of the flu and it just kind of, you know, goes away. It's really kind of, I have a feeling though that COVID is like the flu is not going to continue. It's not going to completely go away. There's, there's going to be variants pop up and vulnerable populations like we do now with the flu will get, you know, the yearly booster shot. Right. That's kind of what I'm saying. You know, in a year and a half. The UK UK now is in its own. It's astounding. I mean, a few days ago, they said the doubling time was 3.1 days. Then it was like 2.8 days. Now it's 2.2 days. I mean, it's just, it is just going rampant in the UK. So we will see, we can look at what our fate will be next month most likely, and what goes on in the UK right now. So, the, the uh, we've hit eight hundred thousand dead Americans from COVID in what a almost two years? Is that fair? Right, coming on March. Uh, 
a bad flu season, 50,000 dead Americans, the idea that this is... Yeah, I mean, this is pretty, uh, pretty bad. Doctor, uh, Professor Hussein looks pained. He's dealing with something uh, bureaucratic. I was able to ascertain that you look bothered. We're on Zoom. I was able to read your you mind. know me too well i guess um, all of these interactions have uh, <laughs> well but allowed you to perceive that yeah well i was more speaking to zoom and working this way uh the idea that i could through zoom be talking to somebody who's in kingston ontario and pick up something uh can we teach can what is it like teaching remotely and how remote is it well i have to say i didn't um <clears throat> enjoy my seminars last year as much um, as i typically do um you know, it's hard to insist on people turning on their cameras. Um, sometimes people do, sometimes they don't. Um, uh, some people, one thing that is good is that I think some people who are shy to speak in front of their peers um, might have been induced to at least use the chat. I mean, we know that the chat on our calls and on the show is lively, and I found that a couple of people seemed more comfortable writing remarks and response in the chat. And so I started posting even during the seminar myself in the chat. So I had kind of almost like two conversations happening at the same time. And I would stimulate people in the chat, throw questions in there and there was, and sometimes bring what was coming out in the chat into the larger or into the uh, conversation that we were having on the call. So I found ways to try and make it a little bit more interactive than it seemed like it was going to be because I do think people find that they're or feel a little more passive on a Zoom call. It's still a little bit like watching a screen, watching television. You know, it's interactive, but um, something about looking at a screen just imposes a barrier to real engagement. You get little delays and so on. And sometimes what you need in seminar is the visual cues and you have to be able to look around the room and take in a few people at the same time to see, oh, did somebody just have a thought? It looked like they just wanted to say something or something clicked. And so you go to them or you um, encourage them or give them a look like, yes, it's okay to you know share your thoughts, welcome. you know to make it more inclusive. So some of that dynamic can be harder to pick up uh, on, on Zoom. So even though a seminar, I think, is a lot better than a lecture on Zoom, a lecture just puts everybody to sleep. I mean, that's already a problem anyway, even in in-person. Um, unless you're in a big theater hall with like 500 people, then I think it doesn't really matter. You might as well show a video of the lecture. But when you have smaller lectures and it's like 70, 80, 100, I still try and 
turn that into an interactive space. Um, and I do think that that can work. Um, I had a wonderful professor who really inspired me, uh, became my supervisor for my dissertation. And he could take a 400 person lecture hall and turn it into Phil Donahue's, you know, kind of uh, talk show because he would run around through the aisles and ask people and he would learn at least 30 or 40 percent of the names of students like in a huge like one semester when you've got 400 students he would somehow learn about 100 to 150 names of the students um, and he you know by the fourth or fifth week he'd be calling on people and he so there some incredibly talented people I think can make even a huge um, alienating experience into something vital and engaging but for us mere mortals you know as instructors you know, uh, you really need that interaction. You need a certain number that you can create a sense of community and inclusion. Even as a, in lecture form, I think it's useful to be in person. Um, and so I thought it was a struggle. Um, it was definitely a struggle. I didn't enjoy it quite as much, but we did our best and we altered our assignments to make them a little bit shorter um, because it was taxing. I mean, I think people's minds were exhausted just being on Zoom for four or five hours. If you had two classes and each of them were, you know, live and synchronous. I mean, but at the end of the day, I think your mind was mush, you know, so let me, let me you need that interaction. You need to get out of the classroom. You need to have conversations and you need to have dialogue. And I felt like I didn't get to know my students nearly as well because they didn't have like the little casual before and after conversations quite as much. Um, and I miss that. Let me offer a different framing. I don't know about teaching, but I was talking to a boss, somebody I work for occasionally, about comedy writing on Zoom. And there are many upsides to comedy writing on Zoom. It's changing a, a paradigm that was unsustainable, that was built, you know, I don't know, in the 50s where the alpha dog sits at the head of the, the table and you have eight neurotics pitching for you know looking for approval and so much of that was not comedy writing it was mostly working out mommy and daddy issues and then the accidental byproduct was a script or whatever you were working on zoom my experience with zoom again i've got one foot into retirement so you know i'm like I'm going, this is great. No commute. I get, you know, I, I, I just need to wear a shirt. Uh, a lot of people who can, who have, I think uh, Professor Catherine Liu calls them people who email for a living, that there's all, people who email for a living uh, are finding, or at least some of them are finding it to be liberating. Is I mean, it absolutely is. I mean, 
I'm talking about the teaching experience. Right, I think right. that is a different kind of space. But for every administrative meeting that I have, and as a department head, I've got plenty. I'm lousy with meetings. And I hate to have to go in, make a special trip into campus for a meeting. Like, that makes no sense to me. We can get together. I don't need to really feel your soul, you know, for administrative matters. Right. So, I, you know, as many barriers as possible, great. They're so boring, these meetings anyway. So that's what's great for Zoom is you don't have to come in and commute in. You can kind of sometimes turn off your camera and, like, grab something that you need or put the, you know, the hot water on for tea and it's much more relaxed. You don't, you know, I have all kinds of sport jackets and things and they are moldering. The moths are having, you know, having at them because I don't need to bring them out and wear them. But teaching, I feel is different. And that I really do miss the in-person interaction, but everything else around it, I think you can do, you know, via Zoom and it's great. It does liberate you. Uh, Professor Lee, what what is being revealed? about the nature of work. What are we seeing here? Because Jamie Dimon, the, the gangster who runs uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, wants everybody to come to the office, but now he's saying, well, I guess I'm wrong. A lot of these mobsters, these corporate heads, want people in the office. But the workers are pushing back and saying, you know, uh, what do I need to be here for? What do you think is going on? Well, <clears throat> we're in a period of uh, the same kind of disintegration that occurred in early sort of globalization. We, we're seeing costs shifting all over the place. Um, central office, uh, corporate offices are now having to reassess the, the kind of footage they've allocated for uh, office work. That doesn't mean to say that telecommuting is is an answer or the answer. It's just an intermediate phase because of the pandemic. What this places a pressure on is actually the kind of work that was proposed a couple of decades ago. And that is a different type of group work and changing the nature of the workday. Um, and, and it can be done, you know, I mean, I, I unfortunately, I think that there are some um, you could say neoliberal Silicon Valley, et cetera, whatever that is, who who want to change that work environment and, you know, may have a neoliberal response to that. But that's for high tech work. The problem, of course, is assessing the relationship of this high tech work to actual physical labor and, and work. And, and those are have to be totally renegotiated. We have to renegotiate what questions are about mass transit. Uh, you know, there's just a whole bunch of things at work now that are going to be, um, you know, it, it's going to cause the the so-called supply chain disruption. It's not about so much supply chain disruption as it is just simply, you know, sort of fractures in, in how things operate. In other words, the thing about the supply chain disruption wasn't about the chain itself so much as it was about truck drivers. So there's something else going on. And so the nature of work has to be redefined. The truck drivers are nervous because they know that there's an entire system of self-driving electric trucks that's going to be there eventually that is going to squeeze the way they, they make a living. And they've already been disintegrated 
relative to being owner operators as opposed to working for corporate transportation. And, and so those things are changing as well. So you're going to see a lot of different conflicts that will happen more at a regional level. And you're going to see them in the oddest places. And I would say that, you know, certain centers where you get big intersections of industries are, are, going, to, are going to have these problems. Uh, whether it's, it, it's labor that has to be um, cut back and, and in the short run, that's what's going to happen. There's going to be an attempt by management to not hire people back or to, you know, try and work through the cause that because I've been seeing this online is people who will make up bullshit excuses about not, not hiring people back. And it's essentially an austerity measure. And these things need to be, you know, sort of addressed at a much broader level. I think that's where we see the sort of nascent uh, union organizing going on, which I, I find quite, quite exciting because it's going to sort of reorgan force companies to reorganize the nature of work. Uh, it's also going to, to change the nature of training and to just follow up on the issue of online learning. Online learning really sucks. I mean, I, I taught online for over a decade and it is just the worst form of, of teaching experience from a speaking from a teaching point of view. But on the other hand, the reason why I went into online learning was because I still thought that there was a way to use technology if you changed the, the basic organizational practices. And it's, it really requires a different pedagogical approach, organizing group work, uh, you know, creating ways in which students need to ch- can work together or interact. I think that, that that's just not been done. People are still sort of now in this, this temporary period where the online is just meant to, uh, as, as a fallback, uh, as a substitute because of COVID. I, I think we're, we're it, to me, it's very exciting. It's just that, uh, unfortunately, I think that the institutions are not ready for this change. This, this is something that is going to take a lot more effort to change. Right. Professor Marianne, Professor John, your thoughts on this, and then we can. I, I think there's a role for government here. Uh, I think that we need to people who do not need to be in an office together um, should be working remotely. And I think that the government needs to have a massive investment in the internet to make it stable faster and reach everyone in this country. Uh, this would help, you know, with all sorts of technical issues. And like uh, Professor Hussein was saying, you know, there are delays and there are uh, times when people drop and et cetera. Um, so, so that's one aspect of it. The other is that the government could say to uh, employers, look, you no longer have to have an office. Uh, therefore, you need to cover the expenses of people working at home or some of them at least right right? so you must provide good quality equipment you should provide for payment of uh, a part of their internet bill um you know uh for them to alter their their apartment or house so that they can have an an office-like space in it um 
you know, these things need to be done. And, and the fact that they're not is, you know, really revealing, I think, of the whole neoliberal ethos, which is, you know, let's let the market sort it out. Well, that's going to impose a lot of pain and a lot of disruption unnecessarily on people and the economy. So, uh, you know, I think the government's got to get involved. And as far as teaching is concerned, um, I would prefer to be teaching in a classroom with students. Um, However, you know, if we're in a situation where there it's because of health reasons, we can't. A, a higher quality internet would help. That would help part of it. The other is you could say to the students, look, uh, you have to have your video on to be counted as present. Um, you know, if, if we were in class together, you couldn't turn off the video where I couldn't see you. Right. Right. So, and, and if, in order to see their reactions and, and the, uh, the body language and so forth, I think it's actually easier on the screen to see more people at one time. In other words, you know, it depends where you're looking in the room or how the room is arranged, et cetera. So I don't know if that's necessarily a barrier. Um, are our I don't brains know. I, I, I have not taught extensively online, so, so I, I can't have, say for sure. They have done, some people believe that pornography rewires young men's brains and that video games rewire people's brains. Uh, Professor Marianne Cummings, are our brains getting rewired? I'm getting a lot of, uh, I'm working on visual cues tonight. Are we getting rewired? Are are we going to see generate a, a new generation that doesn't require the intimacy that we Oh, we that's think? nonsense. You know, it's like literally the first painting ever done was one of a butt. <laughs> I mean, like fertility cults my ass. I mean, some <laughs> guy was drawing butts on the side of a cave. I mean, that's just what it is. Uh, And that rewired their brains. Um, as much as picking up uh, a hammer and chisel rewires your brains. I mean, we're also, we're also remaking the entire world and then there will be something else, you know, coming down. It's, it's just amazing how, and I've got a drawer full of like circa two thousands, like, wires and cell phones just how quickly things are becoming obsolete right now and so it's like we have no idea what's although i have to say watch fahrenheit 451 the film made i think it was uh it it was made in 1960s and uh it was just amazing how much their technology looks like ipads you know flat screen tvs iphones it was it's but that was probably just circumstance in 10 years it's going to look more obsolete again so i'm not so look i i i think just in in terms of the education i don't have kids but uh, a friend of mine who does said that with the younger kids he's got a couple kid girls in high school and one girl is thriving online but the other girl it's just when they have these 20 minute breaks between classes, the other girl just wanders online and doesn't get back to the next Zoom room. And, you know, part of training kids, you know, trying to get along 
uh, socially is that, oh, well, the bell rings, you go into a class, you have the teacher right there. Uh, I think they need to accommodate kids who are having a much harder time. And they do see people, kids having a much harder time than others with, with learning. Must be tough for the bullies. But, how do you how do you bully <clears throat> a kid? Meet me in a breakout room after three. <laughs> a... Oh, you've never been on Twitter, have you? Yes, you have. Yes, I have. Oh, there's you can be bullying people online. As a matter of fact, it's scary. I I mean, I dealt with bullies like most of my years in grade in, in grade grade school. And I was actually able to, like, you know, grab one gal as my, after my brother taught me, just grab one and make sure you land a hard punch. And he was absolutely right. I don't care how many people were pulling my hair, kicking or punching me, just land one punch. And, oh, they all spread. Wow. Um, Cyberbullying? I don't know. I think I am glad that I did not have the Internet growing up. I think I would have had a much harder time dealing with the kind of real cruelty I have seen online. Yeah. And it's just, but anyway. Let's clean but, the slate. Um, let's talk about what you, let's start. Uh, I didn't add, what, what would you like to talk about, Professor Marianne? And then we'll go around. Oh, Hillary's running. <laughs> Hillary's going to be running. You know, no. I, I, I think I was right back in 2016. I had back when I saw her war vote back in 2002, I told my friend who was watching it with like, oh, my God, you're right. She is running. She is going to run for president. And she doesn't care if a million people have to die for her to prove her, you know, wartime cred. And I just said I would never vote for her. And I kept to my word. I was never going to vote for her. And, you know, if a bunch of us who really despised Hillary had just voted five percent or something you know green green party or third party it's like it was so close in terms of uh the the actual electoral votes that you know instead of having a like my god we just lost to donald freaking trump what are we as a party no we never had none we had none of that it was like the russians stole it it was comey stole it it was the bernie bros it was this that if you had had a solid loss, if Hillary had had a solid loss, I think the Democratic Party would have had to have done some measure of soul searching that they didn't, that they never did. And uh, and right now, um, I, I hope that Harvey K comes, uh, Professor Harvey comes uh, comes on because I've been reading some of his stuff, and he's been writing about. Of course, he writes about FDR. But more importantly, FDR's writings and speeches about tyranny and fascism and and the weakness of democratic governments when democratically elected governments become weak. And how are we weak? Because both parties are catering to money and they've just been reduced to this kind of political show for the masses. But they are actually paid like worldwide wrestling they're actually paid for by the same people so we've got this kind of fake democracy going on and it doesn't matter who's in power it, it just so happens that the a joe manchin for god's sakes can really set policy for the democratic party or the parliamentarian or whatnot so the fact that the democrats are so damn weak they're just inviting a proto-fascist like josh Hawley 
or to, and you know, the Democrats would love, I mean, they're really, they're so addicted to Donald Trump. They're both addicted to hating him, but they also think that, you know, they want him to run again, that, um, that may not work again, (laughs) but, uh, you know, um, so I think that I, I've been trying to be quote adult and holding back, but I think it's now it's time for progressives to be honest. When Pramila Jayapal told us two months ago that absolutely no way it was going to be 3.5 trillion or nothing, no way they were going to be decoupled. And then a month later is telling us to our face that I am taking a leap of faith. She is lying to us. When Nancy Pelosi now is openly, I mean, this is how diseased she is. Like, well, you know, uh, members of Congress, Congress can trade stock. Like, we don't have effectively the best inside information legislation coming down the pipe that's going to affect. And she can just say it, and the squad or the progressives do not call her out as the epitome of corruption and everything wrong. What happened? She was called called on her husband's stock trades? Well, she was, uh, somebody had asked her in a press conference that, you know, he was, they seemed to be doing exceedingly well in his recent stock trades. And she got kind of defensive and said, well, I, I don't, in that kind of halting, like non-speak, speaking speech of hers, that she thinks that it's just free enterprise. That it's like, you know, this is just what Americans do. No, this isn't free enterprise. You guys are dealing on insider information. You know, you and your spouse, like trading with socks. And what happened to this? There was supposed to be a kind of uh, blind trust, which I guess right. is... A bit of a pain in the ass to actually set up, but I mean that used to be the standard when you went into office that all of your assets got put into this trust you had, no connection to the people who were making decisions about them. Um, but that's gone out the window. I'm the progressive, yeah. If you not go, calling that out, have you is, been to capitaltrades.com? What's that? Have you been to capitaltrades.com? <laughs> You talk about that. Yeah, I, I, you, I went there a couple times. Maybe I should go a little more often. Yes, it's impressive. It's unbelievable. I go to nakedcapitalism.com. That's also a very interesting site. Um, back to reading consortium news regularly. That's uh, so, but on a high note, um, Kashama Swant has, I think, pretty much officially won because they're still counting votes, but now they're down to the level where there isn't enough remaining votes to overcome, even if they all went to the yes. There isn't enough votes to overcome or lead, which is over 300 now votes. So Good she's, uh, yes. Um, Donzinger, Stephen Donzinger is out of prison. He's in house arrest. But, I mean, he's getting much more high profile. And holy crap, I, I was uh, I went to Matt Orphalia's, uh YouTube channel and he had on um, a, a montage of things apparently from the last week talking about Julian Assange that included Rachel Maddow, Tucker Carlson and Chris Hayes all talking about what a travesty this is that Julian Assange is being treated this way. So uh, maybe there's there's a certain tipping point that's happening, happening there. I mean, this was always, this was always a travesty. And the fact that he had to effectively be a prisoner in the Ecuadorian embassy for 10 years, 
was a travesty. As the New York Times and Washington Post and all kinds of, and even some of the left-wing outlets that started bad-mouthing him, being all caught up in Russiagate, were using WikiLeaks as a source for a lot of their stories and reporting because they were, it was actually interesting. <laughs> so anyway, so, you know, um, I'm not voting Democrat. I'm not voting for the Democratic president unless it's a real progressive. And uh, I'm, I think we we see what happens. We had to do the experiment of progressives taking over the Democratic Party and being nice. It's colossally failed. You take over the Democratic Party, you go in guns blazing, figuratively speaking, so our friend Mark Cervesco is not upset. But, you know, you basically, they, their whole point of them was not to be against the Republicans. We know these guys are bat crap, crazy creatures. It was Democratic leadership. That was their whole campaigning message. Ilan Omar last year said five, five brave progressives could set policy because Nancy Pelosi's margins were so tiny. What happened to that? Well, in fact, in 2015, Shama Sawant said the Democratic Party is the graveyard of progressive movements. Oh, she was right about that. She was right. You know, she was very prescient. Um, about what happens. I mean, if you try and go that route without a large enough base that you absolutely do just take over the party in one fell swoop, you're going to be socialized into and neutralized, you know, within um, the structure of the Democratic Party, its leadership. Uh, they seem very adept at finding ways to divide and, um, you know, short circuit any concerted effort really to act in concert to leverage uh, changes. They're they're very good. They're they're not so great at confronting the Republicans. They seem to constantly find ways to avoid a decisive confrontation or stand on principle. Um, but they seem very very well adept at um, you know um, constraining the left. Um, and stoking fears about the left. So that's what we're going to see in this next cycle is going to be the idea that, well, we've got a polarized America with these two extremes and there's dangers of the far right, and but there's these dangers of the left and we're good faith actors. We're, we're calling out the left, you know, we have extremists there and that's very dangerous. We need this stable, you know, centrist middle. They're gonna fight for the collapsing middle. That's what they think will win. But that space is disappearing, it seems to me. Well, that's the uh, that that is not the where most of the country is. It's a very extreme. I mean, that's just marketing and propaganda. That's the middle or the moderate. It's actually fairly extreme uh, uh, neoliberalism and kind of proto fascism that, you know, so much consolidation. And, you know, this the the actions of a lot of the countries well, predominantly United States in reaction to COVID was not bringing us all together. It was just basically the most massive transfer of wealth from the bottom to the top in history. That's what happened. So we're not into this together. Maybe the top 20% of the country that can still have a career and get their paychecks and stay on Zoom, even though inconvenienced and we don't like it and we miss our favorite conferences, but you know, uh, we're okay. It's, you know, most of the rest of the country is having a hard, hard time, which I think is why things are going to change because there's go not going back to normal because wages haven't gone up yet. Prices are going up everywhere. 
and it, everywhere from healthcare premiums to food to, to cars to housing. So it's hitting a breaking point. And I think I give everybody permission to just openly call the Democratic Party a failed party and just vote third party. They're evictions, going to fail. Make their failure catastrophic. E- evictions are are starting and the child uh, subsidy is over. It's uh, that's we're going into the midterms with that. Uh, <laughs> Professor Anley, what's on your mind tonight, please? Well, I've. I've been looking at some, I mean, I've been looking at a bunch of stuff, but uh, aside from the the Kyle Rittenhouse uh, victory tour, um, (laughs) but aside from the the Meadows revelations and the like, I've been looking at the sub-literature that sort of suggests that uh, um, because there's actually a precedent for it, besides Eugene Debs, Trump could conceivably, and, and this takes a lot of framing, but you can see that there, that framing is actually there, or at least available uh, to uh, the Republicans, that Trump could actually be indicted or even convicted or even be in the damn slammer and run for president. Did R- Rostenkowski the- do that? Who was the congressman who did that? I think it was oh, Traficante. It might have Rost- been Rostenkowski, yeah. Or prison, was re- I can't remember. Was reelected in prison. LaRouche, remember? Lyndon LaRouche was in prison. Oh, Rome. yeah. Well, definitely, yeah. Right. Yeah, he was in prison in Minnesota. and uh, So you can get elected to office, but you can't vote if you're in prison. That That's right. That, okay. That's right. Even but if you're I, white? The, the, root, root, the one with the most votes was Eugene Debs, I mean, in terms of getting a percentage, but that was just terrible anyway. So what, what do you mean? It's not a winning, it's not a winning formula, but, but there are su- sufficient, a number, a sufficient number of precedents like people who are on ballots and who die before the election that, that I think that there's a bunch of people who could, who could uh, considering that they're Trumpists could rationalize it. Anyway, that's my well. I think I think you're onto something. I think the idea of presidents. I think all presidents should start in prison <laughs> and then earn their way out. <laughs> I think that we're we're onto something. What what else is on your mind tonight? Oh well, you know, I the, there's obstruction. There's uh, it is a slow moving coup. Um, uh, I think uh, mainstream media is beginning to move back towards uh, a more reasonable direction, but they'll probably shift. I also think that the inflationary cycle is going to continue for a couple of years, actually, and, and it will unfortunately get very complicated. I mean, it's complicated by a bunch of, of international um, events, and and they're going to they're going to break in different ways depending on whether there's wars and stuff. But uh, we're seeing inflation uh, all over the industrialized world, correct? Yeah. So it's not just yeah, America. Have, no, no. It's just that it's more. It appears more acute, and and unfortunately, 
uh, some people in mainstream media played on the seasonal uptick for things like fuel, uh, you know, gasoline and stuff. So it's just the usual idiocy that people, you know, it's going to drop back down again. Uh, but I think we're going to get an upswing. Um, I think some of the indicators are that way. It's certainly clear that uh, Powell's little announcement um, about interest rates suggests that as well. I mean, it's it's a signaling, <clears throat> not a policy reality, but he was clearly trying to, to signal something about interest rates. And so, so yeah. if it's a global phenomenon, then inflation has to be tamed by central bankers. They all have to be on the same page. They have to meet well, and that's, conspire. <laughs> How does it work? That's one way. That's one way of doing it. There's lots of this is this has a lot of moving parts. It has to do with currency exchange and a variety of other things going on simultaneously. So um, and then the pandemic will also affect that as well. So it we've got a lot of moving parts at, uh, you know, there. I would assume that there's going to be a serious incursion at some point, just 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 to, to show that he's in the game, that Putin will will have uh, his proxies invade Ukraine somewhere at some moment. But he's going to time it properly. It'll probably be timed for when Trump gets indicted or whatever. And who is that a favor to, Biden? No, I think it's a favor to Trump. Because Biden's going to have to respond. There's going to be an, you know, uh, there'll be mobilization, there'll be NATO, there'll be all kinds of stuff. The stock markets will shift, you know. Uh, I think there's ways around it, but I think that takes a kind of diplomacy that I'm not convinced that the current Democratic administration is willing to do. Even though I I would trust Blink Anthony Blinken farther, just infinitely farther than I would Pompeo. To do what? Trust him to keep us out of a war? Well, to seek, or- yeah, to well to seek diplomatic solutions and to look for alliances. Whereas Pompeo wasn't looking for any alliances at all. I mean, he was absolutely against alliances. I mean, the whole Trump administration didn't believe in alliances. Whereas I think Blinken actually does, and and the dominant the dominant ideology for the State Department is still with a a kind of real politic about uh, uh, developing regional alliances, however bad they might be. Right. Professor Jonathan Bick. Yes, David. Well, um, I'd like to respond to one of the things you said in your opening uh, monologue, uh, if you'll allow me. Okay. Um, So I, I... assume a lot of satire was going on that I'm an old Testament lefty who wants to lock up everybody. (laughs) Yes. Uh, for the, for the sake of, uh, argument, I'll say that we don't have enough people behind bars. I was saying we need diversity. That's what I'm for. 
Right. So I want to respond to those points that you made okay. there. Uh, first of all, I would like to say, uh, as far as the Old Testament is concerned, and not a useful source of effective social policy. I, I, that would be my take on it. In fact, it's the source of numerous examples of barbaric and immoral behaviors and practices. For example, ethnic cleansing, homophobia, racism, infanticide, filicide, sadism, to name a few. Uh, but beyond that, um, you, you say you want uh, more people in jail beyond the 2.5 million we have now, which is by far the largest imprisoned population in the world. Um, but you also admit that the U.S. prison system is about punishment, uh, not about rehabilitation or restitution. Right. Uh, so I'm a little... Actually, I'm beginning to Worried think I can get it. elected to office. I could run <laughs> on diver diversity in our prisons. Go ahead. All right. Um, so you said, yeah, you want diversity. You want more white people in jail. Yes. Um, but what's likely to happen if we were to pursue that uh, would be that the number of poor people and people of color would stay the same and the overall prison population would just get larger no, I said, because you're so, adding. So, no, no, you're taking my words out of context, sir. I said <laughs> socioeconomic, we need affirmative action quotas and we need to see people from uh, so, different socioeconomic strata to be in our prisons. That was my like Harvard. I I I, I want to see Harvard, the, the approach Rikers Island the same way admissions officers from Harvard approach diversity. How about this? Why don't we build a wall around Harvard and just turn it into a prison? Well, some would say they've kind of already done that. But go ahead. <laughs> okay, so. Um, yeah. So but the result is, I think the actual result that you'll get, given the background of systemic racism and the amount of power that uh, the wealthy have in this country, that you'll just end up with a larger, more powerful punishment system that subjects more and more people to torture and sadism. Uh, so I would suggest, for example, we don't punish the use of or sale of uh, illegal drugs, we should legalize and regulate them. Uh, that would eliminate the drug-related street crime. Uh, and we should offer treatment, housing, health care, and gainful and dignified employment to addicts rather than putting them in horrifying Well, I, I, was, I was saying that we need to, the Sackler family should receive lethal injection state-sponsored lethal injection for what they I, i'm not talking i'm saying crack addicts should not go to prison pharmaceutical executives should go although i like the cut of your jib when you say that about the sacklers wouldn't you what, what would be wrong i mean we haven't like before we get rid of capitalism let's try it and before we get rid of capital punishment let's use it properly Oh, God, that was another thing you said I wanted to talk about. But one, one thing. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. So, um, I mean, what we want to end up with, right, is a more just 
uh, a better society for everyone. And we want more accountability for the powerful and to make them pay for the harm that they create. So we should take their money through taxes and fines. So taxes reduce inequality of wealth and they provide funding for universal services for all Americans. We get it. Um, we get accountability and fairness by implementing democracy. And how do we do that? We reform the political and economic system. So we redistribute wealth and thus economic power and thus political power. And um, I, I don't think you can punish your way into a more vibrant democracy. Uh, yeah, a lot of different reforms have to take place. You know, you need to reform the campaign finance system. Uh, one way would be everyone who qualifies as a candidate gets a fixed amount of money and the campaign from the government, no fundraising, no private money in politics. And the campaign season is shortened to a few months instead of one or two years as you know, what we have now, at least for the presidency. Um, and you called for executing corporations. Yes. Um, people. I would if a corporation is a, a person, if Exxon Mobil should be executed. Yeah, we, we should do away with that legal fiction, right? Corporations are not people. Um, if, if the private leadership or, uh, and ownership of a corporation proves that they are incapable of running a business in a way that does not steal from or despoil their employees, customers, the local community and the environment, then they should be taken over and run for the public good. Like you said, nationalized. Uh, if the business offers nothing of value to begin with, say for example, fossil fuel companies, uh, then they should be transformed into beneficial businesses or just shut down entirely. Uh, that's, you know, I would sparingly use the, uh, the death penalty for corporations and I would not use it at all for people, for citizens. I don't think the, I don't think the government is, should be in the business of killing its own citizens. What about, what about, um, what about the CEOs um, of Chevron and Exxon being put on trial? And, you know, they're serial killers. So if a corporation is found guilty of serious criminal behavior, then it should lose its limited liability protections and its corporate leaders should be held personally, personally yes. responsible. Uh, whatever benefits they receive from the criminal or civil violations would be clawed back times two. So whoever was harmed would get their money back. Uh, whatever harms were done to the environment or the employees, et cetera, could get their money back. And then, you know, a hundred percent of that again, as a discouragement for future behavior like that. And if they can't come up with the money, then they go to prison. If they say, gee, I don't know. I think, I don't know what happened to all that cash. Uh, you know, I spent it. Well, I'm sorry. You're going to have to go to prison now. I think, no, I um, think you put them in prison. You have civil, you have civil punishment and as well as criminal punishment for. 
I think if you make these fines um, substantial enough, this is what they really care about is their money. Oh, I think they and the power care. that I, I comes think, with it. I think they would care about going to prison. Yeah, but again, just doing that, not recovering the money is not going to help the victims of those corporations. Both. Take and their so, money. Take their, I told you I'm an Old Testament lefty. <laughs> <laughs> take their money and lock them up. I do think that the, the, the fines that we assess the corporations should should not be these arbitrary dollar amounts, right? They should be based on the percentage of profits that a corporation makes in a year or over a number of years. So the first time, 25% of the profits are seized. The next time, half. Next time, 75. And after that, you get 100% of the profits for the year or for two or three years. That would cause the shareholders in that company to rebel and say, you better start running this company differently. All right. And, the, and those fines should never be tax deductible as some of them are today, which is right. absolutely mind boggling. Right. And yeah. It comes out of the corporation, not the executives. But I do think right. in terms of a demagogic approach, to solving problems, somebody on our side has to be as hateful as the people on the other side. And I choose to be that human being. <laughs> that I somebody has to somebody has to talk like Huey Long, but even scarier. Somebody has to we 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 have to put the fear of government inside the mind of the richest 1%. They need to be afraid of going to prison forever. And th this has, when, when we, we, I, we do have to, I'll give you the last word and I, I apologize. Go ahead. No, no, I, I, I think we both Don't have emulate some... Huey Long? How about Bobby Short? Can I, okay, sorry. Uh... <laughs> sorry. Somebody wrote, don't emulate it. Professor Ann Lee said, you, you get the last word, Professor oh, Dick. I, I think we both have some uh, interesting ideas that, that could help the situation if they were implemented. So okay. well, in the future, we'll talk about some more of those. Okay. Thank you, professors. It's a privilege. The Mudgeless Podcast and Guerrilla History. Let's plug that, please. And then we'll go... How do we, who's on the Mudgeless and who's on Gorilla? Oh, well, we're about to have an update on the Justice for Soli campaign with Yusuf Fakiri, the brother of uh, the deceased Suleiman Fakiri. Um, tomorrow, oh, sorry, Saturday, there is um, um, a vigil in Toronto and Dundas Square marking the fifth anniversary of uh, Suleiman Fakiri's brutal death and killing in custody in Lindsay jail. So we'll be talking with his brother about the campaign. Do listen to the Mudge List for that. And we currently have um, an episode out about the Peasants' Revolt of 1381, the rising of England 
1381. It's uh, pitchforks and torches time here in a in America, I think, um, um, these days. So it's worth uh, going back and uh, learning about uh, previous uh, attempts at changing uh, the world. Um, one little phrase um, that was the rallying cry for John Ball, the um, renegade priest who um, really was the ideological force behind the rising. He said, when Adam delved and Eve span, who was then the gentleman? And so that was their cry, like the, this hierarchy, the social inequality. It's not natural. It's not normal. It's not inevitable. It's not necessary. And we can change that. So check that out. And we will have a couple other episodes coming out, but also a roundup of the year in review from a historical perspective. What will be the lasting legacies that should be out before the start of the new year? So check out Guerrilla History as well. Professor Ann Lee, how do people read you? How do they find you on the Daily Codes? Um, I uh, I blog under Annie Lee, A-N-N-I-E-L-I, one word. Great, great. And please Discord. stop by. Yeah, please read her on the Daily Codes and over at our Discord group. Professor Jonathan Bick will be teaching at office hours this Friday night, right? And you'll be yes, playing, I'll be there. And you'll be playing the part of Jerry Seinfeld in our episode <laughs> of the Soup Nazi, which we're very excited. Professor Professor Mary Ann Cummings, Razor Girl on Twitter, is a physicist as well as an elected parks commissioner for Aurora, Illinois. And unfortunately, we just scratched the surface tonight. Thank you. All right, we have a new theme song. Professor uh, Harvey J.K. and Alan Minsky do this show every Thursday night, and Professor Mike Steinell gave us a, a brand new theme song. Misky and K, they go together like PB and J. Like Thelma and Louise, like Mac and Cheese, like Sacco and Benzetti, like meatballs and spaghetti. Allen's in LA, Harvey J's in Green Bay. When they get together, they got a lot to say, cause they're Misky and K. about democracy. Miss K and K, that's right. 
Professor Mike Steinel. We have Minsky and Kay without Kay. Harvey J.K. Mm. cannot be with us tonight. I'm going to create a little drama, okay? It's not true, but I was supposed to have lunch with Professor Kay's in New York, and this isn't true, but it adds to his appearance next week. Big fight. We're not talking to one another. He said, do the show without me. How are you, sir? Okay, actually, I'm doing better than I thought I'd be. I got my shot, my booster shot yesterday. I was feeling pretty groggy all day long, but I ran. I just ran out, ran an errand, and came back, and I don't know, just getting out and being running Moderna, around. Uh, seems. What'd you get, Moderna or Pfizer? Moderna, Moderna booster. Right. So, I'm getting, I'm getting on my first airplane in two days, in two years. Where are you going? I'm going to Newark, but I'm going to drive straight up. We're going to rent a car and drive straight up to see my mom. And, um, you know, if I come down to the city, I'll let you know. Yeah, or do you. what Professor K did and just cancel at the last minute. And yeah, we can't do a fight, and then you know, it'll, be, it'll just be you on this segment. <laughs> Alan Minsky is executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. People should contribute to that fine organization. There's nobody they endorse who is not worthy of your support couple of things I wanted to talk to you about. Mm -hmm. I have a mission for 2022, and that mm -hmm. is to put on the table, to, to get the conversation going about three things. Nationalization of corporations, utilities, turning some corporations into utilities, learning about breaking up corporations. And the third is understanding market cap, market capitalization. Is it fair to say that we on the left don't understand economics? And if we don't understand economics, we cannot win. I think there's some things that are, are associated with the left, um, where the left picks up on certain uh, economic uh, signals better than other groups. Um, I mean, the joke is that the you know left economists or Martin Marxists, you could say Marxists, but you know um, Keynesians, they've successfully predicted. Um, I'm going to ask um, you: to, you, you watch know. your arms on the. You're making a little noise with your arms. Okay. Yeah. No, my better mic uh, broke, so I'm going to have to do with this mic today. Okay. But what's the What's the joke? They predicted uh, successfully predicted, um, you know, uh, twenty out of the last two, uh, um, you know, recessions. They're always seeing doom in the markets, but you know, they definitely pay attention to spreads. Uh, ex you know, looking for bubbles, speculative bubbles, 
keeping people alert to them, how they impact the general economy. And of course, they rile against the speculative nature of the economy as opposed to investment in greater productivity. Um, but um, yeah, I think I think it's true that the left is rather naive about many things in relationship to economics, both as they relate to what the general public um, uh, feels about the way the economy functions. I mean, don't forget, the, the compact in neoliberalism isn't just we offshore everything and we, we break unions and we have impoverishment of the working class and decline of the middle class and you introduce credit cards and household debt goes soaring, but it is the appearance of extremely cheap and plentiful commodities. And, of course, um, that's more of an issue of uh, the popular perception of economics where the left seems blind to that. And um, But I also think what the left on the other side of things is blind to it's just how sophisticated uh, the financialized economy has become, how it operates. And, uh, and we're sort of stuck inside uh, the failures of the 1970s uh, with a sense of uh, that kind of 1970s and pre-1970s productivity and the decline in manufacturing and its significance and so on and so forth. And, and, and as such, then we don't, we don't keep track of how adequately keep track of how, um, the beneficiaries of the economy really operate. Um, I mean, we occasionally get all excited about things like the Panama Papers, but we really don't track it adequately or have a deep knowledge of it, and therefore we don't know how to really cut into it. And from that, from that, don't forget, there's the problem, then how do we take all of that wealth generation, right, and turn it around and generate wealth for the the people in the economy that we want to help out, 90% of the population, without changing elements of the current operation that they, uh, that they will be unhappy about. Um, I want to end with one point on that question, though. And the sociology of economy and wealth, the left has to understand, I mean, unless we're going to be in the game of trying to brainwash people, we have to recognize that the population is very impressed by, let's say, an NFL game, by the high end of skyscrapers, growth of the Chinese cities, and 21st century spectacle with all of its uh, bling and glitz. And, you know, the left, we think about how we're going to recreate society. You know, maybe in two generations, if you invest in the education system, people will look back at this stuff and consider it incredibly garish. But, you know, if the left were to, you know, run society, the population would expect that we can pull that stuff off as well or better than what came before. Okay. And, you know, that's a million miles from everybody. So here's what's rattling around my tiny little brain, and that is, what if we drove into the skid of capitalism and our government, we started electing people like Katie Porter, who was problematic, but I love her, and Elizabeth Warren, who's problematic, but I love her. I do. I think that they are offering an alternative to Bernie which is making capitalism work for everybody, which is more appealing politically, perhaps, maybe, I don't know, to, well, let me offer this up. I ask, how do we get there? How do we, you know, how do we transform the economic system? To me, the the, the easiest way to transform the economic system is to get the American people acclimated to the idea of 
owning the companies we bail out. It is the simplest conversation to start with. We're in a boom and bust economic cycle. Every five to seven years, a corporation or a sector comes hat in hand to Washington, D.C. and says, we need your money because there are millions of jobs at stake. For example, the airlines last year got $50 billion and we were told they needed to save 700,000 jobs. Now, you want our money, our tax dollars, you're gonna have a partner. Don't you think that is a politically winning message if it's explained calmly to the American people? From now on, the airlines, which charge you a fortune to bring another bag on board, unlimited delays, politically speaking, if a politician said, from now on, I'm all for bailing out corporations, but if it's your tax dollars, you become partnered up with these corporations that need a government bailout. Why isn't that a winning message? Um, I mean, there's a bunch of models here that are relevant not the least of which is the Chinese Communist Party's relationship to what are called state-owned companies that are, that are expected to operate according to the market. But of course, the um, control of the organization is still in the hands, ultimately, of the Communist Party. But they have to you know, sink or swim within the market. But I'm sure they'll probably get some beneficial um, uh, if they uh, remain uh, fully uh, uh, aligned um, and their allegiance is tight with the they don't they don't trip anybody up within the ccp they might get some breaks in there but but uh, that's one thing uh of course there's a lot that's different about the chinese system than ours and then um um yeah i mean i don't know about buying airplanes because uh air airlines because air, you know, the airline industry is something that we should probably be looking into phasing out as much as possible i agree with you uh, on but, that but but in right, but i think i think i think uh, you know the, the thing about the current situation is in the real time when this was was relevant of course was 2008 2009 right where we bailed out the automobile companies and as we bailed them out yeah sure we should have been you know gotten you know so much of a stake in the company and uh, you know, we'd be at the table as, as of owning it. Um, and what and, does that um, mean? Explain that, ex because I don't think we quite understand what that looks like. So I know everybody's right. smart. I'm not. Explain to me. Obama and Geithner bailed out GM and Chrysler to the tune of what forty billion dollars. Yes, and they basically it basically was I, I can't remember the number anymore, but yeah, they bailed it out. It was going to go bankrupt. So why didn't the United States own the company? And and, and, and they could have. And, and they Obama said, "I don't know how to run a auto company." He obviously hadn't been paying attention to the previous four decades of General Motors because they were doing a pretty bad job for the previous four decades. But no, I mean a lot of so the European car run, companies were, were owned like? by the state. Like Only a little while ago. You're the executive mm -hmm. director of the Progressive Democrats of America. I'm telling you that this is a winning political message. And oh, oh, I think, and I think PDA for what it's worth back, back at the time of. I'm angry that this, I'm not angry at you, but I am angry at progressives and people on the left 
who have not started this conversation and told us what what nationalization of corporations looks like. You don't have to own all of it. You can own a part of it. What does it look like? What does government ownership of GM look like? I can tell you, you don't own 100%. You own 25%, 30%. So you let, it's a publicly traded stock and you it's still in Detroit and you still have a CEO and a board of directors, but the government, the US taxpayer, owns 25% of voting stock. We're not running GM. We just have 25% of voting stock. We're consulted and we get dividends. What is, why is that not on the top of our agenda? Why is that alien to the conversation? Well, I mean, right now the question is, is um, what companies are we bailing out and what companies are we bailing out in the context of COVID or have in the context of COVID and how far back into the past do you want to look at uh, the companies going that we bail out? Going forward. If we supported that policy at PDA, I'm pretty sure. Of course, I wasn't the executive director then, but there were definitely a number of people. I certainly advocated for it back in 08 and 09 that it we was, should own the portion of General Motors. It was communism. Breaking up Amazon and Google and turning them into utilities. Do people even understand? We don't even understand what a utility is. When is the last time our government created a utility? Why? I, I, I'm not taking this out on you. I'm mad at the left. I'm mad at the Democratic Party. Nobody, not nobody, but no, nobody is discussing the roadmap to utilities and nationalization. And this- That's not true. With utility, utilities in particular, there are a number of people who speak about this quite a bit. I don't, then, hear, um, I don't hear it in the Democratic Party. And I, don't, and I don't hear anybody explaining to voters what it looks like, how it's done. And when I have people who are on the far left on this show, and I say to them, the-, the, the you know, I consider myself moving farther and farther to the left. And I say, tell me how this works without violent revolution. And the answer is, the answer is embracing capitalism. Where we're the, we're the, we're labor unions, we're, you know, where unions with their pension funds do not turn pension funds over to hedge fund managers who invest in corporations that destroy unions. I mean, we, it's the working man has trillions of dollars placed, turned over to in, institutional investors who are destroying the lives of unions. It's the subtext of why the older part of the subtext of why older Americans vote so conservatively, uh, because they are, you know, extreme and rejecting Bernie Sanders within the Democratic Party and then and then uh, voting more Republican in the general election as well. And that is because they know that their household wealth right now is tied up 
in uh, the performance of their pension funds and therefore in the performance of Wall Street, which and, is um, which is shipping jobs. So so they 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 rather bet on a future return with their investments than on their job. They rather have their jobs shipped overseas or. Well, I'm talking about older Americans who are you're collecting on their pensions. They're retired or uh, maybe only going down to 50 years and older. And you see how conservative the voting is. And, um, you know, in large part, that is because they associate the performance of the economy with the stock market. And that is because they're attentive to the performance of their pension funds. And um, right now, one of the things that's hopeful going forward in American society, I mean, of course, we we should talk about how we have a healthier retirement system in the country. And maybe we should avoid relying so much on, you know, invested pension funds that then get invested back into the stock market. But um, right now, if you're 50 and younger, you're not getting pensions at your job and you're not going to be older and looking at um, uh, rooting for the, the stock market in the same way. So the older, you know, the older generations have, have both, you know, for instance, if they're homeowners where again, homeowners are incredibly skewed towards the older portion of the population, you know, much more than previous generations. And then investment in the stock market through pension funds, overwhelmingly so. So um, because, you know, that's low uh, interest rates, because the Fed is keeping interest rates down until recently. And if interest rates are down, you're forced to pay for your retirement by placing your savings in risky investments. Correct. But these are just these are just the, the businesses and the contracts they had for the pension funds they were going to receive when they retire which again is something that's gone away in American society. But for the people who are 65 and older, there's still other generations where that existed. So they're very attentive to the performance of the stock market. Because they've been forced into the stock market through low interest rates. You can't, if I mean, you- what would you, do with a, what would you do with a pension fund? I mean, because it would be bonds otherwise, you mean? Well, if you, if, yeah, there's, you. what does a, what does a savings account pay? Below one percent. How do you hedge against inflation if you're uh, if you're an ordinary American who's trying to save for your retirement, and you want to you want more than Social Security? You put you put money in the bank. You're getting below one percent. You're forced. You're forced to risk your savings by putting it into either junk bonds or the stock market for security against inflation. That's that's what the Fed has done to Americans, force them into the stock market, force them into making risky investments. Well, I mean, the, there there was a crash, and other than that, the stock market has gone up, and there are a lot of people who probably still believe in it, and that's been their, you know, experience is watching their, um, you know, retirement portfolios uh, and their but that's investments not guaranteed. and portfolios. That's not a guarantee. No. <laughs> the way a, a certificate of deposit is, the way a treasury bond is, and most importantly, the way a utility used to be that if you lived in California and you wanted a safe investment that was a little riskier than a certificate of deposit, you could buy stock in PG&E and it would, the, the, the price of the stock wouldn't go up, but there'd be a consistent dividend 
because it was a utility, which means it was a highly regulated monopoly that the government, a highly regulated monopoly, su monopoly supervised by the government, which meant it was a good, safe investment. And it created a baseline of... Go ahead. There's a radio, there's a radio show you should know about that uh, they, they do discuss this quite a bit. Um, at the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Um, and S. Uh -huh. David Freeman, who was a frequent guest but died decent recently, his interviews over the years with, with Ralph and with, I think you've heard of the show, and with uh, Ian Masters also on KPFK. He would always advocate for public ownership of utilities. He ran the Tennessee and then there Valley. Now, Didn't he run the Tennessee Valley Authority? Yeah, and then he came over and was a primary consultant for LADWP. Um, which is uh, also a state-owned. But who understands you know. what a utility means? Nobody even understands, including me. Nobody understands what a utility is because of deregulation. Um, I mean, I think I think the thing that um, uh, you know, we have a lot of problems in the American economy that are um, harming the the life prospects of Americans, especially in midlife. Who aren't who don't have, who aren't old enough to have had these pension funds from having worked uh, you know across you know, the American economy before two thousand eight et cetera. Um, but um, how the housing market, the cost of housing, the cost of education, the cost of healthcare uh, is experienced by the individual consumer. I think the big problem with the left in economics is uh, the fragility of the economic financialized system. And given that, the ways then that, you know, how much class conflict do you have to have in order to change things? And if you don't have that class conflict, what does it mean to adjust those things inside the current system as we have it? And I think, uh, I think we have to confront the reality that just if you look at Medicare for All and Bernie Sanders announced that he was uh, you know, dropping out of the race, the health insurance companies I think when he lost in South Carolina, the health care uh, stocks all bounced back up after they went down after Nevada. And, um, you know, there's the margins of, of, of uh, how investment portfolios operate, uh, and they don't want to lose any of that margin. And um, so I think we're going to have to confront the fact that we're going to have to see some lowering of the stock market um, and at least creating an economy where, Average people have more money in their pockets, and then new businesses arise that aren't multinational companies. They're not in the SP, S and P index. They're not in the Dow Jones, and that that economy flourishes, and wealth is spread spread throughout the economy in that way, and not um, by just fueling the stock market. So we have to we have to have some kind of economy functioning that is vibrant that also breaks from the you know what I now, which is the incredible incredible domination of. Uh, international multi, multinational corporations in terms of all the um, exchanges that take place in the American economy. I mean, actual small-owned businesses are not the largest, as, as large a portion of the economy as people would like to believe it, that, uh, that, it, that they are. Mark, then I'll shut up about this. The fact that Americans don't know what, mar including me until recently, what market cap means, the idea that you could buy Southwest Airlines for $35 billion. Think about this. America could own half of Southwest Airlines right now for $17 billion.
That's what it would cost to nationalize own half of Southwest. But instead, we just give, when they go under, and they will go under, the airlines are always the first ones to go under. And as you said, we have to phase out air travel until it's green and it's not. We should own half of Southwest and convert their fleet to carbon neutral airplanes. It, I don't know how only cost, airplanes. it would only cost $17 billion to start to buy half of Southwest Airlines. But we're talking about a trillion dollars. I mean, but Americans don't understand this. We don't have this conversation about using capitalism peacefully and against itself. This is how it has to be. Otherwise, there's going to be violence in the streets. This is how it has to be. You have to explain to the American people what nationalization looks like. And if the Democrats don't start explaining this to the voters, we're... Yeah, um, seriously, the, the, the point you're making is not a bad point about um, companies that fail that are deemed socially essential, the government having an owning stake in them so that they continue to operate. Uh, in the instance of, say, General Motors back in 2008, 2009, it's a huge company. And if you were to let GM collapse, uh, the number, you know, one of the things is there's sort of mythology about small business in America. A lot of the small businesses are um, have a symbiotic relationship to multinational corporations. They provide services for these behemoth companies. So as you can imagine with GM, there are a number of manufacturing smaller shops that, that uh, you know, make the screws and bolts and et cetera that go into GM manufacturing. So on down the supply chain towards GM, it would be catastrophic, even though we're not, you know, Detroit is not as big a thing in the, in the American economy as it was, you know, before, you know, the, the last century or before the 90s, say. But it still would have been a huge chunk of the economy so that the government can step in and own it partially. Um, but and I do have to say, David. Here, here's the thing. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I feel very. No, no, no. But I didn't get to on, my let point. me just make a point here. I'm sorry to interrupt you. But here's the selling point. Here is what the American people need to understand. When you nationalize or own half, if the government owns half or 25 percent of the mm -hmm. corporation, it's a good investment. It's then it becomes a safe. Then you've created a safe place for middle class Americans who have some savings. Then you've created something that resembles a utility. So you know that you can buy if we nationalize Southwest Airlines. That's a good, safe investment. You you know, it's not going to that the government will protect it. That is good. There's a, of, there's a lot of ideas. There's a lot of ideas about social organization from the left and from the left tradition that I wish we could bring into play in contemporary American politics. The pragmatic or practicality of introducing those right now, in particular, what you're talking about, is, is really um, going to be a very difficult position. The same way for Medicare for all. Ten take. years ago, no, you, the idea that Medicare for no. all, that a majority of Americans would support Medicare for all 10 years if ago. We have another stock, if we have another stock market collapse, and because the, the, the 
valuation on the stock market is so central to the operation of these companies, the manufacturing companies that you're talking about, for instance, like GM or whatever, um, then yes, it's, it, it comes into play. But until that point, there, there are two very, well, three important points to make. One is it's simply not within the political discourse right now, and it would be a heavy lift to try to get the population to digest it That's and right. not be, right? Okay, and two, um, <laughs> okay, yes, it's true. It looks like the Supreme Court is going to um, reverse Roe v. Wade, or it's quite likely, right, in the next few months. But the Federalist Society and all those, the whole right-wing trajectory of the courts you know, for a long time and up until very recently, where I think there just was too much pressure from the Republican base and they finally had to put people on there who were going to really stand up and rescind Roe v. Wade. Um, the real thrust of what they were going after was in, um, what's it called, administrative law. And if you think the right-wing courts in America are going to um, rule in favor of a partially owned government business when Ford says, no, that's unfair business practices, 25% of GM is owned by the the United States are always going to be bailed out. You know, they have a limited, limitless supply of money. They're going to rule against it. Administrative okay? law explained administrative law is how agencies. It's a separate set of judges who kind of arbitrate between regulatory agencies and industry. Right. And, and that's really what the, of course, as you can imagine, that's much more important to the Koch brothers than. You know, I mean, they, you know, they, 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 they go to a lot of soirees in, in New York City. I don't know how, you know, homophobic they are or care about uh, same-sex marriage, but they sure do care about any imposition of regulations on their businesses. So um, that's what's driven that. So that, there's that political reality behind what you're proposing. And um, uh, I forget my third point, but, you know, it's just politically would be such a lift for somebody to put that into play that I, I can't imagine a candidate who has a shot at winning leading with that. We need um, a Democratic Even if they have to ask about it and they think it's a great idea. No, no, the public ownership of utilities and the nationalization, as it were, of our health care insurance um, processes, those are very much in play. Um, and I think they're, they're, they're different because there's not the clear type of challenges within the legal system. And also it's just the, po the population has been sort of informed about these programs and they've they now understand, and they've been told now about Medicare for all. The health, the Canadian system is better than ours. The English system is better than ours. The South Korean, the Taiwanese systems are better than ours. Um, and so they're they're ready to. I mean, they they know this. This is a terrible. I mean, people just logically think I should be able to go see my doctor. Right? Shouldn't my my life, my body's, you know, how my body is doing, be outside of you know these these assholes? Uh, oversight that can just say, no, you can't do that because you're not signed up into the right system or you're not able to pay for it. So there's that very visceral connection when it comes to healthcare. There's no doubt you're eliminating a whole industry. And if you did that uh, through Medicare for all, as Bernie outlined it, you know, just full on free at the point of service, um, medic, uh, medical, um, you know, uh, uh, get to see uh, a doctor whenever you need to, that kind of thing. There's no doubt they would challenge that in the courts. But uh, you have to you have to write the bill in a way that's going to not be able to be knocked down by the right wing courts. Right. And the courts respond to the will of the people. They're terrified. To, they're still terrified to some degree. Why do the American people put up with this? It's it's, I, it's not because of the Republican Party. It's the Democratic Party keeping us stupid. Right. 
but this, is a, this was a very difficult day for me waking up and see besides having had the shot yesterday and you know um this whole multi-month narrative of both voting rights and build back better the, they, the wall was hit uh schumer cried uncle 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 joe mansion uncle Kristen cinema and uh, it looks like this stuff isn't going to go forward and the voting rights now may be tackled sometime inside this congress um it's a cr- incredible betrayal of the democratic base um i don't think anybody on um, not marianne cummings nobody here can outdo me in my sense of disgust and now we're left wondering how we can possibly overcome this um not just as a Democrat, but just to try to preserve democracy, because obviously the, the next steps ahead of us are really dire, which is that the Republicans control one of the chambers in the next Congress, so nothing can happen there. Then you have Trump or somebody like Trump elected in 2024 with Republican majorities. And, you know, democracy is is really, really uh, getting um, uh, unraveled then in the United States. And, um, you know, that's a very dire thing going forward. And that's the betrayal of the Democratic Party. Yeah, there's there's no doubt. You know, Margaret Thatcher said the greatest achievement she ever had politically was Tony Blair's Labor Party. You know, and once you get the the Democrats completely wedded to uh, the financialization of the entire economy uh, by the mid '90s going forward, then um, then yeah, do, do the do does the American public have an option that really can serve their interests as opposed to continuing to serve the interests of and you know all, all the stuff too about democracy and why it's it's under threat here at its core. It's that you can't have an oligarchically structured economy and, um, and then have money influence politics and expect democracy to be tolerated by uh, the wealthy who expect to make all the decisions. Right. And, um, and that's where we are right now. Right. They're accustomed to ownership. You can all vote, but I get more votes because I pay more taxes the way a corporation works more shares you hold why would, why would i why would i want to let these annoying people interfere with the decisions i'm going to make over my private empire i should get to i should have the right to make all the decisions over my private empire and we have it structured still that there's this little glimmer of possibility in our democratic system that can interrupt with their ownership of, of everything and uh and they they don't like that at least enough of them don't that, and it's uh, never been this you know. bad before. Well, we're getting closer. Uh, you know, I don't think we've ever really had something that's as close to this kind of uh, oligarchic uh, sort of um, kind of proto-aristocratic takeover of our society. Um, I mean, the amount of money and how much it channels through the United States. Another thing that's happened, it's not just Delaware. It's the whole of the United States. We've been a very attractive place for um, the oligarchs from around the world to come in and drop their money, much more so than, say, the European countries where they have a tradition of higher levels of taxation and tracking, tracking that kind of money coming in in order to, to tax. And that all started in the Reagan year. We wanted to draw in capital from around the world. And then the paradox is, is once there's um, money generated, they offshore that so the IRS can't access it either. And we've basically overseen the development of that system with more than a wink and a nod. It's New York City. There, there's no way anybody can afford to live in these buildings. And yet, they, they rare, the prices don't go down. They're empty. And they're... Yeah, the, the really, I heard the one that's the really tall, thinnest one over around 57 or in that area. 
is is only half filled. Of course, and for just you know, for, for a cool twenty four million, you can get a place there. And you don't have neighbors, even if it is owned. It's 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 owned by an oligarch or the daughter of an oligarch. Um, meanwhile, homeless people live on the streets because there's a shortage of housing. But there's as much empty housing in New York City as there is homeless people. I can't imagine post-COVID that we're going to see all these office towers fill back up. Um, they've been largely vacated the past two years. Not many people have used their offices and they, they've got locked into doing work from home. So who's going to occupy those offices? And again, in the United States, um, it's going to take political will to allow the homeless to live in them. And I don't think it's very likely. Okay, here's another example of the left not understanding. When the left thinks about, about um, I mean, how do, you, how do you build a skyscraper? How much does it cost to build a skyscraper? How much uh, overhead do you have to have? What's the what's the way that you um, you know take out loans in order to achieve the building of a corporate tower? How do these things keep getting built, and all this money and wealth is just generated by it's these uh, is literally you know, oligarchic wealth and by by corporate wealth? You know, and obviously you leverage in order to produce them, but um, you know this is the kind of thing the left is has no idea about. You know, and the general population. You know, that's their impression of what, you know, a downtown is supposed to look like. I don't know. Jared Kushner owned 666. Was it 666 Fifth Avenue? He bought it and he, and he find, I think Cutter bailed him out. And the way they bailed him out is he's building more. He's adding. Uh, it's a, it is literally a Ponzi scheme, a skyscraper. You just keep getting people to invest and you keep building on top of it and it's never it, no we don't understand how it works you're not supposed to yeah unbelievable yeah some of these new things in new york they're they're half occupied they cost a ton of money these little pencil towers that they have um and yeah i don't know i suppose there's sort of a a, a subset of the global elite who who don't really roll with the Hampton crowd, or maybe they do, I don't know. And they uh, want to live in places like that. They have so much money, they don't know what to do with it. You know? Are you watching Succession? Are you watching what? Are you watching Succession? No, I'm not. Um, I've been told a lot about it, but uh, um, no, I've been watching the the, the Democratic Party, um, you know, implode. Um, is it good? Do you like it? Yeah. Is there any? How can you do that when when you're on when you're on your podcast? Uh, I'm watching it right now. <laughs> I'm watching it right now. Before you go, who's to blame for Mansion? Not Mansion. Whose fault is this? Oh God! Um, you know, obviously he's a legacy Democrat from the time when the state was controlled by the Democratic Party, which is only two decades ago, um, and. You know, how exactly then the, I mean, remember the last Democratic senator, wasn't it Rockefeller before Manchin? It was Byrd and Rockefeller. And then who did Manchin replace? I think he replaced Rockefeller and the Byrd seat went to a Republican. And, um, um, you know, the, the, the party just, the, the, the things that, are, that have been put forward to build back better, they're not that great. They're very means tested. They're qualified. 
the climate stuff, uh, the, of course, the investment side of the climate stuff when it's, uh, you know, incentives to invest in renewables, that's good. But they have now included all sorts of incentives to, you know, do these things like carbon sequestration, which are terrible. So the whole thing is not as good as we'd want it to be. But it was an effort to try to, you know, address and expand, you know, the welfare state marginally in some places. All of those politics just were not even in play over the last uh, three decades. So Manchin didn't seem like an outlier. And then, you know, what, why, why we address this in the way that we did now, partly is the Sanders movement and the pressure it, it exerted within the Democratic Party, but also it's because of COVID. And, um, and, you know, Trump providing the big chairs package. I think Manchin came in with a Manchin, but Biden came in with a sense that he had to produce something. And infrastructure was something that we're, we're you know, falling down on. I mean, the infrastructure here in certain parts of the country is, is horrible. I mean, the New, York, the New York subway is an amazing thing when you think about it, you know, compared to the Paris subway or, or the London subway, which is older. I think the Paris subway is just about as old. And, uh, you know, you, you know, Manhattan, so the New York subway looks like, you know, so, something, I mean, I love it for being so phantasmagoric, but it's fucking phantasmagoric. I mean, it, is. it looks like something out of pure, pure decay. Yeah. Whatever, what? I, I, it's like three bucks if you want to go a block or if you want to go all the way out to Bushwick, it's three bucks, which changed. Look, you go on the, if, you go, if you go on the Hong Kong subway system, right, it is so, you know, again, glitzy, super clean, polished, um, state of the art. Um, I don't know when it first came into existence or how old it is. Um, but, you know, the subways in the United States, they don't compare to that. So, yes, we need infrastructure spending. There's no reason why we can't, through public outlays, you know, improve the operation of all the public uh, transportation systems so they're compatible or, or they're as, as good as uh, the, um, uh, you know, European cities and the East Asian cities. Same with high-speed rails, same with the roads and the bridges and our airports. I think Trump said at some point, you know, you go and you fly to uh, Europe and you come back at JFK and you're just like, wow, this is like, you know, arriving in the, in a, you know, housing project in the Bronx or something. And um, um, so, you know, it's, um, uh, there's a lot to go there. So he got that investment going and, um, but there just wasn't a democratic party that was pushing this kind of stuff before, uh, but certainly not before the 2008-09 crash. After that, we started to see an appetite for it. Then the Sanders campaign happens, COVID happens and Biden comes in, but why would Manchin have been exposed as an outlier before that? You know, in fact, it's almost surprising. I think a lot of the other senators have let Manchin and Cinema carry water for them here. Um, Mary, you know, look Cummings, at them, they're not. Professor Marianne what? says, Professor Marianne Cummings says Hillary's running. <laughs> I, I, oh, I, I kind of read something that hints at that. If you're a Democrat and you see the implosion of Biden and Kamala, who is your neoliberal savior mayor pete who do they have other than hillary what kind of bench are we looking at it's not good um um and you know the republicans are of course horrible but they seem more motivated um and uh i don't know who we we really do have to find somebody to be a progressive champion for 2024 i you know i'm worried a lot of people are going to feel that warren is an adequate uh choice um she might be the best we can do Elizabeth Warren uh, but, is the best um, we could do. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I don't think that that's a winning hand politically. I, I, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. 
the Clintons no, but again, you know, and the Obamas, they've ruined it. They just ruined the Democratic yeah. Party. You know, it's interesting. If you look at the, if you look at the Republican Party, um, it is, you know, more inclusive in some regards than the Democratic Party. You know, for instance, they don't have super delegates. Um, and uh, I forgot another example of the way that they're sort of a more inclusive operation than the Democrats. Maybe because when you're over there in the Republican Party, very trust that you're going to be there to serve, you know, U.S. capital. Whereas if you're in the Democratic Party, you have to be contained because, you know, if the base actually got the policies they'd want, it would interrupt the profiteering and the market valuation and the market cap of businesses, right? So um, um, uh, if you look at the, the Republicans, they really contain their um, right-wing base. If you go Reagan, Bush, and then Bush again, though he loses, then Dole, Bush, Bush, McCain, Romney. So between Reagan and Trump, they did not let a populist get their nomination. Right. They had these, and so it sort of masked the way that the base had been separated out, and then Trump sort of came in and blew it up. And in the Democratic Party, yeah, they've we've never even gotten close. Here's a winning during strategy. That whole Alan Minsky, Executive Director, Progressive Democrats of America. Here's a winning strategy. Vote your hate, not your hopes. Vote your hate, not your... This is, we need candidates who traffic in righteous hatred for the ruling class. Visceral hatred, demonization. Forget the heavy lift of explaining what market cap and utilities mean. Start finding candidates who traffic in hatred and demonization and scapegoating. That's a winning strategy for the Democrats to start. Sad, sadly, tragically, I completely disagree. I'm because that's you. all they've had. That's all they had. That's all they had. You just basically outlined the moderate Democratic, um, uh, you know, campaign position. I'm which is you, what do they do? You 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 go after Christine Pelosi, the Pelosi daughters, Shahid Buttar needs to run against her in 2022 and demonize Paul Pelosi and lock him up for inside. Didn't, didn't Nancy just say she's didn't Nancy just say she's running again? She's running again? I don't know. I, maybe I dream that. You know, I yeah, that. he's so in the primaries, do what Trump said. I'm going to get elected and we're going to lock Paul Pelosi up. These are yeah, what I'm saying is that all they do, all they did is demonize Trump. That was their primary campaign. They don't know how to They can't position. even arrest him. They can't even indict him yet. Cyrus Vance yeah. can't even. They, they needed him. It was like a symbiotic. And look, MSNBC loves Trump. Rachel Maddow, that's just her dream come true is Donald Trump. What else does she have to talk about? Well, this, you know, is, this mm -hmm. is the winning strategy. Hatred, demonization, scapegoating. I mean, I suppose it worked this year because Trump lost. How can find a candidate who says he's, if I'm elected, Jamie Dimon and his entire family are going to prison? Oh, well, that's a different approach for hatred, but um, yeah. I'm talking hmm. about scapegoating the right people. Mm -hmm. You can rev up. You can rev up an electorate 
getting them angry at Exxon and Chevron. So, so in other words, that the, they should just adopt exactly the talking points of Donald Trump. So exactly. there should be rallies. It is actually the 2024 build up to the primaries. You're looking for a candidate that's going to lead the locker up chant in the Democratic yes. Party. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. It's a winning strategy. Clinton screwed it all up when he said, you got to vote your your hopes, not your fears. F that. You win yeah, by win. getting people vote your fears, vote your hate. Okay, so, so let, come on, let's figure out these slogans. When they go low, we go lower. When they go low, we go lower. I mean, I'm. We go go lower with steel toe boots, too. Yeah. Anyway, I need to to have a meeting with the left and the progressive Democrats of America, and I need to be brought in as a consultant to the Democratic Party. (laughs) Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. No, we're silly in that we, we try to run on people's hopes and dreams of a better world no no you people want to see pain inflicted it's wrestling and we will the american people will vote for anybody who will inflict punishment and it doesn't matter who's getting punished as long as somebody is being put in pain so you're familiar, you're familiar with Lakoff's argument about the you know matriarchal Democratic Party and the patriarchal Republican Party. Yeah, well, that has to change. We need to be the cruel daddy. I'm serious. I, I, as I said, I'm an Old Testament lefty. No, I'm 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 just trying to figure out how it could work. You know. Uh, so I'm not no, not anything. Here's anything how it works. Here's how it works. We start locking up white collar criminals. That's how it works. You start how do you do that? Up. I mean, you mean you're, talking about, you're talking about the Biden administration and Merrick Garland doing that? I don't see that happening. Well, we no, I'm talking about locking up the Biden administration. I'm being serious. These people are criminals. That's how it starts. Just I think that takes a, I think that takes like a guerrilla army. No, it just takes a a village of educated lawyers from another country who actually care about. Yeah, we're we're effed. It's 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 all Catherine Liu. It's all in her book, the the professional managerial class. They're for nothing other than the status quo. Bruce Springsteen, the voice of the working man, just sold his library for $600 million to Sony. Take that, Tom Morello. $600 million? $600 million, his entire library. Can Dylan do his for $300 billion? Well, just his songwriting. There's another voice of the, the 60s, Bob Dylan, $300 million. What a billion. It can't be right. It has to be 300 million. What? You're right. Springsteen? Yeah. No, no, I got it wrong. I got it wrong. It's, it's 300. It's 300 million. Well, I hope Tom. So, so, Springsteen, so Springsteen was 200 million more than Dylan. 300 million more. He sold it for what 600 was, was million. 
I'm the CM2. These shots have messed up my capacity to do arithmetic. That's a that's he can buy some really nice work jeans for six hundred million dollars, Bruce. Who was you know um, the, the word is in the eighties he fucked over the roadies. By the way, did you know that Bruce? Bruce. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's going to come up at, during his podcast with Barack Obama, talking about their feelings and their depression. Mm. Well, I hope Tom Morello. Yeah. I hope Tom Morello can send, can sell his his vast. The Rage Against the Machine. The Rage Against the Machine songwriting for. Uh, yeah, maybe he can get. Maybe he can get uh, a billion. They can get a billion. Yeah. Um, Alan Minsky, thank you. Will I see you next week? Yeah, I'll be in the East Coast. Hopefully, I won't be so dizzy from this shot. I actually got pretty dizzy in the middle of this, but yeah, I'll be here. Thanks, David. Thank you. I'll see you. Maybe I'll see you. Maybe maybe I'll see you in New York. Yeah, that'd be fun. Okay, but I don't know. I got family and all this stuff, so you know. Just cancel it. Do you know the drill? You make plans to see me. This is how it works. If you live in New York, this is how it works. Oh, you're coming to New York? Well, call me, and we make plans, and then. You have the decency to cancel at the last minute, or I invent something to cancel. But nobody on the, you, one, on the 23rd, I'll be driving them back to JFK and I'll, I'll be in touch with you. Let's make plans that we cancel at the last minute. That's how it works in New York. You make plans. It'll be great to see you. It will be great to almost see you in New York. There we go. That's okay. that's that's pitch perfect. Okay. okay. Thank you. Take Alan. care, man. Thank you, Alan Minsky. <laughs> Well, I want to thank everybody who made tonight's show possible. This was our 100th episode of the year. So I want to thank Dan Frankenberger and uh, all the people who make this show possible. I want to thank everybody who comes to the Zoom room in our chat room. Please subscribe to this show as a podcast. Wherever you get podcasts, we'll be there. We're the the Tom Jodes of podcasting. Wherever there are two barely working ears, I'll be there. Download us wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a good review. Smash the like button. Is that what you're supposed to say? Am I running low today? I think I'm running low today uh, on my volume. We have a YouTube channel. Please subscribe to that. I want to thank our guests. They are... Hmm... Jose Arroyo, buy, buy his book, please. Somewhere in L.A., please buy the book. Professor Ben Burgess, the Hershenfelds, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, and Ethan Hershenfeld. Go watch Thug Thug Jew on YouTube. I want to thank Emil Guillermo. I want to thank the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. I want to thank Professor Ann Lee, Professor Jonathan Bick, Professor Adnan Hussein. Listen to the Mudgeless podcast and Guerrilla History. And of course, I want to thank Professor Marianne Cummings. And of course, Alan Minsky, Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America. And they are a worthy donation. If you're going to make a donation this uh, Christmas, why not give to uh, a worthy cause like the uh, Progressive Democrats of America. Don't forget office hours this Friday night, 8 p.m. We're doing exciting things. Meet better people. Come to office hours. I'm David Feldman.
Let me see if I can do this. We're going old school here. I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. Here we go. I can do it. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comments too. To tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an enemy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right, buckled in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Yes, it's time right now for the David Feldman Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. see some hands raised very quickly. I, I only have like three minutes, so let's go through these very quickly. Lynn H. I'm sorry I didn't get to these. Lynn H. Hello, Lynn. Okay. Bernie Ho. Okay. Very quickly. Snake again. Okay. Oh, hang on. Thinks his jazz is magnifique. Da 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 da. And in reality, it just sounds like a donkey in heat. Garbage. Jesus. By the way, I saw you. I was walking the dog the other day. I saw your mom down by the docks picking cubes out of her teeth. Thank you. You saw my mother wow. down by the docks picking what out of her teeth? Cubes. Right. Okay. So you're against free enterprise. You just got better pubic speaking. So you're against women joining the workplace is what you're saying. <laughs> All right. I'm going to mute you. Thank you for that breath of... Is there uh, any way you think you could get Mitski to, to donate some more hair to you? Okay. Thank you. Uh, let us now go. You're You're muted. Uh, Lynn, what's on your mind? No, I... no I'm not. <laughs> Jesus. It's a mistake again. I hit the wrong button. Okay. Uh, but that's all. Okay. Thank you. It's what, what... okay, Lynn. <laughs> he never gets it in the right hole, so... All right. Let's keep it clean, please. There are uh, children watching. Uh, go ahead, Lynn. Lynn? Okay. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. I, well, it was a mistake. I hit the wrong button again. Sorry. Oh, you That's didn't want to. You didn't want to talk. No. Oh, okay. 
And finally, I'm alert. Okay, finally, Rodrigo. Let's keep it short. You're you're you got to rest up. You're going to be the soup Nazi tomorrow at office hours. What's on your mind? Oh, here we go. The Frito Bandito. Oh, come on now. Hang on. You have to be muted. Uh, All right. There you go. Rodrigo. Rodrigo. Okay. Are you ready? I was me. Are you ready for uh, tomorrow night? Yes, I I saw the episode. I had seen it when I was younger. Okay, you're going to be the soup Nazi. We're doing table reads of some of our favorite and not so favorite sitcoms from the '90s. I'm I'm really tired, so I, I'm trying to sign off. But what what are your thoughts before we we go? Uh, I prepared. Two things, but I'll just say that I want to remind everyone that the original projection from scientists with assuming we had they had a working government and an education system was 36,000 days and we have passed 20 times that in the richest country in history. And if that's not an indictment of capitalism, I don't know what is. You're saying that the, uh, the, the planet has, the planet has 36,000 days left? No, no, no. The original projection for, uh, for COVID deaths was 36,000 deaths. Oh, COVID deaths was, was how many? 36,000. And we, we hit 800,000. Yes. And that's an indictment of capitalism because uh, some people want to focus focus on uh, the crazy people, but those people are propagandized thanks to capitalism. In other countries, the Anti-vaxxers aren't nearly as numerous relative to the size of the population. Okay, I don't disagree with you. It's very uh, uh, Merry Christmas. I hope we can talk to, we can see uh, Paul Prescott soon on your show. Who right? is running for state senate in Philly, in PA, and his election is on May 17th, which in political time is very soon. He needs volunteers, he needs donors. Right. We'll, we'll talk about that tomorrow and I'll speak to Howie. All right? Thank you. Thank you. That is our show. I took all the calls. Thank you so much. I hope to see you Friday night at 8 p.m. for office hours. Go to my website and hit office hours. All you need is Zoom and you're in. Meet better people. I promise you, you will meet better people like, oh, I don't know, Professor Mike Steinel. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> Thank you.
Managerial class. Managerial class. 